following aviation podcast is presented as entertainment, not flight instruction. Though some participants are certified flight instructors, their comments, opinions, and discussions of flying techniques are theirs alone. None of the co-hosts or guests on this podcast are acting as your flight instructor. Please consult your own CFI for guidance on your specific flight training, aeronautical knowledge, and aircraft operation. This is the Stuck Mike Avcast, an aviation podcast about learning to fly, living to fly, and loving to fly. Episode 193, the best of Stuck Mike Avcast 2018, coming up in this episode of the Stuck Mike Avcast. Now here are your co-hosts, Victoria Newville, Eric Crump, Larry Overstreet, Russ Rosleski, Tom Frick, Rick Felty, and Carl Valeri. Hey everyone, Happy New Year and welcome to a special edition of the Stuck Mike Avcast. You know, every new year we compile the five most popular shows and interviews. During the selection process, each co-host selects their favorite podcast. Then we take the top five and bring you into the process by selecting the podcast with the most downloads. But before we begin the show, some news and a word from our sponsor. Let's do the pre-flight. Our sponsor is AviationCareersPodcast.com, scholarships, career coaching, and interview preparation. You know, it's a new year, and we're focusing more on general aviation scholarships so you can obtain and continue with a new rating or do some adventure flying. Go to AviationCareersPodcast.com slash scholarships to learn more. Also, don't forget, we have a new YouTube channel, and we have a new YouTube video up there. You know, Victoria's grandfather... Harlan Neuville is a former Apollo engineer. During a special family trip, he was able to return to NASA and visit the Johnson Space Center in Houston, Texas. One of Harlan's proudest moments is his participation in the space race. In the 1960s and early 70s, he worked in guidance, navigation, and control, guiding astronauts safely to the moon. In November 2018, he, his family, and Victoria returned to Building 30 at the Johnson Space Center for the first time in over 40 years. And you can watch that on our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash stuckmikeavcast, or you can link in the show notes. Don't forget, you can link to everything we talk about here at the show notes. And also, don't. And if you have a question or something, just send us an email, stuckmikeavcast at gmail.com. That's the one we're using the most, stuckmikeavcast at gmail.com. Also, thanks to one of our listeners, uh, to reminding us that we're not in Google Play. Well, you know what? That changes today with the new year. We have finally entered Google Play. So if you are on Google Play, you can listen to us. Clicking on the icon that says Listen in Google Play. Uh, we have a link at the bottom of the show notes. Or just go to Google Play and look up Stuck Mike Avcast. Well, we hope you have a wonderful 2019 and encourage you to do something in the new year in aviation. You know, even if you're taking a break from flying, do something that is focused on aviation. You know, I had to take a three-year break from aviation, but I still got involved. I went to the airport, and I just looked at airplanes. You know, whether it's obtaining a new rating, visiting an aviation muse- museum, or simply stopping and watching the airplanes take off and land at your local airport, whatever it is, we hope you enjoy your uh, this upcoming episode about learning to fly, living to fly, and loving to fly. Now entering cruise flight. Well, before we begin on this episode, a, qu- a quick note as to what's comprised of this. We have 
episode 177, the most popular one, whether or not a decision-making process, episode 186, teaching skills or creating aviators, episode 167, how much fuel is in your airplane, episode 184, how to be a good safety pilot, and got a lot of feedback on that one, and episode 179, reporting on the air and on the ground from a NASA rocket launch. I'm sure you'll really enjoy those, but we really appreciate your listening this year and look for some new things coming in the new year with both our YouTube channel and also now that we're on Google Play, we're going to try to do many more things for you so that you can really actually look towards your passion and fulfill your passion in aviation no matter what it is. Enjoy the best of Stuck Mike Avcast 2018 and have a happy new year. Well, you know, I talked about in the beginning, uh, the title is Whether or Not a Decision-Making Process. And, you know, Russ flew into Sun and Fun and out of Sun and Fun. And, um, you know, we're not going to talk a lot about the Sun and Fun uh, flying portion of it, you know, landing and taxing. But there was weather both on the beginning of the show and the end of the show when Russ wanted to leave. So... I, I think it was neat that we had this discussion about the weather and we were talking about it uh, at the airfield. And I think it's important to go over, you know, whether or not we should go, making a go, no-go decision uh, based on the weather. And, of course, on other factors, too, your equipment and all, and the type aircraft you have, etc. And there was a couple scenarios of people flying in, both IFR and VFR, and in different types of aircraft. Some people flew in an aircraft that could go up to 35,000 feet, and some people were flying at 3,500 feet or even less. So, Russ, we'll, we'll talk a little bit at first about your flight in. I remember, uh, and I, I can't remember everything about the weather, so you're going to have to help me out here. So, basically, you tell us a little bit about where you flew from and to and the different decisions you had to make about going through the weather. Sure. Well, I come from Oklahoma City, as as most listeners probably know by now. <laughs> you know, I keep talking about how wonderful the weather is out here in Oklahoma, <laughs> except for when there's tornadoes. But um, yeah, so I, I come from Oklahoma City, and I you know that's a long flight to Lakeland, Florida. So you know, I usually plan a midway stop, and that midway stop is usually Meridian, Mississippi, um, to get their free hot dogs and ice cream and. Uh, sweet tea and whatever else they have their popcorn, I guess too. It's a good stop. It's a nice, nice place to stop. But so on the way out there, you know, and I, I came on Monday. So the show starts on Tuesday and I headed out on Monday cause I wanted to be there for the whole thing. Um, first half of the flight, beautiful, not a cloud in the sky, VFR. You know, I, I, I got flight following, but I just stayed VFR uh, cause there's no reason not to a straight line there. Um, and then of course, as soon as I take off from Meridian, it's, it's, uh, marginal VFR down to IFR in some areas. So I did activate an IFR flight plan uh, once I was in the air uh, from Meridian, Mississippi. Well, I was on top of the clouds, and you know, as I'm working my way towards Florida, you know, the the, uh, the overcast below me was, I mean, it was pretty pretty low. I was at uh, you know seven thousand for uh, for most of it, and it, the overcast was a, at least a few thousand feet below me, so no no big deal. Um, but as I got closer, I don't know if you remember, um, my story from, uh, last year, how I had a whole line of storms across Florida and I had to just stop short and, uh, wait a day. <laughs> well, well, there was another line of storms, uh, this time, uh, it didn't look quite as bad, but, uh, so I'm cruising along there 7,000, couldn't see the ground, but I had my onboard, uh, ADSB weather. Fantastic. Of course. 
I don't know how we ever flew anywhere without it. To be honest <laughs> with you, it's, it's wonderful. And, uh, and I'm seeing this, this line of storms is kind of gr- going across the northern part there, the Florida Peninsula, kind of the Cross City, uh, Gainesville area. I guess, you know, it, it's probably perpetually rainy in that area. I don't know. Tom, is there a, usually a lot of storms up in that area? There can be. It's yeah. Yeah, and this time of year, especially with with frontal systems, you get them. Right. It pops through there all the time. We just right. got one so, here yesterday. Yeah. So I wasn't real surprised, but uh, but it was cutting off. You know, the the route to to Lakeland didn't look as bad as last year, fortunately. Uh, but what I was facing a problem with is that overcast that was below me, and I was well well above a seven thousand was was climbing up to meet me as the day went on, which which happens, of course, and so. At first, I went up to 9,000. I was in a Cessna 182, so, you know, I had good performance to get up there. I went up to 9,000, and I could tell that the the clouds below me were kind of starting to break up a little bit, but ahead of me, I saw this line of, of you know, storm clouds building cumulus, uh, you know, some towering cumulus and such. And this is where the decision came in, came into effect. You know, do I try to climb above it? Um, do I... Try to go below it. Uh, last year, there have been really strong storms, and some of them this year looked like they were developing pretty well. And so I wasn't sure if I was going to be able to go over it, stay visual, or see if I could go under it. Unfortunately, in that part of, you know, kind of around the uh, the bend there where the panhandle kind of, you know, curves around to the south, there's not a lot of uh, airports, and there's not a lot of airports with weather reporting. So getting a good idea of the cloud bases was really tough and you know, it would really stink to descend all the way through them and then you know, not be able to get out anyway. But fortunately, I was able to go up to 11,000 and uh, that kept me just skimming the tops of some of these, uh, some of the lower uh, cumulus clouds. But uh, I, could, I could stay visual and could avoid the, uh, the larger ones. Unfortunately, as I got closer, and of course this is uh, Murphy's Law, of course, um, as I got closer, I'm looking, I'm watching the uh, ADSB weather and kind of getting updated on. There's a gigantic hole like you know, easily go through between a couple of cells. And then all the weather disappears off my uh, off my tablet. So that's a good thing, right? And, the weather's gone. Well, I'm right? like, man, that's great. <laughs> yeah, that, that's fantastic. <laughs> all the weather's gone. Uh, but well, it was interesting because the other airplanes still showed up. I was still getting uh, METARs and TAFs. I, it, I checked for long enough that could tell I was still getting all that. I just wasn't getting the next rad radar. Um, and, you know, it updates, you know, auto updates every, like, what, five minutes or something. And so, uh, you know, the first five minute thing went by and it updated and it was still not showing any next rad. So, uh, well, I quick took a little screen capture <laughs> just so I'd have at least something to, to have an idea of as I got closer. But, uh, yeah, it was out for 20 minutes for me, uh, and then it came back. You know, of course, it came back after I was through the, uh, through the, the line of, of storms there. So, so I, I thought that was very um, – maybe uh, the airplane was trying to tell me not to fly with my head down. I don't know. <laughs> so how did you get through it? Did you visually? Or? I was able to stay purely visual, and it wasn't anywhere near as bad as, uh, as last year. Uh, yeah, I was, I was up in the – you know, just the very top of the, the uh, like the I guess the lower cumulus clouds. You know, skirting along the top, and I could see the the building ones around me. So uh, it was it was actually not bad at all. But it wasn't bad because I could go up to eleven thousand. Um, you know, if I had been in 
another airplane that maybe couldn't comfortably climb that high, it would have been really a different scenario uh, because I would have been in the clouds at that point and not really able to remain clear visually with the, uh, the, the towering cumulus or uh, possibly cumulonimbus. What's fascinating about this journey is the fact that you had all this technology that we, you were using. And one of the things we always need to be ready for is that technology to fail, whether it's if we're using radar or NEXRAD, like you, you're saying there. So when, you're, when you were going through the weather, and I, I know I like to do this, and I, I, I'm glad you said this, you took a screenshot. I actually, when I'm flying and I'm going through weather, I will do that. I'll make sure I do a screenshot every so often of my weather. I mean, it's a lot of pictures that I have to get rid of afterwards, but uh, I think it's worth it. Uh, so I don't know if that's maybe a technique you might start using in the future uh, as far as when you're trying to get through some weather. But just remember, um, you know, all that weather in general is is like old, meaning five minutes old, etc. But now you're trying to come up with a strategy, and, and now you're like, uh-oh, how do I get through this weather? You did it by visually looking at the weather and saying, okay, I'm, I'm away from these storms. But how many times have we had technology, and just not just technology in the airplane, but also on the ground, like you said, there weren't too many weather reporting stations where you were. Um, so we have to kind of think about these things. But part of being a pilot and the challenge of being a pilot is the fact that you have to make a, a series of decisions. And those decisions can be numerous. And also, we have many things that change on the way, just like with your challenges of no weather reporting and also now your next rat is gone. But, uh, but once you got through that weather, everything was, I'm assuming, fairly good. Yeah, everything was fine. Now I just had to come down from eleven thousand to, you know, what three thousand or, or so to really be on the uh, the sun and fun arrival. And, and since I was on an IFR flight plan, uh, and I, anybody who's flown into either Sun and Fun or Oshkosh knows that they won't really work you on an IFR flight plan into those airports during the events unless you have a reservation, which I didn't have. So, so Tampa approach was, you know, trying to trying to prompt me to cancel IFR, and I was just letting them know. I will be happy to cancel IFR as soon as I realistically can. So, you know, but you're just, it's just going to take another 10 miles or so. And, uh, but after that, yeah, it went fine. And so, so there were no problems with the rest of the flight. So when you filed in the air um, and you, you have your tablet and all to do this, and uh, for those of us that, that don't use the, the, I think you use ForeFlight or whatever, it's, um, one of the things you have to do is determine whether you're going to need an alternate. Is that something that the software kind of prompts you that, hey, listen, you need an alternate, or, or are you viewing that and saying, oh, yeah, I'm going to plug in an alternate? I don't know if it will prompt you that you need an alternate. That would be kind of a, a neat feature and I think reasonably easy to program. But um, maybe it doesn't. I haven't discovered it yet. But uh, no, I, I just fortunately that day the the weather was was fine at, at my destination, so I did not need an alternate using the you know the normal one two three type rule. Right, and then also um, when you're going through a line of weather through uh, the decision-making process. And this is something I do. I was wondering, Russ or, or Tom, what, what you think. But I always like to have a, an out, like a if it's a really strong line, my 180-degree out, or maybe it's a 90-degree a out, to and an airport in mind. Uh, you know, obviously, while we're flying, we always have an airport in mind where we might go. Uh, but do, were you kind of thinking along those lines uh, when you were actually passing through this front? So, yeah, I had a bunch of... Uh, alt well, not alternates, but I guess divert locations. You'd say ready to go, and uh, I mean, you know, Tallahassee was was a, you know big airport if I needed you know that that much. But you know, there are a bunch of other airports around that area that that I could have easily done a 180, 
probably flown an instrument approach into uh, at least to get below the overcast and then have no problem. But uh, having those options really uh, takes a lot of the pressure off you in my in my mind. Uh, you don't I mean you don't have to make it through. You could you know you can easily turn around if it gets if it gets past your your comfort level and and land somewhere and uh, let the weather develop or you know clear out or get a hotel for the night. Who knows? So, Tom, I'd like you to kind of interject here as far as what you do as far as the decision-making process going through, especially a line of storms. Uh, and, and in general, uh, do you also, say, teach your students uh, that, hey, this is what you should do is have, have all these diversion airports in mind or, uh, you know, where, where are you going to land? I know we do that VFR, but also IFR. It's, it's a, a, little bit, a little bit different process, right, because we want to make sure we can let down and land. Absolutely. And, and, you know, just finding a place or flying, finding a route that has an out, if you will, um, is important in the flight planning process, you know, um, especially, I mean, the summer months here in Florida, we, you know, I, I know that Russ is real familiar with Oklahoma's uh, weather patterns as I am with them here in Florida of how the sea breezes converge and create lift and create these thunderstorms that happen in the afternoon and, and they can be violent, you know, so, and, and you need to know how to um, circumvent those and, and stay out of them. We just, we steer clear of them. And sometimes the, the, the forces that are making you steer clear of these thunderstorms put you in areas that may be sparse as far as airports are concerned. You know, so it's it's part of that planning process to go through and do that. You know, even that route that uh, Russ took down the coast, like he said, there's there's a there's a piece up there that there's a, not a lot of stations that are reporting for a pretty wide area up there. You know, um, Florida has tons of airports, but here now you got this area up in the corner up there, up, up along the Big Bend area where there's not a lot going on. So, you know, thinking about how to how to get through that and, um, you know, make a make good safe decisions along those ways is, is definitely important. So when you're on the ground, you're making a go, no-go decision, but it seems to me, Russ, that we're making a go, no-go decision all throughout the flight. You know, it's... Uh, in other words, we may not make it there, and maybe in my mind, I think it's good to to be surprised when you make it to your destination. You know, you want to make it there, but if you have to, you divert. And uh, it, I'm I'm assuming you kind of were going through that process through the whole time. Well, of course, and uh, given my you know, given my experience last year where I had to stop short, stay overnight in a hotel, uh, you know, to be honest. That's not something I, I, I don't know that I've ever had to stop short before uh, on, on a flight like this. But now having done it last year, yeah, this year, hey, if I got to do it, no big deal. I'll just come in a day late. So, uh, you know, having that, that experience of, of knowing that, you know, the world is not going to collapse you know, if I don't make my destination, uh, everything's going to be fine, really, really helped me out. And, and I, was, I was pretty relaxed the whole time just because I had those options. And Tom, have you had that experience of having to divert, not making it there uh, on your flight? Uh, maybe it's IFR or IFR-VFR combination? Yeah, um, I, I recently had a flight out of uh, South Florida. I was in North Fort Lauderdale, and there was a line, a front that was pushing through. Um, I was trying to get back to St. Petersburg and waited down there most of the day for this to break and, and thought it had started breaking apart and, and decided to depart. You know, I, I, I saw a fairly clear path that I thought was going to stay clear, and it didn't. You know, I, I got halfway home, and 
um, get it all closed back in again. And it was, um, yeah, very violent. If you're familiar with the colors on a radar, everything was, there was this line of reds and oranges and pinks that I just didn't even want to mess with. <laughs> and was, was talking to a controller and actually made it about halfway home. And I was over a little airport that was in the middle of nowhere. Uh, I was, uh, it's Arcadia. If you've ever been to Arcadia, there's not much in Arcadia, but um, I was 8,000 feet above it and I could see it. And, uh, you know, the controller's asking me, well, what do you want to do? And I'm like, well, I got this airport down below me. I think I'll go there, you know, and, and stayed with him long enough, canceled, put it on the ground, got out of this thing walked into the FBO and, and that's when the front passed over the top of me and, and I could actually share some video of that because I did. I took took some video of the rain pouring down, you know, and thinking, okay, I made absolutely the right decision here. Um, I stayed on the ground, I don't know, three hours waiting for this to pass through and then once it passed, it was clear skies all the way back home again, you know, so definitely a right decision there. So I, I think people that are listening, we, we're so mission-driven as pilots, like we want to get there. We want to make our friends, our family, you know, comfortable, but we also want to make them, we want them, excuse me, to get to their destinations. And and there's times when we just can't do that. I know, you know, I've, gosh, diversions, people ask me how many times, you know, do we need to divert, you know, or have we diverted? It's, gosh, I divert like at least once uh, every year I've done a diversion. And uh, it's just the way it is. If you fly a bunch, you're you're not going to make it to your destination. And I don't care how much you plan, it's weather, it changes. And, and not only that, when you get to your airport, somebody could be disabled on the runway, you're not going to make it anyway. And that's, that's not a weather decision, but that's a decision you have to make as far as diversions. But, you know, we all, we all definitely want to make it home. And, uh, and that's that whole get home-itis. So realize that this is the, the plan, you know, and you, you know, hope for the best and plan for the worst. And I think that's, that's very important in, in the decisions we are making. So, Russ, you, you actually made it in, which was really cool. And, and we had a great show, and you did a great job on the interviews and all that. Um, I was wondering, and, and this is kind of something you know you think about when you have an airplane that is your only transportation home. Like throughout the week, I, I was meaning to ask you this, throughout that whole week, did you think about that weather? Was it in the back of your mind? I mean, what, what's going on inside of you internally throughout the week? Or do, does the tension rise as you get closer to your departure? Well, there was for the return trip home. That was a whole different set of uh, of considerations, and there was, I think, in so I was planning to leave on Sunday uh, from Sun of Fun. You know, get back to work on Monday, and uh, there would have been a, a storm system that had been developing, and uh, it was started in about Oklahoma and Texas on Friday, and was moving its way eastward. Well. It stretched from, you know, roughly Canada to Mexico. So you know, there there wasn't a good way around it. And, and looking at this uh, storm system, you know, this uh, this line coming east across the whole, you know, southern and, you know, and eastern U.S., it quickly became obvious that I was either going to have to leave like Thursday, you know, instead of, um, you know, like, leave like three days earlier or just wait a day later because – if I, I could have left on Sunday, well, no, that would have been, no, Sunday was a rain out, wasn't it? <laughs> I could have left one day early on Saturday, but I would have not gotten to my destination anyway. I would have had to stop somewhere and stay, you know, overnight or at least for several hours, depending on how fast the storm was, were moving. Uh, well, you know, I, I had this uh, great invitation at Casa Valeri 
um, <laughs> to you know st- to stay with you and, and your wife, which was great. So, you know, why would I want to stay at some hotel in uh, in you know Alabama or, or Georgia or somewhere when I could just stay an extra day at Sun and Fun, right? And and so that's what I did. And it turns out Sunday was just you know cloudy and rainy the whole day in Florida anyway. So I stayed the day and uh, and left Monday. Uh, Monday, uh, there were no storms to deal with, but there was a whole a whole other thing which I'll get into here in a minute. But I think the the key here on the way back was that yes, I wanted to get back on Sunday. You know, I I didn't want to have to take another day off from work. Uh, you know, and get back Monday. But realistically, there was just no way to do it. It was a real solid line of storms and. Uh, even if I left early, I might not make it back then anyway. So once I made the decision that, you know, I don't care what the weather looks like on Sunday, I'm just, I'm going to head back on Monday. Once I made that decision, all that the pressure and such that you were talking about, that all just went away because I, I was at Sun and Fun. I was in Florida. I was with with Carl. You know? Watching airplanes. Hey. <laughs> yeah, watching airplanes. This is not bad, right? So, uh you know, so I just I worked that out with my boss, and we got it all handled. But uh, yeah, there was no pressure then at that point. So just that one day delay made a huge difference in in my attitude and enjoyment. I wasn't worrying about anything, and and it, it it was great. So if you have that kind of situation where you can just wait a day and go a day later, man, sometimes your weather concerns just evaporate. Yeah. And I, I like what you said, too. You brought up the point of your boss. I mean, a lot of us feel pressure from work that we have to get back to work, et cetera. Um, and one of the things that you have to also measure is the, the plane, say you're in a partnership, et cetera. Uh, so it's you know really important you know to say, hey, listen, guys, I can't make it. Or maybe you might have to take alternative means, possibly even an airline. Of course, you don't want to do that, but... Uh, and then you'd have to retrieve the airplane, but every so often that happens, and uh, and that's pretty. That's a really tough decision uh, as far as actually getting out and leaving at that point. And there's other things too. Is that if you looked at when you were leaving, I was wondering if you felt this because I kind of felt it too. Is people were like just getting out in droves, um, and there was. It seemed like some people were like, well, you know, maybe I'll go too, and you don't know where those people are going. If you were going east, uh, away from this front that was coming from the west, uh, yeah, then you you were good to go and keep going in that direction. But if you were going to go west, there's no way you would have been able to get through that line. So I think sometimes we get pressured a little bit and we think, hey, other people are leaving, but we don't know where, you know, where you're, you know, going to or where they're going to. It's it, just think about yourself. Don't think about the other people. That's for sure. Uh, you had some other decision making processes going on in your head. And I remember uh, right before you left, you pulled out, you know, your your four flight and you were going over uh, some planning. So tell us a little bit about that process. Uh, and, and as far as getting back to Oklahoma, because it, it was a bit of a trip. Yeah, it was a bit of a trip. Uh, the, the one thing is the, the, the weather was to be clear the whole way back. I, I don't know if I saw a cloud for whatever it is, a thousand miles uh, on the way back. So that was good, right? <laughs> but but I almost could have gotten back faster driving, almost, um, because the, the the headwind the entire way, I mean, it, it, it was amazing. I mean, and the the wind gradient, I'll, I'll get to in just a minute. I mean, you, you, we, we take off, uh, me and, and there were a couple other uh, friends of mine had come in different airplanes and, and, you know, we take off from Lakeland and, you know, we, 
we're all, you know, we switch to a common frequency and you can hear everybody going west, you know, well, I guess northwest <laughs> from Lakeland is asking everybody else about what is the wind at whatever altitude you're at, you know, because it was amazing. The, um, at, at 2,500 feet, the wind was about 25 knots of, uh, you know, straight from the northwest, you know, right where, of course, we all wanted to go. And at 4,500 feet, it was 50 knots. Now, that's a lot of wind at those altitudes, right? And that's a really steep gradient, too. And then, oh, you could go up higher. You could go up to uh, 6,500 or so when you had more than 50 knots of headwind. And reportedly, it was very smooth up there um, because it certainly was not smooth at the lower altitudes. With that, you can imagine that kind of a wind gradient, you know, 25 to 50 knots and about 2,000 feet. Um, So you had a choice, right? You could uh, you could stay low and get bumped around for the whole trip, or you could go high and uh, not get bumped around but be a whole lot slower. You know, so it was it was what slow versus more slow or something. <laughs> yeah, it was it was pretty bad. But I, I chose the getting bumped around and going a little bit faster. Um, so it was exhausting flight. But one of the effects of that is that I couldn't make my fuel stop. You know, my fuel stop of Meridian, Mississippi. You know, halfway. I couldn't make it. And, you know, I, I knew before I took off that I probably was not going to make it. But then once I got into this, you know, 25, 30, 35 knot headwind, I, I, I knew for sure I wasn't going to make it. So, well, fortunately, you know, we have all this technology, right? I was able to find another another fuel stop with, uh, you know, the, the cheapest gas nearby that was a lot closer to me. I stopped there, probably still had two hours of fuel left, but I wanted to, to get some gas. I get there. I pull up. There's a plane uh, parked in front of the uh, the fuel pump with with no pilot in sight. And of course, I'm th- at first I'm thinking, well, you know, he just went in to go to the restroom. No, he was inside trying to work with the uh, the airport manager or something because the pump wasn't working. Oh no! <laughs> and, it, and it still wasn't working. And he'd been there a little while. And well, fortunately, I hadn't waited till I was almost out of gas to stop. Right. So I had a couple hours of fuel left. I just went over to the next airport, then got gas there, and then had to make another fuel stop before I got home. So I had, um, actually I had a total of four stops, one with the, you know, broken pump. But, um, so it made for a very, very long flight and, uh, you know, low bumpy, uh, you know, it was, it was nine hours of flying to get back about seven hours out, which is kind of normal, but nine hours to get back, getting bumped around the whole time. And one thing that I, I noticed, but it didn't really occur to me, I think until after I, I got back home, was that that bumping around was really, really exhausting. And what's more, since I was since I knew it was going to take a long time, I was a little bit of a hurry. All my landings were awful. I mean, <laughs> you know, I mean, you know, I had those four landings, right? And I think they were all awful. You don't have to admit that, and by the way. <laughs> I, I, it's, well, nobody was there, so, you know, whatever. I, I can confess. But, but, but I, the reason they were awful was was pretty straightforward i think after i thought about it for a minute is because you know i was in a little bit of a hurry not any enforced hurry it was just because i didn't want to get i wanted to get back home right so was there a little bit of that get home itis but the weather was clear so there wasn't wasn't too bad but um i was rushing my pattern a little bit you know i'd come in and you know i want to get on the ground i want to get fuel want to get going so i was rushing the pattern i wasn't really doing a good job of you know flying how i teach to be honest you know i wasn't doing a good job of you know, getting those speeds set, you know, downwind base final. I was just coming in and trying to get to the runway fast and, and, uh, and, and pull off a good landing anyway. 
Well, that's one thing to do when you're rested and you haven't been getting bumped around for nine hours, but it's another thing when you're a little bit tired and, uh, you know, worn out, exhausted, maybe potentially even a little bit nauseous after all the bumping. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, so some of the landings were not, not fantastic. Uh, but, but that, so the, I remember the last one I did, you know, come back home, I thought, okay, this one I'm going to do right because the other ones have all stunk. And it was better, but it still wasn't real great. But take the time, especially when you're tired like that, especially when you're tired, because then you need to put more thought into it, and and make sure you're not missing things that are normally part of your routine, just as a result of a well, in my case, a long flight. So, did do you think because of that bumping around too that as you got further and further, uh, possibly fatigue was starting to set in and maybe uh, just influence your decision making process in any way? Well, I was I was definitely fatigued. I'll say that. <laughs> um, I, I don't know if it well it didn't affect my you know my more strategic decisions of where to stop and that kind of thing, but it definitely affected my uh, you know, I, I don't know motor skills or, or something. I guess you'd say or or you know like I said, choosing to kind of hurry the pattern up when I probably knew I shouldn't have. I probably should have flown you know, normal speeds and st- nice stabilized approach and all, but. Uh, but it affected those type of decisions, I think. And that's part of the process, too, is trying, if you're on your route and you're saying to yourself, well, maybe I should stop, not because of the weather, uh, but also, you know, the weather causes, the weather being the winds have caused me to delay. Maybe I should stop and get a hotel room or take a nap, sit in the crew room, maybe at an airport, that type of thing. And that's a tough decision to make also. I mean, that that is, I've really rarely had to say do that, but... It's quite disappointing, uh, especially if there's people relying on you to get somewhere, saying, hey, listen, I, I need to stop. So, um, you know, that, that's one of the things that's hard to also recognize is, am I fatigued? Uh, and, you know, there are some, you know, things that you can look at, you know, as far as, uh, you know, things you can do, too, within yourself as far as fatigue and the, and the warning signs. And I'm not really going to get into much of it there, but just the fact that you should be aware of that is, is really, really important. But with you, Russ, that that must have really been a, a tough, tough flight. Uh, one of the things you mentioned, though, that I think is interesting, and I, I think maybe you could explain a little bit. You talked about this gradient, and you were talking about what, it was about thirty or twenty some odd knots, and then it went up to fifty. And but in that area in between, because of that gradient, um, you know, it was bumpy, and then it was smooth above. And uh, that also, I'm assuming, is something that you looked at when you were doing your planning process. Well, absolutely, and of course, you have the uh, the turbulence air mets are a good uh, indicator of this. And yes, the entire you know eastern U.S. was covered with one gigantic uh, turbulence air met from the surface to twelve thousand feet or something like that. But but one one thing you look at is if you have a wind speed of twenty five knots and then two thousand feet higher, the wind speed is fifty knots. Even if it's in the same direction, you think that's that's a lot faster air moving over relatively slower air. So there's going to be a lot of, of turbulence in there, whereas the air you know, kind of eddies and, and such. And uh, just that type of a gradient is is unusual. And I mean, I remember one time I was at 2,500 feet and then probably had a 20-knot headwind. And I decided, let me go see what is it, 3,000 feet. You know, so I went up 500 feet. And the headwind was five more knots, you know, in just 500 feet. And it was, this is crazy. <laughs> but... 
uh, out here in Oklahoma and a lot of the, the, the central U.S., we have days where, you know, the wind's 30 knots, but it's 30 knots at, at you know, a lot of altitudes, and it can actually be very smooth um, up above a couple thousand feet above the ground with 30 knots of wind. It's just because there is no gradient. It's just all 30 knots, so it's smooth. Uh, I get that quite often. But in this situation where the, the wind was changing about five knots every 500 feet, that's that will usually result in some pretty good turbulence. And, and it was it was not dangerous turbulence, but it was very tiring and annoying, I think, would be a good way to word it. So, you know, the gradients, et cetera, it's something we should look at. Obviously, the air mets you were looking at. Uh, you had, you know, ADSB also. You had all this next rad weather. Uh, everything within the cockpit, which is terrific, is having you know all those tools. Uh, sometimes the the tools are best that you hear uh, that are given to you from other pilots and pyreps. Is what I'm talking about, uh, and there that's very very important because sometimes weather does fool you, and you look at some of these gradients and say, oh my gosh, that's going to be bumpy, and then sometimes it's not. So it's like, gosh, you know, it's good to get get those pyreps, but in general, I think what what you're talking about is yeah, you need to look at those, and I think people are listening right now uh maybe they haven't brought that into their considerations as far as doing a cross-country flight and something you really do need to look at um, but your your flight looking at the the altitudes and and all was was part of that whole decision making process but that's just one little piece of it it's the equipment you're flying uh and one of the really important things to note is if we look at you know Mike Harris, you know, he was here, uh, he was in a tri-pacer, obviously he couldn't go IFR, and his decision-making process was a little bit different as far as, you know, where he was going to go, where he, when he was going to stop, that type of thing. So when you're flying VFR and you don't have the ability to go IFR, then you have a different set of circumstances, and you don't want to really push yourself. I know there's people that took off and, you know, you can fly over the weather, et cetera, and it's like, nah, that's probably not the best thing in the world to do, especially you know on some of those longer trips so be conservative i guess is what i'm trying to say i think that's that's really important i'm sure russ you you relate that to your students also yeah i absolutely agree with you conservative is the key so uh, you know tom i know we we didn't talk a, a lot about that as far as the the weather flying in and out i know you had to go through some weather and you you bring up a good point uh as far as if you can't get there by plane there's there's other options right tom Oh, absolutely. And, you know, I mean, that's one of the things we start learning is being a pilot in, in general aviation and single engine stuff. You know, I mean, if, if you really need to get there that bad, I tell people maybe you should rent a car. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, because, I mean, we, we really need to think about what we're doing. And because the weather is such a factor, um, you know, and that there's other things that could happen. You mentioned, you know, you may get to your destination and, and there's been an incident there and the runway's closed. Now you have to go somewhere else, you know, and if it's that important that you're at a place you know, we really need to consider that and, and think about what you're doing. And, and that's also part of my decision process. You know, how important is this really, you know, and, and staying away from that, that, uh, you call to get home. I just, I call it get there. I just, either way, you know, it's a, it's a pilot killer and you, we want to just avoid it at all costs. And you know, I, I mentioned too, that, uh, you might want to take the airlines, but the weather that affects us affects the airlines too. And on that specific day where, um, you know, he was flying or Russ was flying into Sun and Fun, we saw a lot of diversions at the airline level. 
people weren't making it in. So, uh, you know, the, these weather patterns affect everybody. So, yeah, maybe driving maybe driving is uh, even a, a bad option, too, just sitting there and waiting it out. So just remember, you know, even though you think you can take the airlines, it, it may not happen. As a matter of fact, uh, I know on that day that Russ came in, we had, I think it was five or six diversions at work. Just just phenomenal, that, that strong line of uh, storms that came through there. But, uh, but hey, this, this has been actually an awesome discussion on the weather and on, on decision-making processes as far as what we need to do. And there's lots of different tools out there. I know FAAsafety.gov has some real good courses. AOPA has some good stuff out there. But I'd love to you know, hear from the you folks. You know, tell us what you think as far as your decision-making processes. And, and maybe t- you know, write in with some stories and say, hey, listen, this is something that happened to me. And, and in our discussion here, there's many more things, obviously, that go into that process. But with all that said, remember, we're pilots. And that's what we do is we make decisions all the time. And it's just basically flying is just a, a, a series of those decisions. So, uh, so Russ, uh, just in general, in summary, um, I would say, was this? Would you call this a successful trip? <laughs> well, sure. <laughs> <laughs> of course, it was a successful trip, but but it, yeah, just you know, this. If you're going to fly, you know, halfway across the U.S. or all the way across the U.S. or, or whatever, you're going to have some types of weather concerns, whether it's you know, clouds or storms or wind, turbulence, whatever. You're going to have these considerations as you you know, fly longer distances. It's just the nature of, of weather and the nature of flying. You know, all, what you have to do, though, is just have a plan with how you're going to deal with it. And, and hopefully, you know, as you build up experience with uh, different types of weather, then and you'll be able to develop a good plan. Is there any advice that you give to your students in general as far as uh, weather making decisions, or is that basically the summary? I think I just summarized <laughs> it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah, consider all your options and uh, you always have an out, I think is probably a good uh, a good. No, take away. And you have a lot of experience flying in weather and, and using an aircraft uh, that has a lot of utility at 182. And you really are someone, you know, I admire you for a lot of the weather you go through. I mean, it, it it's funny because I've, I've watched you go through some of these fronts and said, oh, man, I don't know if I'd even do that in a jet that I fly. But, uh, but you know, navigating through there is a lot of it has to do with experience as far as looking at the weather uh, and having your, your out is really important. Tom, I was wondering... Well, okay. I don't know, Carl. You made me sound like some kind of a uh, hurricane hunter uh, there. No, a moment ago. And, uh, no, no, it's nothing <laughs> like that. You, know, you, 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 know, you, you pay att- careful attention and you make a, a reasonable plan uh, based on what you yeah, know. Yeah, and, and understood. And, and that's a, an important point for sure, Russ. Uh, Tom, I know uh, you might have some just quick advice for people that are, are looking at whether or not to go. And, and just in some general advice that you would give to your students or people listening right now. Um, yeah, I mean, we covered most of it, and and you know, Russ's uh, was was what Russ just stated was was good as well. I mean, you you just think your way through this thing and trying to make a good decision and not make not make it so important that you're willing to look past some things. You know, 
Um, you know, I, I teach my students, you know, uh, about their personal minimums, you know, and I put it into a statement, you know, I will not go flying if the clouds are lower than blank, if the visibility is less than blank, if the wind is greater than blank, if the freezing level is lower than blank, you know, and that, that holds true both in the VFR world and the IFR world. And, and to, to really seriously look at those things, you know, um, on top of the I'm safe and the PAVE checklist and, you know, everything else that we learn about staying safe in the sky, but, you know, really looking at it and making a good decision and, and are you fit to do this thing and can you get from point A to point B safely and um, with you and your passengers and, and that's what it's all about. And that's something you do every day as a pilot and I think that's really important uh, what Russ and Tom brought up. You know, at work we have all these people that are helping us out with weather decisions, etc. We have dispatchers and stuff like that at the airline. But uh, really what's important is is that a immediate and that dynamic decision that you're making as far as the weather is concerned and always, always have an out. And I love the fact that, that the two of you did say that and that's really, really important. Well, gosh, this has been a, a great discussion on the weather and whether or not you should go because there are times when you shouldn't go based on the equipment you're flying uh, and the weather uh, and also the fact that you may be fatigued or the fact that you know there's there's possible pricing situations maybe you'll wait for that you know headwind to die down maybe a day later to go because now you're going to cut off a couple of uh, hours from your flight and of course you can always uh, like in, in Russ's case, hang out at, at Casa Valeri for, and, and which he'll probably do next year, won't you, Russ? Well, if I've got the invitation yet, yeah, I think I'll be there again. <laughs> always, always. And by the way, you know, we uh, just before we close out and do our picks of the week, a couple things. Uh, as far as the actual flying, and we talked a lot about the weather, one of the things that uh, the organization did as a whole at Sun and Fun is made some decisions about the weather. One of the things in, was in the beginning, remember, they had an air show. They had to cancel the air show. And, of course, we had to come up with a lot of content uh, to talk for a few hours over that air show. But at the end, they made a very you know, conservative decision and said, hey, listen, you know, we're going to cancel the air show at the end uh, so everybody can kind of go home. One of the interesting things of that, just as an aside, is some of those air show performers were still here. And what was cool is that... I actually got to hang out and watch some of that uh, the after show air show and people doing aerobatics and stuff like that for days afterwards. It was it was a lot of fun, you know, watching that happen. Uh, but that was really really cool. Well, gosh, guys, you know, we talked a lot about the weather and uh, and I think this was t- this was terrific and a great discussion. And it shows, you know, from all these different perspectives how we do go through that. And it's really it becomes an art as far as making those decisions to go or not to go. And, uh, you know, it's always important to keep reviewing how you go through that decision. And it's important to listen to what we talked about and also go through other scenarios. And that's why it's great to, I know we look at accident statistics, but uh, I like the fact that, you know, we are talking here and there was no accident and we talked about scenarios, which is terrific. So uh, I'd love to hear your scenarios too from the listeners. And of course, read, you know, you can write in at you know, stuckmikeavcast at gmail.com. I've recently been involved in doing a lot of career coaching, obviously, with my other podcast. And 
it just lately I've been doing a lot of terminations and uh, helping people through the termination process and how to get back on their feet and get another job. And uh, and then I had this discussion about transitioning for, from certain types of aircraft to others. And someone said, you know, we really don't train our pilots properly. And then I picked up a magazine, an aviation magazine. And I read a statement from the editor that said, quote unquote, flight training is great for teaching skills, but it's terrible for making pilots. And uh, I was like, you know, this started this process in my head. And I, I got a little angry, actually, at that statement. And then I thought about it and started asking others and thought maybe what he said was correct. Uh, so today I want to discuss, you know, how we can better prepare ourselves for a real world flying while also accepting the fact that you're pilot certificate is truly a license to learn because remember a good pilot is always learning let's do the pre-flight but before we dive into this discussion a quick word from our sponsor our sponsor of course is aviationcareerspodcast.com with scholarships career coaching and interview preparation go to aviationcareerspodcast.com listen to the free podcast and also get there's quite a few free videos out there to help you move forward in your career uh, oh, and one more news and announcement. Uh, the, you know the the NAL report that comes out every year, and I forget the month it comes out, but I do know one thing that did come out, which I like because it's a summary, is the General Aviation Accident Scorecard. If someone knows when the uh, actual one comes up, uh, you can let me know. I'm trying to quickly read through it. But anyway, the 2016-17 General Aviation accident scorecard came out. That's easy for me to say, but what's really cool about the scorecard is that we're seeing a trend downward in fatal accidents, even though we're seeing a trend upward in the number of hours in the aircraft. And I think uh, we can attribute some of that, uh, not just to statistical anomalies, but, uh, you know, in a small pool, we can't really, eh, we can kind of say, yeah, this is statistically incorrect, but in a large pool, like we're talking about in general aviation, we know that these trends have been going in the right direction direction for years and uh, really excited about that. So I think, though, um, one of the things that is interesting is with that discussion in the, the NAL report, and d- check that out, it's really cool. It talks about all different types of general aviation accidents and helicopters and commercial GA and non-commercial GA doing a much better job, of course, uh, with accidents, et cetera, and, and uh, fatalities, even with more flight hours. But some of the insurance rates uh, have been going up. And I guess uh, one of the reasons is uh, due to uh, some of the costs of aircraft going up. And I, I don't you know, Victoria, I guess we have somebody who knows insurance. Have you seen a, a bit of an uptick like I've been reading about at some other and talking to other insurance agents about? Is that true in the general aviation world? It is. Um, insurance rates have been at an all-time low for the past few years, especially due to the competition of new insurance carriers in the market. And now things are starting to harden. And I'm seeing a lot of my renewals have a 5 to 15% increase this year. Interesting. Interesting. And, um, and is some of that attributed to the increased cost of the aircraft, I'm assuming, the whole? Uh, no, it's, um, you know, a lot of the underwriters are telling us, saying, hey, this aircraft we haven't had a good year with. It's it's uh, claims, actually. Interesting. Um, so I don't know if maybe they're paying out more because of higher haul values. Um, but, uh, you know, these insurance companies, I think because of the low premium compared to the losses now, maybe losses aren't, there's not more losses, but... 
the premium that you've been paying is so low that it's not covering all the losses they're having. So for a while, it was just like retractable gear aircraft. And then they're like throwing some tail wheels in there with ground loops. And now it's like all across the board, um, we're seeing slight increases. Interesting. Um, most policies, yeah. It's also interesting, and if you look at dig into the, some of the stats, there is a little bit of an uptick in in certain accident rates in in general aviation, but not fatalities. Maybe that's attributing it to it also. But uh, you know, I, I I don't dig down into the insurance and the underwriting and all, but uh, I do know one thing. In looking at airplanes, there's certain aircraft that are getting more expensive. Uh, with that said, you're also looking at your insurance becoming a little bit more expensive. That's for sure. But uh, but with all that said it's still, I feel, uh, pretty good uh, where we're at now because if you look at over the, we've had some lows for so long in the insurance industry and it's just starting to uptick now, whereas other things in life have already started on an upward trend. Uh, so anyway, I, I really think that's kind of an interesting report. Definitely go out and check it out. The Null report is something that uh, is placed together uh, through, you know, donations through the AOPA Foundation, and they've been doing this for years. But the GA Accident Scorecard is a lot of fun to look at for, as a, yeah, I guess, those of us that are into statistics and uh, really need to see their charts and, and how things have gone up and down. And, and the, the overall trend is what I look to look at, and it really is is trending in, in a good direction, that's for sure, which is what we appreciate. There's a link on our show notes to actual to that report, so if you want to check that out, go to the show notes, and we'll link to that, the AOPA null report and accident scorecard now entering cruise flight so anyway let's move on to our cruise flight and this is a topic that is uh, can be very you know subjective uh we when i first discussed this at some of the flight schools you know i'm involved in collegiate aviation and interestingly i i actually i fell to the floor when i found out the success rate in certain college programs with people and their initial training, meaning their private pilot certificates. And I found out that it is much lower than I thought. I thought in a collegiate environment, you would see incredibly high rates, uh, over 50% in the 60s to 80s. And I was proven wrong today and did a, a little bit of a phone calls and all. And I said, wow. Uh, locally, looking at about 40% success rate, meaning 40% actually complete the ratings. And I've uh, overall nationwide statistics are 20%. And some of the certified institutions out there, much larger schools, are even driven lower, looking at uh, below 20, even 17%. And I was absolutely shocked at that, uh, saying to myself, well, gosh, you know, why is that? Is it because of the fact are we are we just training pilots and just uh, simply uh, training skills, or are we actually training them to become aviators or pilots or uh, somebody who's going to be out there using their skills in the environment in a safe manner? So that's where we want to go with our discussion. Are we truly are we training pilots? Are we making aviators? Are we creating those aviators? Or are we just training people to complete their certificate? And uh, I think there's. There's two ways to look at this. It's from us as student pilots and also uh, us as instructors and helping other people move forward. So I'd like to start that discussion uh, with some of the, let's move back to 
our remembrance of when we started our private pilot certificate, because a lot of it starts there. And one of the things that I think I found when I did mine, and I like to hear uh, from the other co-hosts, is I back when I started, we didn't have like this pre-solo written exam thing and all that. We just went ahead and said, okay, you're ready to go, jump in the plane and, and solo you. And we were kind of pushed towards soloing because there was a little bit of pressure from our peers that you had to solo in six or seven or eight hours. And that's that's truly changed. But I really wasn't I don't think I was, well, no, I know, looking back, I wasn't prepared for everything uh, and for a lot of different scenarios that might pop up. So looking back at that, and Rick, I'd like to hear your thoughts on this as far as your introduction to aviation, getting your private pilot certificate, there was, there's two senses, you know, you wanted to get it done, but you also wanted to fly safe now and also become a good aviator. Did you feel in your training that that you were brought to that pace of let's get it done? Or were you at a pace of, hey, I just want to learn this and learn it well? I think, you know, I was I was fine with taking my time. You know, I wasn't in a hurry because I wasn't planning to do anything other than, you know, recreationally with it. You know, it was just a part of it was process for me that that I enjoyed. So learning was the almost the goal rather than getting getting to the end you know but that, but it but as and as a result I also traveled at the time for my job so I wasn't able to move as regularly through it you know the idea that being that when a couple of weeks go between flights you you fall back a bit and I, that was sort of my story it took longer than it might have otherwise to to solo you know I'd, I'd find my landings and then I'd lose my landings you know that they, they wouldn't be as smooth and so but it took time. There was no pressure. Although I think at some point the guys that were teaching me, you know, were like, you know, you can, you could do this. It had been long enough. I don't remember what the timeline was, but the time I did, I do remember feeling like it had gotten to be a long time that I, cause I hadn't soloed yet. And that seemed dragged out, but it didn't, it didn't really during the process seem too long. I didn't think I was ready, you know, and that's probably true. You never do until your CFI kind of says, yeah, I think you're ready. Um, so uh, yeah, there there wasn't pressure to to get it done. It was, and I do think the, the the bigger issue of yes, I was learning specifics about how to fly a certain plane, um, uh, and but generally I was also learning um, what it mean, what the system is, you know, what how all the parts work together, which is a big part of you know aviating. I think is is um, you can learn to pilot a plane, but you have to you know know what part of the system you are at any one point, sort of situational awareness and all that. And that was always part of it too. You know, it was bigger picture stuff. Um, what does it feel like to be in this kind of maneuver or whatever, so that if you're doing it in a different plane, some of that feeling is the same, that kind of thing. So I think the people who taught me did a good job of both getting me task oriented with regard to the plane I was in, but also thinking bigger, you know, bigger picture. I think that's a, it sounds like it because I love what you just said about the situational awareness is, uh, and not just being task oriented. I think too, looking back, um, we find that if uh, an instructor is really good, we will be asked questions such as, you know, what do you think you're going to do with your rating? Uh, are you going to fly to a certain island, etc.? And do you remember uh, them actually asking you those questions? You know, why do you want to get your pilot certificate, Rick? Um, yeah, probably at the very beginning when I first kind of walked in the door, you know, why are you interested in doing this? And, um, you know, 
Oh, I don't remember exactly what I said, but I, I imagine it because it certainly wasn't about a career because it wasn't my goal. Um, but it was that I really enjoyed the experience, you know, just even just flying, being in the air. And that I'd done a little bit of flying before when I was younger. Uh, my dad had done a bunch. And so I had some sense of that. And I also, you know, had had room and budget and uh, wanted to learn something new and had been putting it off. So it was a whole lot of things. But but they didn't really talk much about what are you going to do with this. I do remember at one point, especially after I I got my ticket, the the several CFIs were in the process. Although I didn't get turned over a lot, there was really two main ones, and um, the second the one who got me through the final um, sort of was surprised. He came like he he went off or he got a job or did something different and came back and saw me still flying. And I remember his comment was, "Hey, good, you know, you're still flying," because I think. Generally, they had seen enough people who do it and then walk away, you know. And so at the time, I hadn't walked walked too far away, and uh, that was something he said. Which, but they never really said, you know, what are you doing with this? What do you plan to do, or where are you going to go? I mean, it was all, it was all thought to be, uh, what you know, whatever I wanted to make of it. Right. So it wasn't it wasn't career or even mission focused. Good. Um, yeah. Yeah, just for fun. I mean, that's uh, I, I actually the guy asked me when I first got there. I was like, "Yeah, I, someone said you can actually fly these things." And I was like, "Me? You know, of all people, I didn't think I could." And uh, and lo and behold, yeah, I could do that. That that's quite interesting. It's kind of it, it's interesting also that we come to it with an idea. Like maybe the actual training itself is something that will take us to another place in our own life and put another perspective on life. And maybe it really isn't so much the end goal, but the process of learning something new, whether it's flying or some other type of sport. I mean, for some people, I'm sure it's learn and then apply it either in their life because they say they have a private plane and they have their own business and they need to fly from Boston to Poughkeepsie or something, you know, and there's a reason and it, and, and you do it and then you do it. And some people do it because they want to fly commercially or whatever. And others maybe do it. And my was probably more one of these because the, the end result was kind of exciting to, to believe that I could accomplish it. And the accomplishing of that, of that goal was something that I felt was a fun challenge. And, um, and that's probably more where I, you know, where I came down on it um, as a, yeah, the learning process. And, um, you know, it's like, you know, somebody, some people run marathons because they want to keep running marathons. And some people run marathons to see if they can do it. And then they, they don't run another one. But, but they, they, they conquered that. And that's, that was their goal. So, um, but, but the big question about pilot versus aviator, I don't know how we define those things. And that's really the trick of this question, isn't it? Um, What's you know what are we talking about? And if pilot is specifically knowing how to push the buttons and the levers and watch things, uh, you know, on a particular plane or on a set of planes, versus um, aviation, which is a bigger issue, a bigger thing, and there are you know sort of common uh, common approaches to uh, all sorts of things you do, no matter what the plane. You know that might be one way to define the difference, and I think you do end up learning specifics. But if if you're being taught correctly, you probably are also asked to apply those more generally to understand what that plane over there, even though you don't you don't fly it, the one that's on the crossing runway taking off before you can go. What are they doing? You know, you you, you know what I mean. So sure. for me, it was always observing all the stuff around me that wasn't necessarily what I was doing. But it interacted, and I could see it, and I knew it. There was commonality. You know, I love watching the shuttle glider simulator landing stuff. You know, you can get simulators to to land the shuttle, 
And, you know, it's just, it's a big glider. It's a really big, heavy glider, but there's so much that that's the same as what, you know, as an engine out right. <laughs> in, your, in a little Cessna or something. I mean, uh, so, so I don't know. I don't know if I'm, I'm rambling a bit, except I, I think if we define, like, I, I guess I wonder what, what you didn't agree with when you heard that statement. Right, right. And that, so let's define that, you know, I think really specifically speak towards his actual comment. Are we just teaching skills as a opposed to to making pilots and I think what his he was alluding to the fact are we are we are learning those rote skills are we doing like Rick was doing is sitting out there and trying to take the knowledge that we have in those basics that we have mastered and apply it to other scenarios and I think that's that's I think more towards it in other words we can teach someone how to do a, a stall uh, a B and C but are we really teaching them why how and and making that whole part of their world as to what's going to happen right. in the world so the the comment is is sort of more a subtle indictment of types of teaching scenarios versus the idea that we that ever that in general we don't do it because my guess is you guys you know you all who who teach that you know you you do that you do the you do the bigger thing you do the aviation part as a part of it because you know that that matters and and maybe the comment was more about when we're playing it fast, just trying to get our hours, you know, mm-hmm. if the CFI wants to get their hours to get to the airline and, and just wants is task oriented, you know, like teaching to pass a test. Yeah, that's a problem. And it's not a good way to go. And that may be what he meant. Yeah, I think, I think so. That's- Assuming it was a he, I, I didn't hear the name, but I, I just yeah, I didn't, I didn't mention the that. name. I didn't want to. That's fine. Yeah, so okay, I'll just he say or he she. or she. Yeah. yeah, I want to be clear. Okay, <laughs> sorry. Go ahead, Victoria. Uh, I think that's why Carl. You know, at first you said you know you were almost a bit offended or right. upset at hearing this phrase because you are a flight instructor who enjoys flight instructing and you really, um, it's your passion. It's something you care about and you care about me making future aviators where, um, there are pilots who are just seeing the CFI as their ticket to the airlines. They're just building hours. And, um, when I think about what kind of flight instructor I want to be, I want to be the passionate one who is teaching people how to think like a pilot, not how just a pilot. And when you introduced this topic earlier, I was thinking my private and most of my instrument, I just learned the motions. I never learned how to think like a pilot. So I was never asked abstract questions like, if this happened in this certain situation, how would you handle it? You know, I mostly recited off, you know, a checklist for engine out. Um, no one ever asked me, oh, why do you think the clouds are this way? And what do you think the weather is doing up there? And, you know, what do you think it'll be in 20 more minutes if it continues this pattern? And is it safe to fly? I was never taught to use all that knowledge that I have learned and to put that into everyday use. I learned checklists. I learned maneuvers, but I didn't learn how to think. And I think that's could be what the author was getting at. Are we thinking like pilots? Or are we just using our pilot checklists? Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, and I think you're correct, and I think we're using those checklists in uh, in a greater sense too. I think in some of the articles is that you know we're just trying to get from point A to point B in our training and get it done as quickly and as cheaply as possible. I hear that a lot of times, and and sometimes we wind up having that happen. It may not even be the instructor's fault. Looking at ourselves as students, and I've been you know uh, done this before, is where I said, hey, listen, I need to get this done, uh, and I want to get it done in the minimum number of hours possible i've gotten ratings where i didn't feel i really got much training uh, where i was just going through the checklist taught how to do the maneuver and taught how to do the maneuver so i could pass a check ride with that specific check airman and that's all i did i was like well gosh i don't feel like i i really got my rating and i'm ready for this which brings up a, a really good point i think we reckon also victoria you talked about it and we probably should put a definition on it is where we really taught scenario-based type training where we had a situation put in place and that's what the fa wants us to start doing to teach us to truly be pilots that make decisions i think scenario-based training is a is a good way, a good start towards that, in that direction, uh, and, and starting to become more, not just learning a skill, but becoming an aviator and a pilot. I think that's, that's quite important. You know, Tom, I don't think we heard from you as far as looking back towards uh, your private and in your experience there, and then I'd love to start looking at it, not from the, the viewpoint of us as students, but then getting back into it as instructors. So, Tom, did you did you feel like in your training that you were just like Victoria was talking about, maybe just kind of were put through the paces and get your rating done? Or did you really feel like you were an aviator when you came out? Yeah, I, I was listening to conversation and just, you know, kind of brought me back to that whole period. And, you know, it, it's funny. The thing that kept re- resounding in my head is that, you know, when when I was going for just becoming a pilot, just working on my private you know, um, the thing that keeps happening or, or the, the thought that kept happening over and over in my mind was that, you know, I just didn't know what I didn't know. I didn't know what the right questions were. I didn't know what the what it was that I was pointing towards. You know, I mean, all I had is what my instructor provided to me. Um, I had other information. I was doing uh, ground schools. I was I was keeping my head in the game. It took me a long time to get my private. Um, it wasn't anything that I did that I accomplished very quickly. But I was um, so... Um, taken by the whole aviation theory, if you will, that, you know, um, I did what I could to keep my head in the game in between lessons. You know, at the time, I really couldn't afford to fly. So I was, uh, I, I had quit a couple of vices. Um, I quit smoking cigarettes and I quit playing golf. And that's what funded my uh, private pilot. I would save my money. Um, once I got $250, $300 saved up, that was enough for a flight lesson. I was down at the airport and I would take another lesson. And in between, I was using a flight simulator to kind of keep my head in the game. And I was working on my ground school and just trying to get that, that information. Um, did it become a place where I was just doing the motions to make um, maneuvers? Um, I would say yes on some level. However, you know, I was the type that I wanted to delve deeper. Why am I doing this? Why? What is the purpose of this? And and I got that information. I happen to have a really really good instructor who was willing to answer those questions for me, you know. And and that's what's built me into the instructor that I am today. And we'll get into that conversation next. But at the end of the day, you know, as I learned how to fly, and the more that I became involved in the the national airspace system and 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 learning things, you know, I. 
that's when I started finding out the things that I just didn't know to ask. There were, there was things out there that I just didn't know what I didn't know and I didn't know how to ask them. So I was relying solely upon my instructor to give me that information. And did he provide it all? Maybe not, but you know, it, it was good enough to, to keep me moving forward. And you know what? Um, I think now I'm seeing the FAA as, um, trying to uh, understand what it is that we're talking about and they're moving towards that end we're seeing more and more about this scenario-based training and scenario-based questioning um students are going to uh, check rides now and, and that's what they're doing they're asking them questions and they're they're not just pointing to something on a chart and say explain what this is to me instead they're giving them a scenario and then relying upon the student to go in and and um show them their knowledge of the regulations and their knowledge of their their um, maneuvers and, and how it applies to what that question is in that situation and how they can think their way through it and perform um, in an adequate manner as an aviator. And and like I said, that's what I said. When I first started this, I just didn't know what I didn't know and, and didn't know to answer the questions. I look back on it now and thought, had I known that this is what I was going for, I would have asked better questions then. But in looking back, I think, and I don't want to say that it's bad to have some mo rote memorization and just have certain skills in place because you need those. Uh, I think what we're trying to say is that we have to go beyond that. And uh, one of the things that I, I don't want people to think that are listening is that, well, you have to start somewhere. And, and that's true. And, you know, you start getting that situational awareness and then you can start with the scenarios. Uh, but some, I think what we're trying to say is sometimes we don't, progress past that just the specific skills and I'll I'll just give one example before we kind of move into the the flight training side of it is the fact that I've gone to those schools where it was a rating type school you go there this is you do this 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 and this and this is what you're going to do to pass the check ride you're not necessarily going to learn everything but you know that's just the way life is we're going to need to learn as much as we can when we go out there in the real world flying but uh, it was interesting. The comment I heard is from the instructors like, well, don't worry about it. You're going to the airlines. You, you'll have a captain that will teach you how to do all that stuff. It's like, whoa, wait, time out. I want to I know this. And, and that really, it kind of, it bothered me because later when I became an instructor, my goal was to, and I didn't realize that's kind of what I was doing was a scenario-based training. My goal was to make safe pilots, safe and proficient pilots. And to do that, I would go through some incredible scenarios, especially with my commercial students, where I would actually get most of my students, if you were a commercial student of mine, would eventually be mad at me during a flight, because I would ask you to do something that was wrong and unsafe. And I would do it in a very convincing manner. And until you said no, that's when I'd send you to the check ride. I knew you could say no to me. And I knew you could go forward. So that was, it, it was interesting. We do different scenarios for different levels. That's, that's for sure. But should we be teaching rote in the beginning? Of course. Yeah. Teach the skills. Of course, in the beginning, we're going to teach skills. Uh, it's just like in riding a bicycle. Now you have to start looking at all the traffic around you, just like in an airplane, et cetera. But now, you know, now that we brought this up, Tom, and uh, as far as instruction is concerned, where you know what do we do as flight instructors uh and looking internally um and, and you know we're probably all guilty of the pressure that we get from the students sometimes saying hey i gotta get this done now we say okay this is what we need to get you through um but are we doing them an injustice by by doing that do we know 
do we delve into what their purpose is moving forward? Are they going to go on to continued education? Then possibly just getting those skills done right away might be a good thing. But um, I know at certain larger schools, I've seen people that didn't really understand what it was like to go to the different FBOs, and, and they never really got into the true general aviation and the passionate side, obviously, but also other intricacies of working within, just like Rick said, and Victoria and yourself, Tom, the working in that environment, in the air traffic control environment, and also the actual aviating environment. And little things, I mean, things I never was taught, you know, the etiquette, near a gas pump, things like that. And, you know, what do I do next? You know, here I'm in line at a, a self-serve pump. Gosh, I've, I've never done that before and, and going on from there. So let's talk a little bit about that. Let's talk about the instructional side of things. And, and one of the things that I do uh, and I think is important for my students is finding out what their, what their goals are in, in aviating. I know I had uh, a lot of students say, hey, listen, I really want to go to Key West or I have a house in Marathon or I have a house in the Bahamas and I want to fly from here to there. So not only do I want to learn how to fly, I want to figure out which airplane I need to fly in to get to that point at this speed. And then you start listening to the speed and you say, oh boy, now we're looking at a bigger aircraft. And you tell them, okay, this is the mountain we need to climb, uh, but we need to start right here and we'll start working on those scenarios there specifically for your training. But I also want to make sure that if you don't go to the Bahamas and you wind up say wanting to go to Colorado, that we talk about those things that would be involved there with your training in Colorado being very important when you get there talking to local instructors, because uh, we have to admit to ourselves as instructors, we don't know everything and we should get an expert in those fields. So Tom, uh, starting off with our flight instructor, I just kind of want to hear a little bit about, you know, now you're, you're sent many different students. We're sent students often. And, um, most of my students that are sent to us are career oriented. So, uh, it's a, it's a huge and, and much different perspective than in your case. Uh, you know, just from the viewpoint of I'm in the weekends, I'm sitting at the airport and nothing's happening. Whereas on your side, it's a totally different ball game, isn't it, Tom? Oh, absolutely. And, you know, I mean, I've got all sorts of walks of life walking in from, you know, the guy who just is flying as a hobby, which is actually how I started as well. It was just, it was basically that it was, um, it was something I found very interesting and it was a hobby and it, it turned into a career after, um, getting deeper into it, but everything from the, the weekend warrior, if you will, all the way up to the, the career and goal oriented pilot. And I, I see them all, you know, um, and, you know, flight reviews and, and, you know, recurrency and, and all those other pieces in between. Um, I see that as well. Um, you know, as you were talking, what, what came to my mind was this, is that, um, it, it this, this whole topic kind of came to a, uh, uh, enlightenment, if you will, if, if, as I was thinking about the students that I have. And I'll tell you quite honestly, it's, um, you know, um, I have two CFI students and teaching them how to become instructors has opened my eyes to what, what we're talking about here tonight. And basically it's this, I, I try to get them to a place. Now you've got somebody who's gone through all the process. They've gotten their private, they've gotten their instrument, they've gotten their commercial and they're transitioning over to becoming a CFI. And the difference, the, the transition point happens there. And what I try to guide them to do is to learn how to remove themselves from explaining things to actually teaching things. And there's a difference there. And what we're trying to do is, is we're trying to, with every lesson that we do, we're trying to explain 
why we do it, what standard am I being held to, and what are the common mistakes? And that's that's kind of what the FOIs guide us to do. The Aviation Instructor's Handbook is is all about hitting those three points right there. Why are we doing the maneuver? What standard am I being held to? And why? what are the common mistakes? And as an instructor, what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to take something that's very, very complex and make it simple. I'm trying to simplify it down so that somebody can understand it and then build them up to that complexity so that they can take that and teach it to somebody else. And not only, you know, I mean, we know the levels of learning and getting to the point of correlation, getting to the point where I can take something and apply it in many different areas, right? And that's what we're trying to do. And that's what I'm trying to guide my students to do. When I go out and show somebody how to do slow flight, I'm not just showing them, okay, drop the flaps here, put the power down to this setting, get over there, get your nose on the horizon, hold it here. This is how you do a turn. Don't exceed this bank angle. This is how you recover, you know, and taking them through the process and wrote just memorization on how to mechanically get through that maneuver. But what I'm also trying to do is I'm trying to tell them, why do we do this? Where do we use slow flight? It's exactly what we're doing when we're coming in on slow flying. Look at how mushy the controls are getting. This is what we're going to do when we come in and we transition and go from a descending attitude to a straight and level attitude while we're trying to land the airplane. And it makes sense to them. And if you put it in a context like that about why we're using it, why am I doing this particular maneuver to begin with, now I've transitioned over from just creating a pilot to creating an aviator. And that's just a single example. I think it's a great example, especially when you said why. Understanding why we're doing something is incredibly important, um, you know, especially when you're going through certain maneuvers. And it's like, well, you know, telling the student why, it makes them more engaged. And there's basically that follow through in their training. I think that was, that was a terrific example. And kudos to you for doing that with a with a CFI applicant, because that is just such an important rating and to have the future pilots that are going to be teaching the future pilots out there and and being a part of that must it seems like that has to be you know a huge responsibility on your shoulders and you you feel that way obviously and and you're doing that you're you're making these future aviators that are going to make other aviators out there and you're not truly you know just teaching those skills you're you're out there teaching becoming a true aviator or true pilot i think is what we're talking about here of course it's very subjective you know what is a true pilot you know we we talk about it at work and you know it's going you know mach 2 and flying upside down and dropping bombs or is it you know flying around in your you know j3 cub i think they all are aviators uh and they all have something to bring to this and one of the things that i think is important too for us to learn and I learned this recently is we really, you know, don't, no matter what level we're at, we, we don't know, we don't know sometimes. And I'm just gotten to it. It's kind of embarrassing to admit this, but I got into an SR 22 and did some flying and, and that's got back into general aviation. And I, I was like, wow, this is great. Flying's really, you know, low and slow like this. And the individual looked at me and said, well, wait a minute, you know, this isn't, you know, like a low and slow airplane. This is something that goes super fast. And you want to go low and slow, you know, pick up a, a Cub or, or something like that or a Stearman. So the next thing I went into was a Stearman. I was like, ah, wow, this is really low and slow and this is absolutely wonderful. But it all is on your perspective. It's, it depends on your perspective. I had um, made a, a mistake and glad I'm glad I didn't jump into it. I was looking for an airplane. I said, well, the SR-22 would be a perfect plane to train people in. It'd be a great starting aircraft. But I had just come from airplanes that are flying a lot faster. So 
the instructor looked at me and said, well, why do you want this airplane? Ah, there's that question again. Why? And I was like, well, I want to, you know, teach people flying this. He says, well, you know, how about the SR 20 or how about the 172 and stuff like that? And started my mind going again, saying to myself, gosh, you know, I've, I've lost certain perspective on things. So every one of us can learn no matter what level of flying or how many hours you have it, it really is, is exciting. And now here I am like, gosh, this is really cool. And then I got looking at seaplanes. So one of the things that I think helps us move along in our journey as pilots, because recreational flying is absolutely wonderful in, for our lives in general. I, I think it's very fulfilling for us. It's challenging. And it really brings a new perspective on life. For me, especially, one of the things, uh, it's going to kind of sound corny, but the one thing that I saw was, in the air, there are no borders in life. Uh, there's no state lines. There's there's no counties. It's just it's just just one big world, and it kind of made me look at it, not you know more philosophically and, and at a viewpoint that said to myself, I said maybe I should start looking at the world much differently, and it made me do that, and so that had a personal impact on me in my personal life, uh, and that's what aviation brought to me. Uh, but you know when we're looking at this and looking at the the training. What are some of the other things that, that might help us become better aviators? You know, what, what are some of the things that we can do to move forward here? Now, and, and I want to ask this question, like, now what? I got my private. I've, uh, I, now what do I do with that? You know, what would make me, because now we're talking about becoming aviators, what would make me a better aviator? And I, I think I'll give one example. I think one of the things that you could do to become a better aviator is just really discuss the flying in your geographic area. You know, really get to know the weather in your area and and how that weather reacts. You know, if you're in a, a moist tropical environment, it's going to be a lot different than say uh, you're up north or in the you know icing and that type of thing. It's like, gosh, not icing. What the heck is that? You know, it's something we don't really see in in Florida that much, but in the Northeast. Uh, there's clouds, it's cool out, you're going to get some icing. So I'm wondering, maybe some of the other co-hosts could maybe tell me some of those ideas that they would have. Now here I am, I have my private, um, you know, where do I go from here? Like, Rick, you know, what, what was your thoughts? And I, I know where you are well, now. And yeah, I mean, I started, yeah, I think I think my initial thing was um, when the weather was uh, conducive to me doing it. Um, and I was pretty conservative on that. Um, I would try to, um, kind of sort of create missions for myself, mostly, you know, going to different airports. I ended up having a chart still do. I'm looking right at it of, uh, the airports in new England that I flew to from Norwood, which is where I was out of. And, um, so I would kind of be trying to go, okay, what, where haven't I gone? Where would be good, cool, you know, kind of cool to go to, um, and it you know, involved just decisions about towered or not towered, uh, everything from do they have a, a nice restaurant to to what's the approach like, and you know okay that's an island let's go you know I haven't flown to Nantucket yet, um, uh, have, you know how far you know what's a, what's a long so so it was kind of creating missions but it was all for fun you know there was pretty much never a, a another reason to do it other than to have the experience. Um, and, you know, I was making videos of it too, which was fun too. So, but it was all, that's what I sort of set out to kind of do was create missions in the, you know, not in the heavy sense, but just in the, in the focused sense. And, uh, and it was fun. And I, you know, I got to fly to a whole lot of pretty cool places. 
and usually, you know, what length of runway, type of runway, you know, there's just a lot of things of where am I comfortable? What's my, what's my comfort zone f- at this point? And, you know, gradually I got to try different things in doing that, uh, different, uh, you know, different approaches and different scenarios that, that were, um, that applied all the bigger stuff, but, um, you know, that, that were not just about how to fly that plane. So, for instance, what you said in your scenario, you would be wanting to go to Nantucket, maybe learn some of the weather and uh, the yeah, patterns there. Sure. You know, just yeah, yeah, exactly. What you know, what's well, yeah. Although I, you know, like I said, I was pretty conservative on weather decisions, but um, but yeah, you know, and how to you know just what the what the particular location of the airport, if you know, and if it was untowered. What the what the dynamic at that airport was? Do they do jumping out of that airport? What you know? What do I have to be careful for about that? And so there's a whole lot of you know personal research, getting getting all the information, as I recall from my training about a particular flight um, before going, and um, and also checking off the list of sort of oh I haven't been there yet. Let me do that. Um, so yeah, and it, weather was certainly a factor. Flying but over so the water. <laughs> Yeah, well, there was that, you know, that was, you know, yeah, that was a whole other thing, which was what route should I take, you know, in certain scenarios to minimize my overwater exposure. That was the Nantucket trip was that kind of thing, because you can, you know, you can hit uh, Martha's Vineyard and and stay above that or above the coast, at least, and then cut across. It it seemed to be the the shortest water jump. And, uh, and it worked out pretty well. Well, that's cool. And and I love that. I love stretching ourselves um, just by getting out there and trying new things like that. And, of course, jumping in with an instructor is not a bad idea. That's for sure. But, uh, you know, I know one thing that I know Victoria has been involved with lately, which is really cool, is I see you in airplanes, uh, Instagram and all, and, and just out there playing with some really cool aircraft. One of the things I think that helps, uh, and I, I forget when you did this, but you you received your tailwheel endorsement, and that alone, I think, increases your skills tremendously in flying. It did. I had no idea what a difference it would make. You always hear about, like, ooh, now that you have tailwheel, like, you really know how to fly. And I hadn't flown um, our company plane since October, so almost a year and I went to fly my boss on Labor Day. <laughs> I went with him and his wife to uh, breakfast. And I was so nervous because this is the first time I've flown that plane in a while. I was used to the tailwheel because that's all I had flown the past 20 hours. And both my landings were spot on. I was in the zone. I, they, I greased them full stall like you didn't even feel touchdown. And I really think it goes to show for the tailwheel endorsement and any other, like the more training you get, the more confidence you get, and the more understanding you get of an aircraft and its aerodynamics. And I think learning that stick and rudder skill on the tailwheel um, and understanding really the aerodynamics of what's going on there made me such a more smoother pilot in the Trigear aircraft, even after that much time without being behind uh, the wheel on that aircraft. 
Hey, kind of feel the airplane a little more, and that's that's for sure. And you you know where your center of gravity is. That's for darn sure. <laughs> yes. <laughs> what what a great thing to do, and I I encourage anybody to go out and get some instruction in a tailwheel. Um, just a, it's just such a blast. That's for and the airplanes you get to fly are really cool. What kind of plane did you fly, by the way? Uh, decathlon. Ooh, what a cool aircraft! What a lot of fun that is. I you see know, the big smiles what, every time you're in it. Oh, I do. It's so much <laughs> fun. You know, I don't have to worry about so many switches and levers, you know, there's no flaps. It's just all about your power control and your attitude. And um, something that I took away, one of those moments that it just clicked, everyone talks about how much you have to dance on the rudder pedals. And I always thought that meant you have to be aware of, you know, where your rudder is all at all times and you're constantly, like you're just adjusting it here and there. I wasn't aware that you are nonstop pressing those rudder pedals every which way. And it's literally like you are dancing. And, um, yeah, it, it really made a difference in my skill. And I have so much fun doing it. And I hate that this hurricane is coming right now. <laughs> <laughs> you really want to get out there and fly. So maybe you can get my endorsement because I realized I never had one in my logbook. So uh, that would that'd be kind of cool. Oh, you're not a CFI yet. You're going to get that soon, right? <sighs> Yet I bought a camper van, so um, hopefully That's next right. year. <laughs> cool! I can't wait. I can't I wait. I got the written's out of the way. Good, good. And that's a lot of fun too. Learning something new, like the written exam and fundamentals of instructing, especially if, if you haven't been teaching. That's for sure. I love training. Cool. Can't wait. Can't wait to see you pass that ride. But you're right. You know, dancing on the rudders. We. It's funny because we had this discussion uh, today. I had this with a designated pilot examiner, and uh, he was talking about people forget how to use their rudders. And I said, you know, that's something that has been a big issue. You know, in our, the professional environment, where you're seeing a lot of failures because of the fact they just can't land the airplane they forget they have a rudder and in flying no matter what airplane it is there's all these little inputs that you're putting in you're, you're constantly moving and there's there's always something happening uh, even in a larger airplane and we forget uh, that those skills that we learn early on are the same it doesn't matter what size the airplane is it's all the same and having the tailwheel endorsement and flying ga I, I truly can tell a difference uh, flying with those folks that, that really are into the art of flying as opposed to just just doing it by rote and, and just driving the airplane, as they say. So, Tom, you, you had an idea as far as, you know, possibilities of, of different things we can do to increase, you know, our flying skills and become a better aviator. Sure, absolutely. And, and you know, um, I'm not going to take credit for this. This uh, belongs to our friends over at M0A and, and uh, you know, Jason Chappard and his crew. And, and one of the things that he talks about and, and one, of his, one of the crew is uh, Dr. Larry Diamond, and he's such a great guy. But um, something he taught me about, you know, kind of becoming your own flight instructor, you know, going out and flying and, and picking a day where you go out and do things to keep your skills sharp. In other words, create basically your own lesson plan and go out and maybe fly some slow flight or do some steep turns or maybe try a power off stall, you know, like, um, Rick was talking about, about flying to a new destination, doing something different for the sole purpose of keeping yourself sharp on your skills, because you're going to have to do recurrent training to keep your certificate active. And, you know, you don't want to walk into a flight review, um, without, having done any of those skills since the last time you did a flight review, you know, 
And I say that because I see people who come in and do that all the time. You know, I haven't seen them for two years. They've barely flown a plane at all. And they're like, oh, yeah, I just need to get current again. Can we just go up for an hour and we'll take care of it and be done with it? You know, and it doesn't work that way. You realize or they start to realize what um, I have been preaching all along is that, you know, flying is a degradable skill. It's something that you need to keep current on. So creating your own little lesson plan, <clears throat> a lesson plan, a way for you to go through and um, keep yourself current is, is one of almost one of the most important that you can do, things you can do as a pilot. I think that's a great, there's a great example of that where the FAA has come out, even, you know, say in the airline environment where I'm flying a lot of my times is uh, they're saying to us, hey, listen, you know, in our company has said, we want you to start doing uh, different types of flying. In other words, turn off some of the, like the auto thrust and, and get the feel for the aircraft manually flying and manually fly approaches, et cetera. And uh, that way you're much more prepared for, for your recurrent. It's, it's funny you said that because a lot a lot of times you know people are getting ready for a recurrent because they start turning everything off just to get the feel of the aircraft again and not, not just driving the airplane. So uh, really good idea. I think that's important to, to kind of make your own uh, lesson plan, like you said, and say to yourself, hey, I want to I want to do this flight because of this uh, approach that I'm going to get to do, and I haven't done this approach in a long time, so this would be a lot of fun. Uh, so that's that's a great, great example. As a matter of fact, I'm getting current again uh, in general aviation aircraft and different types, and it's quite important for me to also have my own lesson plan because I know what I need to do when I'm out there. I'm with an instructor, but I say to myself, this is what I want to do. And even when I'm by myself, I'll go out and doing stalls, turns, spins, rolls, whatever it is, uh, you know, in the different types of aircraft. And you, you just don't do that on 172, by the way. But what, one of the things that's really important is in your environment, you figure out what's best for you. If I'm going up in the aerobatic plane, then I, I know what I'm going to do there. And I'm going in a 172, I know what I need to do there. Uh, same thing in any type of aircraft that you fly. How much fuel is in your airplane? Uh, the reason we're talking about this comes from an article that was in General Aviation News. Of course, we partner with General Aviation News, and you can look on our website in the top, excuse me, in the bottom right corner of our uh, website. You can actually see some of the interesting articles that come up there, uh, some by Jamie Beckett and by some of the other folks that are there writing at uh, General Aviation News. But one thing caught my eye, and the reason it caught my eye is because this something similar happened to a friend of mine, and uh, it's something that I think that we all can relate to and really have to really manage properly, and that's fuel in our in our tanks. So let me let me quick read this article. It's very short. It's about fuel starvation. It's uh, the title is "Fuel Starvation Leads to Forced Landing." General Aviation News. During cruise flight and the experimental. Amateur-built Mustang II, the private pilot attempted to move the fuel selector from left to the right fuel tank. During that process, the engine lost power, and the airplane sustained substantial damage during the subsequent forced landing near Normandy, Texas. The pilot was seriously injured in the crash. The pilot reported he had recently modified the fuel system, and while attempting to select the right fuel tank, he inadvertently starred the engine of fuel. He reported no problems with the engine before loss of engine power and stated that the engine lost power because he used improper procedures while attempting to change the fuel selector. Probable cause? A total loss of engine power due to fuel starvation as a result of the pilot's improper fuel selector positioning procedures during flight. 
this was actually a really interesting accident for me because about 25 years ago, I had a really good friend of mine had the same situation, and he was up in an experimental aircraft. He switched tanks, and the engine quit. And you know what he did? And I thought this was really, really cool uh, what he decided to do. He actually said, you know what? I just did something, and it caused my engine to quit. Let me reverse that and see if the engine comes back. And he did. He reversed it. Engine came back to life, and he landed. So there are those of us that have experimental aircraft, and we have a fuel selector that we may have modified, uh, changed uh, for any reason. And maybe that may have caused a, a situation just like this person has, has caused here. But in a general sense, we're going to talk a little bit more generally about fuel starvation, not just in experimental aircraft, but also in other aircraft, but other aircraft like certified aircraft. But let's stick with the, with the experimental aircraft first, and then we'll move on. Um, as far as experimental aircraft, I know Larry. Larry is actually right now building his own aircraft and the Sonics, et cetera. And, and one of the things I'm curious about, Larry, is... When we talk about fuel starvation, obviously we're going to talk in a minute about fueling our tanks and making sure we have enough fuel. But let's talk a little bit more about fuel management of our systems in our specific aircraft that we obviously must know in a certified plane, but also in an experimental. So, Larry, is, is there any challenges that you've seen going forward in your aircraft as far as a fuel management and and you can you put any shed any light on this person's situation um i'm not super familiar with the mustang too i, I know what it looks like and it's a a really neat looking airplane um in uh the sonics it's really dead simple it's a gravity feed tank uh the tank is uh effectively in front of uh the uh, firewall in, or sorry, um, sorry, in front of the instrument panel, um, and then it just gravity feeds to the carburetor, and so there's no fuel pump, there's no um, uh, uh, you know fuel management to speak of, other than do you have enough? Very similar for people who are familiar with it with the uh, Piper Cub, you know, which has a fuel tank right up there on top, and it it gravity feeds to the engine. Um, it's one of the things I like about the Sonic's design philosophy is to keep things as simple as possible, and um, uh, they've done a really good a really good job of that. So I don't anticipate many problems, you know, that are fuel system related. Um, you can certainly get, you know, uh, uh, dirt in your fuel or, you know, or anything like that. So there, there are always opportunities for, you know, something to go wrong. Um, but it's about as, you know, dead simple as you can get. So even though we're in an aircraft that has a very simple uh, fuel system, let's take, for instance, a Cessna 172 that has uh, left, right, and both, and usually we leave it on both. We've still seen people that have run out of gas and run out of fuel, and that is due to the, back, the fact that there's, uh, we may have lacked planning. We also may have lacked the knowledge of how to look at the fuel in our tanks, and we may have actually trusted our instrument gauges too much, our fuel instrument gauges way too much. Uh, Russ, I think uh, I'd love to take you in on this conversation. I know you've flown some 172s, and you have students flying those, and I think it's really important, even in a system that's incredibly simple, we can still run out of gas, can't we? Well, we, you certainly can. You can well, you can run out of gas just by running out of gas, of course, even in a, a 172. Um, but you know, something like that where you don't have to switch the tanks, it's really easy to get complacent um, about you know checking your, your tank levels and such. Um, but 
in most of the 172s and 182s I fly, that one tank does drain faster than the other. And if you were to experience some kind of you know vent getting plugged up or something like that, um, you could conceivably run out of fuel, uh, although you still have you know 30 gallons on board. So it, it's still important to pay attention to your fuel burn and, and know what you should expect from that airplane. So let's talk a little bit about that first, as far as planning is concerned, and then we'll go into abnormalities in the aircraft and anomalies with the certain planes that we fly. Um, So one of the things that we're looking at is, number one, we want to make sure that we have enough gas in our tanks. And when we're asking somebody to put fuel in our tanks, a lot of times we ask them, not by the number of hours that we need, but by the number of gallons we need. And sometimes uh, there's a disconnect there because I I know I've heard this many times. It's like, well, um, you know, we should ask for the number of hours in the tank, but but no, the, the person that's actually fueling the aircraft, they actually know based on the number of gallons that are in the aircraft. So it's very important to let them know how many gallons must be put into that aircraft. And I I will say one thing, and this is something that is really important for those of you that are instructors out there. Um, And and I tell you, I have a tough time with this sometimes. And I, I love every student that I have. But there's a couple things that I always check, and that's the oil level and the fuel level. And I physically check both of those. And uh, don't be offended when I go out to your aircraft and I look because uh, I want to make sure that we both make it there safely. Because even though these aircraft can land just about anywhere, let, let's, not, let's not try it, you know, that, that's for sure. And, but, Russ, what, what, kind of, what kind of planning do you do with your students when you're trying to talk about not just cross countries but fuel planning in general? Well, I think one of the most important things with fuel planning is, sure, you run the the numbers, you know, and, and I teach, of course, how to, you know, look at the performance charts in the airplane and figure out how fast you're going, how long it's going to take and how much fuel it's going to take, of course. But that's that's all great planning, but then you need to execute that. And the only way you're going to successfully fly at, say, in a 172, because you brought that up at eight or nine gallons an hour, is if you lean appropriately. I know of a, of a case where someone took off on a, you know, like a three or so hour cross-country flight and ran out of gas just short of their destination, of course. Well, the whole problem was, or one of the main problems, I guess, was that they didn't lean properly. So, I mean, leaning, you know, 172 takes you from, I don't know, 15 gallons an hour down to eight or nine, Right. The 182 takeoff is probably 20 gallons an hour, 22. <laughs> so there's a big difference there in fuel burn rates. And if if you're not leaning properly, you won't necess- you won't get the same performance you predicted, and it might end up just short of your your destination. That's where it, it seems to happen a lot. So it's traditionally been a technique to teach not to bother leaning below something like 3,000 feet. Um, I was never taught that. I don't teach that. I always teach lean appropriately for you know whatever phase of flight you're in. Uh, but I have worked with some people who were taught don't bother leaning below 3,000 feet. Well, in some areas of the country, uh, you could conceivably fly a long ways to your destination at, say, 2,500 feet. I don't know, out there in Florida or something. Right, <laughs> right guys? So um, if you don't lean, yeah, you might be doubling your fuel burn. Uh, and that, that, that can certainly 
certainly be pretty dangerous. So, you know, that's great that you brought that up for us because it's not just doing your planning, uh, which was going to be the first thing we were going to talk about, but it's actually implementing your plan. And by implementing your plan, you need to actually lean the aircraft properly. And I think that's incredibly important. And one of the things that I, I, I see all the time, especially like you brought up, at, I love flying at 2,500 feet. I love flying at 1,500 feet. But when I'm at 1,500 feet... A lot of times we're told, hey, you don't need to lean, but I lean all the time because, first of all, I'm an aircraft owner, or I was, I'm not right now, but uh, I want to make sure that I'm not burning too much gas because I'm the one that's paying for the gas. I'm not just paying by the hour like I am at a rental. So it's really important that we lean properly, and by leaning properly, we can actually plan properly for our flight. So, uh, Russ, is there anything else you want to say about that? Yeah. So you have to, of course, lean to match the performance. But what's the other component of your fuel planning? It's knowing how much fuel you started with. Right. And Carl, you you touched on it before, you know, telling the fueler how much gallons to put in, whatever. What do we say a lot? We say we'll just top it off or fill it to the tabs. Right. But you read through these these accident reports and there's so many cases of uh, the pilot saying, you know, fill it to the tabs or fill it up. And either the guy fueling it you know, didn't understand what that meant possibly. Uh, they may be new or maybe the airplane was a little bit unusual. Um, I, I was, uh, in a Bonanza a couple months ago and the pilot had told the, 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 uh, line guy to fill it up and we went out there and well, it, when you open the cap, it kind of looked foolish, but it still fit in about another five gallons of tank. So mm-hmm. that's pretty significant. Right. Sure. And, so if you were planning on having all that fuel and you didn't go ahead and verify that they did what you ordered, uh, that could that could put you in, in some real trouble. So knowing the fuel you're starting with is just as important as as leaning it out when you go to, so you can fly your plan. One of the things to, to kind of add to that is um, a friend of mine, a real good friend, good instructor, uh, he went out flying with his student and they decided to go to the Bahamas. And they went down to the Bahamas, and his student was a really good pilot, great pilot, and very conscientious. He told him, actually, how much fuel he had in the tanks. But unfortunately, he was about 30 minutes short of what actually was in the tanks. And they wound up going down in the Gulf Stream about 55 miles out from the the east coast of florida and Mm -hmm. uh, they were picked up by by uh you know the folks from uh uh, search and rescue out there and and, uh from the border patrol i think it was the first people on the scene uh but anyway one of the reasons they went down is that he was told by the student how much fuel he had in the tanks he never actually checked it himself physically and i think that's kind of what you're getting to russ is the fact that no matter how much you tell the person to put in the tank you actually have to physically check that because our gauges aren't quite as as accurate as they need to be on our aircraft so we need to actually either stick to tanks or look in there physically ourselves and uh, when this person went down to the bahamas on the way back uh probably would have been a good idea to, to actually check those tanks instead of having to swim in the Gulf Stream there. Although the waters were warm, I'm sure he didn't enjoy that whole swim there. Uh, fascinating experience and all. Uh, and one of the things that I think that we wind up overlooking is the fact that, um, you know, yeah, we're over land. A lot of times you can pick a place to land, but there's not 
Uh, and we all think we're great pilots and we can find a place and we can land on the highway, et cetera. But, but why do that? You know, why not make sure that we have more than enough gas in our tanks? Uh, we do that at the airlines. We have a minimum amount of fuel that we need to get to our destination. And, uh, and we very much plan our fuel to the minimums so that we can actually be more efficient in our flights. But there's another part of that fuel. We need to take a little bit of fuel for our family. We need to make sure we take a little bit extra fuel so that when we get there, there's some contingency planning there. And we also need to have an accurate reading. You know, at the airlines, we have uh, some some really good equipment that works, et cetera. But in our airplanes, I know in, in the 182 that I was flying, one of the things that I used to do is take a stick and actually measure the fuel in each of the tanks. And, and Russ, I think maybe in that case... If the person actually sticked the tanks, in other words, took the physical fuel reading from the tanks, maybe they wouldn't have gotten themselves in that situation. What do you think? Yeah, well, sticking the tanks is always a great idea, if if possible, of course. Um, I, I have one of my clients has a different stick for each tank. <laughs> so, so he actually um, went and emptied them out and filled it up, you know, a gallon or five gallons or something at a time. And just he used two sticks just in case they were a little bit different. But uh, that's... Hey, that's a great idea. And and so we can learn from that, from people that actually own their own airplanes, is that actually physically take a look at that. Also, another thing that uh, a lot of times I'm actually, I take the heat on this one and I will, is the fact that when we're talking to the fuelers, we tell them how much fuel we want in the tank. And what is the minimum fuel in those tanks? Say we're in a big fleet of aircraft that are rentals. Uh, say we always keep them to the tabs. It's very important to do that. And and I, I know that we don't fly based on the n- number of gallons in our, our tank. We fly based on the number of hours. And when air traffic control tells us or asks us, hey, how many hours of fuel do you have? We have to come up with that number. Well, those hours of fuel are based on us doing the proper thing, leaning properly, just like you said, but also making sure that we have the proper amount in our tanks, just like we can tell the fueler, hey, listen, make sure they're at the tabs. And if they're low in that, let me know. Let me know what's going on there. Uh, there's also another interesting part of this whole fueling equation. And this, this seems a little bit, to me, like almost impossible, but it's not. And I know we've heard about this, is putting the wrong fuel in the tank uh, and making sure that we get you know 100 low lead if we're running on 100 low lead. Or if we have uh, an aircraft that run on diesel, we can put in some jet fuel or some some other type or av gas that, or excuse me, auto gas into our tanks. And that's also really important is making sure that we have the proper fuel, the type of fuel in our tanks. Making sure we plan properly is obvious. We haven't really talked about it much because you should be planning properly and also making sure that we have the proper fuel in our tanks. And one of the ways we can do that is by sumping our tanks. And I know, Russ, you're, you're very involved in flight instructing, and, and I'm sure that your students actually go out and sump their tanks. So what, what is actually the proper procedure of going out there to sump the tanks and make sure you've got the proper fuel, type of fuel in your tanks? Well, when you're sumping a tank, of course, you're, ch- you're checking for the, you know, not just for water in the gas. I mean, you know, that's, that's very important. You know, we, I think we all learn about that, you know, looking for that line of water. Um, but the color of the fuel as well, and uh, we're talking about 100 low lead in most of these cases, most of these airplanes. So we're looking for that nice blue color. And 
sometimes it can be pretty light. You got to hold it up against, you know, a nice white surface. Most of the airplanes, of course, are have large areas of white on them, it seems. So you hold it up in that and you look for that blue color. If it's any other color these days, you know, I mean, you, the books, I think, still talk about red and green fuel, but, you know, you really can't get that in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Um, if it's any other color than blue, you, you stop and because you might have a, uh, you know, you might have been misfueled with uh, with diesel or, or jet fuel or something else. Who knows? Yeah, being that that kind of that yellowish kind of thing with the, and that does happen every so often. These these uh, trucks come out there and they're they have the wrong type of fuel. Boy, what a what a sinking feeling. Also, another thing about fuel starvation is, um, and you touched on this, Russ, is the making sure that we actually have not just a proper fuel but uncontaminated fuel. I know a lot of times in some of the bigger planes, they have all sorts of incredible fuel strainers and centrifugal uh, type of, of pumps that can actually take all the, the water out of the fuel. You know, we don't have that in our, our general aviation aircraft. So when you're sumping the tank, and this is, this is interesting in the mornings, especially when I was on the island, is that you sump your tank and you see this really clear liquid that's in there and just a little bit of blue stuff. That's that's not good, is it, Russ? <laughs> a little bit of clear liquid and some blue stuff. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, no, that that that's not good, Carl. Um, you know, it's funny you bring that up because I I had another client who you know longtime pilot you know own owns his airplane you know flown it for many many years and um, and the first time we flew together you know we we're doing some recurrency type training flight review and such. First time we fly together, we're out there looking at the airplane and. He says, I think I should uh, go ahead and sump it. I, I usually don't, but, you know, you're here. Maybe I will, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> and so he was very upfront about it. <laughs> and, and sure enough, he, he sumps it, and there's brown crud floating there in the bottom of that sampler cup. And he looks at that and says, well, guess I'm sampling every time from now on. <laughs> you know, so, but, but it's true. Uh, I know when, when I, uh, I used to own an airplane, and I would sump it every single time, but and after 10 years of never finding a drop of water in that thing, you know, I, it was the, the, it was very tempting, I guess, to, to just say, you know, what, it's fine. <laughs> you know, mm. but one time I was almost going to do that and ignore. And I said, no, no, I'll do the right thing. And I sumped it. And this is after 10 years ownership, never found a drop of water. And sure enough, there was water. So, um, yeah, that, that got my attention too. But yeah, you're looking for that contamination, you know, brown crud in, in the, the first guy's case, uh, water, any kind of debris, dirt, anything like that, definitely. So one of the things that I've seen people do is that they feel the fuel. I don't know, Russ and Larry, you've probably seen this with some of the old timers, uh, is they actually just feel the fuel and say to themselves, okay, that's, that's avgas, that's not water, et cetera. Um, uh, what, what are your feelings on that? I, I'd like to feel your, hear your feedback on that. I, I've never felt my fuels. <laughs> the, the color I, I, is usually enough. Look for that dividing line. I know of what you're saying. I mean, you can you know pour it on a towel and see what evaporates first and that kind of thing. But I, I think looking at it is probably sufficient. Uh, plus, if you're feeling it, you kind of got to know what to feel for too. And mm-hmm. and most people, pro- I think, might not. Yeah, I've I've never even heard of that technique. Uh, I've spilled fuel on myself a time or two, but that's about as much feeling of it as I've done. 
So I guess I, I come from kind of this old school where these folks are actually feeling their fuel. I think it's totally wrong. Uh, obviously, you need to take a peek at the fuel and actually look at the, the color of the fuel, make sure it's it's the proper grade, et cetera. And, and that's the way you need to do it. And, and that's kind of the point I was trying to make is it's, it's totally wrong to even think about uh, a fuel uh, actual that is is based on the touch and feel it should be based on your visual inspection of that gas and make sure it's the proper fuel for your aircraft whether it's auto gas jet fuel or av gas make sure the color matches but with that said let's let's talk a little bit more about what we talk and we kind of glossed over that whole flight planning and and preparation for our flight there's uh you know there's enough fuel for me i like to have an extra 45 minutes an hour maybe an hour and a half of gas uh but in no matter what aircraft we have uh we are limited based on the amount of fuel we have no matter if it's an electronic aircraft or electric excuse me aircraft that we're starting to see more and more or whether it's something run by avgas and i know uh rick i'd love to get your feelings on this because uh, rick has an, an electric car that he has to actually plug in and it's very similar. You know, how do we go about planning our trips? Because, you know, Rick, with, with the car that you have, you could actually easily run out of fuel if you decide to take a long trip, can't you? Yes, definitely. I so I have a Nissan Leaf, and I've had I've had a few, I now have the third one of those I've had. Um, so I've been doing this for a while, and it reminds me a lot of flight planning, um, which is part of the fun. Um, it's part of what. Uh, range anxiety get it gets people nervous who are used to driving gas cars because you can stop almost anywhere and fill up, um, but but mostly that doesn't come into play in your life and people shouldn't be worried about it and I actually think it's kind of fun, um, yeah there was a <laughs> I actually so there's lots of uh, there's lots of planning tools just like there is in aviation um, and so taking advantage of those prior to a trip where you know you're going to be at the um, you know, at the end or near the edge of your range, um, and what factors influence that? And so it's the same. It's the same as flying. And in electric cars, it's it's things like how much, um, you know, how much energy are you using to heat or cool the car inside? How 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 much uh, uphill terrain are you on versus downhill? Uh, if you're if you're going round trip, it sort of works out either way. But if you're going to be going uphill, you're gonna you're gonna burn more electricity, burn more, use more electricity. So yeah, I was on a trip once where I I thought I really thought I'd done the math, and um, uh, I hadn't quite. I, and I don't remember what the, I don't remember what was wrong about the math, but I know that we were getting back to a charging station that I knew we needed to get to to top off to then make it home. And I knew where that was. And um, what I didn't know is that the, at least the version of the leaf I had at the time, um, this is about gauges kind of, it um, as it neared the very, very end of the battery's capacity, it stopped giving me a mileage estimate. And the way it works now is there's a rolling estimate kind of, you know, like any kind of gauge. It's sort of an estimate of how many miles you'll be able to go based on on. Your, your recent driving and, and other factors and how much is left in the uh, in the battery. And, it, and I realized I didn't know this, but at the very, very end of that, it doesn't have enough information to really even bother giving you an estimate. So it just stops. And so uh, I didn't know. You know, I sort of had a moment of going, I don't know how empty this battery is. You know, and the, the equivalent would be in you know, flying or, or gas cars would be, I don't know how much gas I've got left, uh, you know, my own fumes. Um, but... And we ended up, I, I just did everything as efficiently as I could, uh, did a little coasting when I could, and uh, we rolled into the place where 
you know, the plug was and we plugged in and we made it. But but it was it was definitely a, a reminder that, um, you know, that that you really got to do your math. And and I, 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 I don't know what I did wrong, but I I definitely miscalculated maybe because I used a little bit of power at the beginning of the day before we made our trip and that little extra was the difference but anyway so yeah it happens and i um uh, yeah that's it's very similar and and it's it's easy enough to know how to be safe you know plan ahead similarly in the in the airplane uh i like what you said about uh different charging stations and something we haven't really brought up here is the fact that it's nice to have alternates along your route as far as gas is concerned, the same thing with electric cars, that you need to know where you can go and charge your aircraft or, or, or fill up your aircraft, charge your car, etc. And that's something that, um, you know, we obviously do all the time in the airlines. Where can I go if I, I need to right away, if I lose pressurization, etc., and I have to go to 10,000 feet and burn a whole bunch of gas? And I think that's really, really important to do that. And one of the things that I think that we sometimes don't do is plan for contingencies even though well, we put the alternate in that's legal, but there's something that's not just legal, it's safe. And that's something I do all day long, no matter what kind of flying it is. It's in an Airbus or a 172. I want to know where I can put down to get gas to move forward on my trip because uh, it, it, there's a convenience factor and there's also a safety factor. The convenience factor meaning that if I have planned for an airport that actually has gas, that's terrific. Of course, I can have somebody drive an air, a, a fuel truck out there and fill me up if I have to. But it's really important to also plan for contingencies. What if? What if? The airport you're going to shuts down because that happens every so often where somebody actually blows a tire, et cetera, and they don't actually make it to our destination. You know, it's kind of like when we were kids making uh, planning a long country, isn't it, Russ? Oh, yeah, it's funny you, you say that, Carl, because, yeah, when, I mean, when I remember when I was growing up and we moved to, to Phoenix, Arizona, and, I mean, especially back then – it was a lot less developed than it is now in some areas of the of that part of the country. And I remember going on these road trips with my dad, and he would plan out, you know, <laughs> we're going to stop here and here and here, you know, for fuel, right? <laughs> and he'd have backup plans and all this kind of stuff. It, it, it was amazing. Um, but we really just don't do that anymore. I mean, I, I certainly don't do that even on a road trip because, well, gas stations are everywhere for your car, right? So... You just go, and once it gets to you know a quarter tank or whatever you feel comfortable with, you uh, you just stop at the next gas station. No big deal, right? Well, of course, we don't have that in airplanes. So, what what my dad might have done, you know, thirty, forty, whatever years ago, is kind of how we need to fly and, and think of this. And I like your your idea there of thinking of alternates for even you know even if we don't need them, you know, even if they're not. We're not talking IFR alternates, just, just alternate plans, contingency plans. Where are we going to go in case something happens? We have a fuel leak. You know, we have a problem with fuel feeding from some one of our tanks uh, or, or anything like that. Having this, these alternates in mind is always a good planning exercise. And that's a, a really good point. I know I've uh, had that all along in, in my flying career, and we try to teach as instructors. It's like, where are you going to go? Uh, the last time I had to divert... Uh, it wasn't where I wanted to go, and I wasn't even thinking about it, but it was a big piece of pavement, and I'm glad I got down on that piece of pavement, and that was really, really important. Sometimes, too, uh, we, we're the ones that cause the problem. We're the ones that actually are blowing those tires, and I know that one of our 
our listeners a long time ago wrote in about a situation that had happened with Larry. And I guess, Larry, you can, you can actually expand on that, that you may have been the person that caused somebody else to go around. Yeah, I did. Um, and one of our listeners was there to help me on the ground. Uh, uh, but, uh, yeah, you come in and, and blew a tire on landing, and, you know, the tire was fine when I checked it in, you know, pre-flight, um, but uh, came in and, and uh, blew it on landing. Um, the landing was fine. It wasn't a bad landing. I didn't bounce or anything, you know. But um, stuff happens, and I got stuck there on the runway and shut down Springdale, Arkansas for about an hour or so, and, um, you know, there wasn't anything that we could do except – tell people to go somewhere else uh, that man that was a good example for about an hour of or so of gas say if i have 45 minutes of gas and you're shutting the airplane airport down for an hour i'm going somewhere else i need to go somewhere else and uh, interestingly enough in that same area i was stuck in the same situation where i got into an airport there was no planned weather, and it was like, you know what? we got to go somewhere else, and we went over to Bentonville in Arkansas because of the fact that, you know, we could not get yep. into our destination. And that's just in, in general. You know, I feel, and I know most of us here would agree, always, you know, plan you're going to get there, but it's not until you have your wheels on the pavement that you actually realize you're there. Always think, I'm going to go here, I'm going to go there. And always think about that as much as you can along your route. It's hard to do, though. I, hey, I'm guilty. I've been flying for so many hours in an aircraft that I've never had any problems with. And it was like, yeah, what could go wrong? Well, when you start saying that, it's about the time when something does go wrong. And you decide, oh, my gosh, we really do need to actually go to an alternate airport and, uh, gosh, I, I've actually been in an aircraft where I had an extra hour and a half, two hours of gas, and I had to actually divert. And I, and I said to myself, and I, I was down that path, like, there is nothing that, there's no way that I won't make it to my destination. And I didn't make it. I was pretty embarrassed because uh, I was so, you know, mission-oriented, and I think we all are that way, that we are going to make it to our destination, like in Springdale, Arkansas, when you blew that tire. I could be sitting there saying, hey, I've got an hour of gas. Well, wait a minute. You're sitting there for an hour, hour and a half on the runway. I, I just can't make that. So I think that's really important. So contingency planning is important. Also making sure you have the proper fuel. And the fact that you actually operate your aircraft properly, leaning properly, is incredibly important. On the fuel, your pre-flight planning is absolutely incredibly important. We also we, we run pilots through that, and we go through that with our students all the time. And, uh, and not just students. I mean, every day we fly. The most embarrassing thing is, is to run out of gas and, uh, and not be able to make it to our destination. Also, sometimes you're not going to make it to your destination because something breaks. You know, it's like, okay, I can't make it there. I'm going somewhere else. And that's, that's just the way life is. You know, we, we can't always make it towards our destination. So with, with all that said, as far as fuel planning is concerned, and I think, you know, all of us agree, is the fact that, yeah, we need to make the proper planning. We need to actually take into consideration certain contingency planning. We also have to properly uh, operate our aircraft. Uh, but we never know. We always hope for the best, plan for the worst, and that's what you should do in any type of fuel planning. And I think, I think all of us can agree, and I, I'm not sure if anybody else wants to add to that, but uh, there's so much out there as far as fuel planning is concerned. We're still running out of gas, by the way, and uh, as general aviation pilots, and, and we need to try to stop doing that because of the fact that not only is it embarrassing, but it also it runs our statistics high and also is very dangerous. No matter what, I know 
We think we're great pilots, and we can land just about anywhere, and we can. But uh, why risk it? Why risk that one day where, yeah, there is nothing below us, and we may not be able to pick out a good landing spot? So let's make sure we have fuel in our tanks. So I think that's enough said on that. Unless anybody else wants to add to that, I'd like to move on to our next topic. Um, and this is something that, uh, uh, and we, we've got a little bit of time to talk about this, maybe 10, 15 minutes. Something that's really important in our aviation lives, and that's something that is fulfilling our dreams and fulfilling our dreams of, of flying an airplane. And flying an airplane is, is something that, is very vague i found and i wanted to make it more specific so one and this is the reason i want to talk about this one night i had a a really interesting dream and i i said to myself you know what what do i dream about when i'm flying like really like what what would i dream about and what would you dream about if you really wanted an airplane to fulfill your dreams and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jump in there, and I know this is going to be embarrassing to me, but the thing that really appeals to me as an airplane is concerned, it, it takes me back to when I used to live in the islands, and I had a little John boat, and I wanted to just, I took that John boat where I wanted to go. I would disappear to these little islands and pull up in my boat and run up on the beach and have a lot of fun. And it was small, but it fulfilled my dream of going somewhere and nobody else has gone and being in these uninhabited islands. So my dream airplane would be something that could take me to those islands and drop me off just like it did in my John boat, a light little airplane. And when I was, and what was interesting is when I started thinking about this, I actually sat in an airplane that I felt, uh, two airplanes actually that I felt could fulfill that dream. And, and that one of them was, uh, you know, the icon, uh, aircraft and I thought that was the, an incredible aircraft. And also another one's called the Sea Ray. I I could imagine myself pulling up to a beach in a little airplane like that and hanging out there for the day and having you know my sandwich or whatever and hanging out on the beach and then you know playing with the animals on that island and being uninhabited and then taking off again and flying away. And that's that's something that. I find is really important in all of our lives, in our general aviation life, is what is it you want to do with your airplane? What What is it that would be really cool for you? One of the things that was really important to me is sharing flight, and that's why I became a flight instructor, so that was part of the dream. The other part of the dream was, yeah, it would be actually flying in a, in a seaplane somewhere, in an amphibious aircraft possibly, to a little island and taking someone there and showing them all the wonderful things. So with that said, I mean, it, it, it all came from that that time when I was riding around in my little John boat in the islands. Yeah, I, I decided to go and start looking into getting a seaplane rating. And uh, that's actually something we're looking at now. And we will obviously be there at Seaplane of Palooza uh, coming up in Tavares, Florida. We did a, a whole interview there. But my question is this to my other co-host is, you know, what is your dream airplane? And I probably should start with Larry because he's somebody who's actually started actually building his dream airplane, I think. Right, Larry? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So um, my dream airplane is the one that's down in my basement, and I just dream of it <laughs> flying. Um, <laughs> but uh, it's uh, we mentioned before, it's the Sonics. Um, uh, you know, and I think one of the things I like about it is uh, it's got enough 
you know, performance and efficiency that if you want to hop across the country, you can do that. Um, you're going to travel light, but you can do it. Um, and, and yet, you know, it's good for light aerobatics. It's, you know, good for just going to the local pancake breakfast. Uh, you know, it's, it's efficient and so forth. I, I think the, the thing that makes it the, um, uh, so nice in my mind is that it, it does such a great job of hitting the sweet spot that I care about. And the way that if you, if you go to the Sonics, you know, website or any of their presentations, they talk about the most fun for the dollar. And that is their mission. You know, it's, it's an aircraft that's pretty easy to build. Um, it's, you know, it's going to perform well. It's going to give you a pretty good range of, of different, you know, things that you can do with it and have fun with it. Um, but the most fun for the dollar, that's an entirely different mission than I need to get up and fly 1500 or 2000 miles IFR cross country reliably. Right. And so the, to me, the, the dream airplane, you know, making sure you have your dream airplane starts with figuring out what your mission is for that airplane first and then figuring out which airplanes you know maybe candidates for that i think that makes sense because you know when i said about the john boat i'm not talking about the john boat that we see over at sun and fun every year that has the propeller on it and lands on the lake <laughs> that that's not what i'm talking about all of that it might be really cool it's actually kind of sitting there with my eyes closed envisioning what would be the best thing for me and that's uh, pulling up right to the dock or right to the to the beach and flying and with you just being able to go cross country bringing your friends to lunch uh it, it's that it's that is so amazing to me and i think it's amazing to our listeners so russ i i'd be curious what what's your dream aircraft well i think i'm going to go for that icon or the sea ray so i can fly those same islands when you go and interrupt your solitude carl no, no don't do that <laughs> no no i actually have a better plan you know actually i was thinking about this and and, you know, we all, uh, like Larry was saying, um, you know, we have to determine, you know, what's important is what, what do we want to do and, and that kind of thing. And, well, you know, right now my wife would really like to go to Florida a lot. Mm. <laughs> so, so my airplane, I think, would be something that would get us there reasonably quickly. Um, you said it's our dream airplane. We can all have our dreams. So, therefore, obviously, I can support the airplane. So some, you know, small turboprop probably would be up in, in the running there. Um that would get us down to Florida pretty quick. We could uh, hang out at your place, Carl, and then go on your uh, Sea Ray or Icon to those islands. Well, you're more than welcome to come down and go for a flight yeah. over there. Yeah. Uh, there's there's actually some hull belts, too, that are out there that can get you there pretty quickly. I mean, you're yeah. looking at some of these 200 knot aircraft. I mean, that's that's fast, isn't it? Yeah, so th that's kind of what I'd be looking for is, you know, a, a, a traveling airplane to get around. We have a lot of places we'd love to go. I mean, we have, you know, friends and family in Phoenix, and that's kind of a haul from Oklahoma City. And out in Florida, we have friends. It's just kind of all around the U.S., and getting there would be would be pretty cool. That is pretty cool. And uh, and I think, you know, sharing that with your, your spouse and your kids and, and your friends is, is really awesome. Um, Rick, I, what, what's your dream aircraft? Have you thought about this? Yeah. Um, well, you know, I would say that I – when I was doing my training and most of my flying, I, I, I felt, I felt like I was flying my dream aircraft at the time, which was a Cirrus. I really, I really love the Cirrus. And I, I thought, well, this is just how flying should be. You know, I, I loved uh, everything about it. Um, 
But so that said, um, I think, you know, it would be it would, it would be an airplane that probably doesn't exist quite yet, which would be one with, you know, acceptable range and uh, uh, easy to maintain, but that w- that is all electric. And I would go ahead and just continue that electric thing because I'd love to, um, uh, you know, I hope someday that can be, you know, more possible. And and I assume it will be. So I, I don't know what that's what that would be. I don't know what it's called. I don't know anything about it. But that's what I would want. That would be my dream, and mostly for ease of use. Um, and uh, you know, and just because I like I like trying, I like pushing the edges of where technology can go. So that would be fun for me. And that's out there now. I mean, they're working on those yeah. things, Airbuses, et cetera. And, and that's yeah. what's really cool and exciting. So Rick will be able to fulfill his dream very shortly. I hope. Yeah, that'd be great. Yeah, I'm really, I'm really <laughs> excited. I mean, if you look at all these different air shows, they're talking more and more about those electric aircraft and uh, batteries are getting more efficient, uh, getting lighter, getting more efficient. Uh, you know, the even some of the training aircraft that are coming out, they're now able to fly for what ninety minutes now. Uh, hmm. Maybe someday it'll be two, three hours, four hours, and I, yeah. I think that's really, really exciting. So I think that's totally cool, Rick. I think that that's neat, and uh, yeah. Keep keep reading those articles. I think I think it'll come true. As a matter of fact, yeah. one of the things that's cool too, Rick, is is maybe someday uh, you'll be able to build that electric aircraft, and, uh, and that would be very cool. That that would be awesome, and uh, maybe we'll partner on that. Following Larry's, sure. follow, yeah, yeah, yes. that'd be fun. Or yes. following Larry's footsteps. Exactly, exactly. Got to clean my basement first, though. <laughs> it's a mess. <laughs> that might be uh, a clean basement part. helps. <laughs> <laughs> I bet, and a, and a large bulkhead. <laughs> <laughs> and and I know that uh, make sure you have windows. Yes, windows. Yeah. In so Florida, we don't yeah. have basements. By the way, guys, it's just garages. Oh but, yeah, that's, yeah, right. yeah. that's right. <laughs> But we don't have snow. And, uh, and that'll oh, work. Yeah. <laughs> Well, with that said, there's a whole community out there, people building aircraft, and uh, and they're building all sorts of stuff. Electric aircraft, they're building aircraft that are jet engine aircraft uh, out of uh, aircraft that were just piston aircraft before. So it's really cool what people are doing. And uh, you can check out that at the EA.org, and that's at the Home Builders. Really, really cool stuff. Um, anyway, this whole discussion has been really cool as far as, you know, our dream aircraft. But what is your dream aircraft? Uh, and, and I know a lot of times we talk about that whole stable of aircraft. Um, but one of the things we don't do is we don't become practical and say to ourselves, you know, what one aircraft could we have? And, uh, and I love Rick's idea of flying something that's electric because it's coming. It's about to happen. And every day uh, the storage actually gets cheaper, gets lighter. And, uh, and that's, that's the biggie. I mean, that, that's a real big uh, hurdle. But what's really cool is that there's so many people out there that are coming up with new technologies in electric aircraft and electric cars. Not just that. They're coming out with new technologies in our piston aircraft and new engines. They're coming out with uh, different diesel aircraft. And we're going to see a lot of that at some of the new at the air shows, and we're seeing that right now. So I think we're at a really cool stage in general aviation, and I'm really excited about it. And I'm excited that maybe someday it'll, it'll continue to become less expensive, which I think it has already, and has some really cool technologies, like with the light sport aircraft, where some of the technologies in these $100,000 airplanes is far and above some of the technologies we see in 
some of the $400,000 aircraft. And that's, that's awesome, and that's really, really exciting. So look for new airplanes over at, uh, at some of the big air shows, Sun and Fun, and also at uh, that other air show up in Oshkosh. And we definitely will see them overseas in some of the shows that, uh, you know, some, these are sponsored by airlines. A lot of these aircraft are sponsored by the airlines. And uh, I think uh, kudos to those folks that are, are taking that technology and taking those dreams of flight forward. Uh, so big hats off to those folks. Well, anyway, let's move Carl, on. Speaking to, of that yes, other, speaking mm-hmm. of that other air show up north, um, uh, are you going to be there this year? Oh God, you know, I I <laughs> actually figured out. I was hoping no one asked that question. Uh, there, I I think I you figured, can't gloss over it that quick. No, gosh, I was hoping to get beyond that. Uh, but anyway, now that you've stuck me with that, Larry, the uh, one of the things that I'm really trying to do, and I think I figured it out, is how to get my schedule to have it off that day uh, or that week, I should say. And uh, if I don't. I'll just call in sick. I'm just joking, by the way, if anybody from work is listening. Uh, but I think I figured out a way to actually get that time off. So I'm not going to say definitely I'm going to be there, but I think I figured it out. I tried to get it off. I couldn't for vacation, but um, there's a way that I can manipulate my schedule to have that time off. That's one of the, the busiest months of our year, and uh, that's the reason I actually haven't made it there yet. Uh, but uh, I definitely, it's so funny because everybody I talk to in the planet, knows about Oshkosh and has been there but me. So I, I really want to go. And uh, and I'd love to see Larry there and all of our other friends there. So, yes, sir, I, I will definitely, definitely we'll, try to get there. We'll save you a spot. Yeah, yeah, Camp Bacon. It's, <laughs> uh, it's I have my bacon soda, by the way. Not baking soda, all right. bacon soda. So I'm ready for Camp Bacon. Uh, but uh, anyway, great discussion we've had, guys. Uh, I'd love to hear from you, the listeners, stuckmikeavcast.com. Uh, excuse me, stuckmikeavcast at gmail.com. Stuckmikeavcast at gmail.com. Uh, send in some of your you know, stories about what you've had as far as challenges uh, with fuel. Uh, we won't mention your name if it's something, an incident or accident. Uh, but we'd love to hear so that we can also help those that are listening right now and uh, and give some input so that they may not make that same mistake that you've possibly made. And this actually is a listener mail that was sent uh, directly to Russ Rosleski and uh, really, really good information. So I'm hoping that you know this will help you in determining a few things because there have been a lot of online discussions. So Russ, uh, tell us a little bit about that email that you received, and we'll start the discussion. Yeah, you bet, Carl. So this was a listener mail, as you mentioned, uh, from a friend of mine, Mike Farlow from Denton, Texas, who's also known as Aggie Mike 88 on many of the aviation forums. Uh, if you're on any of those, you might recognize that uh, that handle there. And uh, we were having a, a very long and involved uh, online discussion about safety pilot. And the focus on that discussion was primarily around what makes a good safety pilot? What are a safety pilot's responsibilities? What should they be doing? What should you look for when you're asking someone to be your safety pilot? And we'll kind of talk about some of those things. We'll set up some of the rules and stuff too. But the range of opinions in, in this online discussion was, was interesting because we had, we had some people who basically wanted the safety pilot to sit there and look for airplanes, and that was it, all the way to we had some people that wanted the safety pilot to give advice and help them out and, you know, maybe show them something, you know, if they were a more experienced pilot and that kind of thing, all the whole range in between. Um, of course the important thing, which we'll talk about later is making sure that everybody understands what the responsibilities are there and you have a discussion beforehand. But before we get into that, we should talk a little bit about, um, 
what is a safety pile? Why do you need one? And how can you be one? I think. And, uh, of course, most instrument rated pilots, I think know that if you want to fly, uh, in simulated IFR, meaning wearing the IFR hood, you know, the foggles, the, uh, you know, the, the funny glasses that they wear up there for training. If you want to do that, you have to have another pilot in the, the seat next to you, uh, to at a minimum, look out for other airplanes that, you know, you can't see because you're wearing this view limiting device is the official term, I think. Um, so this person, this safety pilot is there, you know, to serve as, as at least your eyes, um, possibly more, but at least that function. And so in order to get currency uh, or proficiency and to get practice, uh, you either have to have that flight instructor along or this safety pilot. Okay. But the safety pilot can't just be anybody, you know, off the street. Uh, they do have some, some requirements to meet. And, uh, these requirements are all spelled out in, in the FARS in, uh, 91.109. And one of the, uh, main requirements is they do have to be at least a private pilot. Um, unfortunately that does rule out sport pilots and, uh, the, you know, the few recreational pilots that are out there or any, any other type of pilot. So they have to be at least a private pilot in order to sit there in the right seat and help you out. Um, they have to hold category and class ratings for the aircraft flown. Uh, meaning if you're flying in a 172, they have to have airplane single engine land. If you're f- doing it in a Baron, a twin engine airplane, they have to be airplane multi-engine land, etc. They have to hold those category and class ratings for whatever aircraft you're going to be in. Also, since you're under the hood, the safety pilot is a required flight crew member. Uh, they're required to be there. So as a result, the safety pilot has to have a current medical certificate. Now the question comes up, what about basic med? We'll talk to that, uh, later in the episode cause there are some, uh, some unusual limitations on that, but, um, but they have to have a current medical certificate to be the, uh, the safety pilot and, and the one remaining requirement is they have to occupy the other control seat. They can't sit in the back <laughs> and, and be your safety pilot. They have to be able to, uh, have controls in, in front of them. So, uh, this means of course, when you, when you think of all these things together, you know, your buddy who owns that multi-engine airplane asks you if you can be a safety pilot, you have to check the back of your certificate and see if you got multi-engine land on there or otherwise you can't be a safety pilot in that airplane at all. Um, that's the main thing there on category and class. That's kind. Of, that's really interesting. That was a great summary, by the way. Um, and really, one of the things, and we'll talk about basic med later. Uh, one of the things you have to do is make sure you're you're legal. And we do have a link, by the way, to that. And also a really good article uh, from the AOPA concerning uh, being a safety pilot. But you know, one of the things that was interesting in his questions, I was reading them that you sent to me. He says, you know, what a, what can the average schmo private pilot not be, or when can they not be a, a safety pilot? And you talked about that category and class. Uh, I love how he phrased that: the average schmo private pilots. And uh, you know, you're a private pilot. I mean, you there's uh, the average pilot. Pilot can tend to do many things and. Uh, Interestingly enough, and this is something I always tell people, just because you're not a flight instructor doesn't mean you can't impart knowledge because there's a lot of very uh, experienced, average, quote-unquote, private pilots that have flown into certain situations that the other average private pilot hasn't, and you can actually relay that information. So don't ever think you're just the average remote private pilot is the point I was trying to make there. Um, But uh, one of the things as far as being a safety pilot, uh, Russ, and that was 
that was awesome. The description is really not only what we need to do to be legal, but also, you know, what we need to do to have a successful flight and a successful flight would include having a safe flight. Uh, so uh, there's a couple things I think that are important. And then I'll, I'd like to hear from some of the other folks. And one of the things that uh, obviously at work, we do a safety briefing anytime we get together and we say, this is the first time we've flown together. So let's discuss, you know, what we should expect. Um, you know, we're two diff- we're two pilots and we need to go over Who's going to act as pilot in command and actually fly the plane in case of an emergency? And what I'm here to do today and what is our mission or what are we trying to achieve? And uh, and go over certain things like be, be up front beforehand and say, hey, listen, uh, I do something a little different than most and this is what it is. And whatever quirks you might have, uh, maybe you knock your head two times and that means to put the gear down. I don't know. Uh, but those are the those are the things that you have to get straight. Uh, and, and believe me, there's some kooky things that go on in the cockpit there. But those are the type of things you want to start with is just the general briefing and uh, always, always – you know, realize that, you know, you're put, leaving, there's two people in the cockpit now. We're talking a lot about uh, cockpit resource management, almost like crew resource management. And, you know, we're leaving the egos at the door. You know, if there's a discrepancy, let's just move forward from that. If it's safety related, we always, always should go with the most, the safest option between the two of us if we're discussing something. Uh, but there's more to being uh, a you know a good safety pilot than just that, and part of it, I feel too. And then I'll let some of the other folks chime in. I like to try to tell people when when being a good safety pilot, kind of think about your your flight instructor also, and what the flight instructors you thought were good flight instructors, and maybe try to emulate them. You're not you're not really you're not so much instructing, but you also need to sometimes say, hey, listen, you know, you're a little bit off here. Did you know that? Um, and those type of things. And those are the things that you have to really get out up front. What are you expecting from me as a safety pilot? Do you want me to point out every little thing? Do you want me to point out nothing? And as a good instructor, when you see somebody struggling, you don't nitpick. You know, you start with, okay, let's let's start here with this one thing and try to do this right and then we'll go from there and uh, and just be patient. And uh, that's really, really important. So patience, patience, patience. So that's that's kind of the things that I have there as far as, you know, what I like to see from a safety pilot, that discussion in advanced. I think about the good instructors I had and also figure out what our goals are when we when we do go to become a safety pilot and have this mission and this uh, this maybe the flight is to do a, a an approach to uh, to a landing, to a go-round or whatever, uh, and then we'll do some holding, et cetera. It's so good to get that out up front. So anyway, I was thinking uh, maybe, Russ, you can also start us off there, you know, what you consider uh, some of the things to having a successful flight and a safe flight. Well, I agree with you, Carl, and the most important thing is the discussion beforehand. Uh, you know, I think a lot of it does – it's an interpersonal relationship kind of thing, right? Um, usually I would say you're the person you're going with as a safety pilot isn't somebody who's totally unknown to you. You know, it's a, not, although that can happen, you know, people post on mm-hmm. Facebook, or whatever, Hey, I'm looking for a you know, safety pilot. I'm going to want to go, you know, that, so that happens. Um, but I think more often than not is probably a friend of yours, someone you've known for a while. Uh, so you have an idea of what their capabilities are, their skill levels. Uh, what you really want to watch out for though is yes. Well, let me back up a minute. Yes, you want them to look out for other airplanes. You want them to look out for uh, 
possible hazards, you know, <laughs> you know, uh, obviously, uh, you know, midair type stuff or, uh, you know, antenna tower on final or something like that. If you're maybe a little off course, of course you want that stuff. Um, but what do you, you know, what more do you want? If you are a proficient IFR pilot and, you know, maybe you don't, maybe you want that person to, uh, you know, give you a hard time, you know, Hey, you're, you know, you're one dot off course, what's going on, <laughs> you know, or something like that. <laughs> Or alternately, maybe you want them to let you go and see if you catch it. Uh, these, those are the type of things that need to be discussed. Some other things you might want to consider would be, uh, you know, if the uh, safety pilot feels that they need to take the, the controls for some reason, um, either you're, you've entered an unusual attitude or there's a possible collision or some other safety hazard. Uh, if the safety pilot thinks they need to take the controls, how are you going to handle that? Um, you know, how as a pilot are you going to handle the person taking controls away from you and how, how are you going to deal with that after the fact? Uh, you know, mentally, what do you think about what, what's your what's your opinion of yourself? And then if they take the controls. So uh, you need to have a little discussion about that. It may be, hey, man, if you see anything that's going wrong and you need to take the controls, go ahead. It could be anywhere from that to uh, please don't touch the controls unless I ask you to or you're really afraid we're going to die. Uh, but you need to have that discussion. Uh, how about someone else? Uh, Tom, what do you think? Um, yeah, I agree with everything so far. And, and, you know, some of the other things that, um, you know, it, it, it's, you're right. It's sometimes hard to draw the line. Um, being a CFII, you know, I'm training people how to do instrument stuff and then to revert to a mode of, of just being a safety pilot, which I have done. Um, it's like putting a different hat on, but having that, uh, pre-flight discussion is ultimately the most important. What are we going to do today? What kind of approaches are we going to fly? How are we going to fly them? Are we going to fly any holding patterns? Are we going to do any DME arcs? Are we going to do an RNAV, an ILS? Are we going to, you know, uh, we're going to fly a PAR or something, you know, odd like that. Those all need to be discussed beforehand, exactly the order that those are going to go in. And then who is going to hold the controls and when? What do we do in emergency situations? Before he's under the hood, when he's under the hood, when he gets out from under the hood. Um, and, and the last thing that, uh, you know, I'll, I'll throw in there as well is who's going to handle the communications. You know, when I do this, uh, with safety pilots, I have that discussion that, um, anything to do with traffic coming, I'm going to handle the comms. So, you know, if, uh, you know, approach calls out the traffic at some place, I'm going to either tell them that I'm looking or that I've got it in sight because the person that's flying is usually under the hood and isn't looking at traffic. So we have that discussion beforehand that, I, that I'll handle the communications with anything to do with traffic. Otherwise, they've got it unless they ask me to do otherwise. And then you uh, you already expressed it already, and I'll just reiterate it again, is that um, ultimately that positive exchange of flight controls. If, if you have to take it, I have the controls. You have the controls, my airplane. And, and making sure that that is understood between both pilots. So we're never in doubt on who's controlling that aircraft. Well, you know, you, you mentioned something that, that I, that I meant to, but I forgot. So thank you. <laughs> it was a, the, definitely the difference between a safety pilot and an instructor. I mean, an instructor is qualified, trained and experienced sitting there watching everything that's going on. Safety pilot may or may not be uh, as, as experienced and trained. Um, uh, they, you know, they may or may not be a proficient IFR pilot. Remember, you just had to be a private pilot. So that safety pilot sitting next to you may not really know anything about instrument flying. So there's, so that needs to be part of the discussion. How much do you know? And, uh, and if you are expecting that safety pilot to basically provide you training, that's probably crossed the line where you really just need to go up with an instructor at that point. 
Yeah, and and I agree with you wholeheartedly. And and tell you what, I've I've had a safety pilot. Um, I've done it before with just a private pilot. It was a student of mine who um wanted to get some experience, and and uh, I briefed him. I was I was fine that he could handle the airplane, but it's definitely different when you're flying with somebody who may or may not understand the intricacies of the um um the instrument world, you know, of, of IFR flying. And it was. Wasn't a completely new experience to him, but it was fairly new to him. He didn't. Um, he definitely didn't have the rating yet, and it was a different flight than, say, flying with a another instructor or a, a proficient safety pilot. Interestingly, I was just thinking about this too. We're all flight instructor here, by the way, talking, and I'd, I'd like to hear a little bit from our private pilots. But one of the things when I was a private pilot that, um, and it's kind of a, a horror story, I thought, and it was embarrassing, is the fact that. Not only, uh, and this comes to that discussion, I think, before the flight, not only did I uh, have a really bad scenario, I never flew with this guy again. And we became buddies and everything. We we're talking. I met the guy on a train talking about uh, on a commute to New York City. Let's go fly. And we went flying. And one of the things in that discussion, and I'm glad both of you said this, is you really have to figure out what your roles are as a safety pilot. But the other thing I didn't realize when I was a safety pilot during this flight is, whatever our roles afterwards in other words leading up to the point where this person's going to do the instrument training and then do the approaches and he's done with not training but instrument practice approaches and once he's done now what do we do you know we agreed okay um i'll fly a portion of this and you'll fly the other portion but we we kind of didn't communicate well and we didn't know who was flying and who wasn't flying and we're in New York airspace, and I'm like, hey, you know, we're getting pretty close to the class. Bravo. I think we need to turn here. He's like, oh, no, no, we're fine. I said, no, no, we're getting, we need to turn. So we got into this big argument. It was like the first, it was like one of the worst flights I've ever had. I mean, it was just total communication breakdown. Everything was great doing the approach, but it was all the other stuff. It was getting up to the approach. I knew the first thing was going to be approached. I was like, okay, you take off and all that. Now, who does the landing and all this stuff? And it was like, oh, my gosh. And and the person got really argumentative. I was like, oh, okay, you know, whatever. I said, let's uh, maybe we should have planned this better. Why don't we get on the ground and talk this over? And that point, he's like, no, I don't want to land. I want to keep going. And and it really was a horror story. So I think through that experience, you also have to realize, you know, what you're doing during the entire flight, not just during the portion where you're acting as the safety pilot. And that's kind of my little uh, <laughs> my little horror story, my worst uh, situation as a safety pilot. But in general, when you're sharing a flight in general, you should figure out what you're going to do uh, during that flight and what your roles are. The person, say, owns an airplane and says, all I want you to do is uh, during these three approaches, if you could, just uh, when I put the foggles on, then you're the safety pilot. Otherwise, I will do everything else. And that's a good briefing. Um, but we obviously did a really, really poor briefing uh, prior to that. I don't know if anybody else has any good horror stories. Like Larry, I don't, Larry, have you you done uh, safety pilot work? Hey, a- yeah, I've I've been a safety pilot. And I've, I've certainly uh, relied on safety pilots uh, before. Um, it, you know, I think uh, like like what has been said, the you know time you spend on the ground ahead of time talking about what we're going to do, what we're not going to do, who's going to do what. Um, all of that's critical. The other thing that I would bring out is I've, I've you know, heard some people who um, want a safety pilot to only look out for airplanes. You know, just look out for airplanes, you know, whatever. And maybe if all you have is a um, private pilot that doesn't have any instrument experience, that may be all you can realistically 
you know, um, uh, hope for them to be able to do. And so for me, if I have a safety pilot, I really want somebody who's instrument rated, even though it's not required, um, because I think they can, they can help me be safer. Um, I, you know, I've, I've heard of pilots, I'll just put it that way, who have um, misheard the altimeter setting and dialed it in one inch off. You know, and all of a sudden you're a thousand feet apart uh, off of, of your assigned altitude, or putting in the wrong identifier into a um, uh, a GPS system, PTK versus KPTK, for example. One takes you to Pontiac, Michigan. One takes you to North Korea. Um, uh, famous story for those who get the reference. Um, it, you know, and so I guess I would also hope that a safety pilot, in addition to looking for traffic, um, you know, I would want to have them looking for any blatant errors that could bring the uh, safety of the flight into question, you know, being at the wrong altitude, for example, um, or being way off on an approach, you know, coming in way too high, way too far down the runway, you know, whatever mistake I'm making under the hood, sometimes it's time to say, hey, let's bail on this one and, you know, do the mist and, and pull the hood off. Um, and so, you know, I guess it would be, it's useful to realize that there are a lot of things that can contribute to safety or the lack of safety besides just not hitting another airplane. Right. Right. And that's the goal, right? We control the plane and don't hit anything. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> well, and, and don't bust, don't bust the Bravo, right? Like you were saying, and mm -hmm. don't, don't do anything stupid. Um, uh, you know, and we're all capable of doing that stupid thing. You know, on that one day, you just get a little bit behind the airplane or something like that. Um, it's certainly easy enough for any of us to do. But if we have another pilot on board who is, you know, capable and competent, uh, and hopefully, you know, in my case, for me anyway, hopefully IFR rated and um, able to understand what's going on and understand what I'm trying to do in an approach, um, they, you know, hopefully will have some sense of how, uh, how far to let me go before, you know, calling it and saying, Hey, you know, you might, you might want to look outside on this one. Right. You know, another thing you just reminded me of a lot of folks, uh, have some older airplanes and I know I was involved in the situation when I started out, uh, as a, uh, someone asking me to go fly. And I'm kind of curious what other people have done in this situation and what the actual regs say, you know, some of the older airplanes have some of those, you know, those, those throwover yokes and, uh, you know, there's not dual controls, uh, sometimes, and I'm sure some questions must come up about this, you know, what do we do in that case? Uh, if we just have uh, one set of controls and there's not another set of controls. So maybe one of our instructors could answer Like, Tom, what do you, what do you think in that situation? Um, I believe you got to have two sets of controls. If you have one set of controls, it's got to be a throw over. Right. Okay. Yep. Um, I think that's, is it not uh, 61 or 91, 109? Mm, yep, ninety-one, one hundred nine. Yeah, it is. It is in there. Yeah, it has. It you yeah, you can't use it uh, with a single throwover. Uh, no, oh, no. Here, here we go. A single yoke aircraft may not be used unless the single engine airplane is equipped with a single throwover control wheel. Huh? The right. uh, safety pilot determines the flight can be conducted safely. Right. That's and uh, and that's yeah. essentially an older Bonanza or maybe Dick exactly. or something like that. Yep. Okay. Exactly. It was a, yes. It was a Bonanza. So. So, yes, so you can actually do it. So it's just that uh, you have to determine whether it can be done safely and it has to be uh, a single, you know, 
uh, throw over control wheel, I guess is the best way to say that, right? Um, and that's one of the things you have to do. And the the person that's manipulating the controls has to be obviously at least a private pilot with a category and class in that aircraft, which we already determined. It's kind of redundant, I think, but it's uh, it that's one of the things that that I, I you know you come up with that question quite a bit. It's like. Uh, yeah, you usually need dual controls, but in this case, you can actually you can actually do it under under 109. So, kind of a cool thing, a uh, little side side note there. So, um, but the uh, <clears throat> there's a lot of other kind of interesting uh, things that go along with being a safety pilot, and it really is important uh, to realize that uh, we talked about communications beforehand. And one of the things that I think we are remiss to do as a safety pilot is the conversation after the flight. Um, and I think that's really something that we need to talk about a little bit because, uh, again, I go back to, you know, what what was my instructor doing and, and um, what kind of feedback really does the person want uh, me to do as a safety pilot? Hey, you know, I saw this, I saw that. Um, I play a little game. Um, I just, just a suggestion, you don't have to do this, but I, I have a fun little game. And what we do is, uh, we put, you know, on a sheet one through 10 and I'll, you know, we start a timer and I'll tell the person, be as picky as you can and you get right down 10 items and let's see how, how long we can go with uh, me being able to fly without getting to 10 items that I mess up. So little things like being, you know, you were 100 feet off your altitude, you uh, were two dots to the right, uh, you didn't make the proper call, you uh, you made the call, but you did it improperly, or you, you didn't use the right uh, tail number, you set your altimeter incorrectly, and <clears throat> that can be a lot of fun. Uh, in in some cases, you can go a good 15 minutes, some cases you can go the entire flight without having 10 items and that's and then so what i'll do is i'll ask him okay when we get to 10 items call out 10 items reached and write down the amount of time and that was that's our little game and uh and sometimes you don't get to 10 items which is cool uh, but i think it, it's something just fun to do i don't know does it, anybody else have something like that that they do i was just kind of curious am i the only weird one here well, yes, but yeah. Wow. <laughs> I whoa, did I walk right into that one? Jeez, <laughs> how embarrassing! Yes. So, what other things do you do, Russ? <laughs> no, that actually sounds like a pretty fun game. I, you know, I might, I might start doing something like that. I like that idea. <laughs> but um, no, but they, I mean, you can do things like that. I think that's that's quite important. That's for sure. Um, the um, so, what else do we have on on the questions uh, from this? I don't. Want, I want to make well, sure we get through all this. Oh, I'm sorry. I want- I wanted to add, because like you were saying about being remiss about um, talking about the flight after the flight, um, you know, being a flight instructor, I make sure that I, every one of my students, that we have a conversation before we get in the plane, that we get out of it, when we get out of the plane, and we talk about it. And normally, I ask all of my students the same three, the, the same three questions I want them to ask, answer after the flight. What went good today? What went not so good today? And what are we going to work on next time? And I want them to evaluate themselves and see how close they are to the evaluation I'm about to give them as well. And and we go through that. And then we go through the steps of, of me evaluating how their flight went for the day. And then I usually ended up with, okay, I got to spend time hammering you and, and evaluating you today. Now I want you to evaluate me. What can I do better? How can I explain things better? How can I go through? But that gives us a, a rapport to be able to do that both before and after the flight. So um, yeah, being a safety pilot, now you're maybe just a private pilot or, or just somebody who's not used to following that certain structure every day. Um, I can add into that, that it's very, very important for having a, um, a brief before a flight and a brief after the flight. It, it carries so much value for anybody that's at the controls of an airplane. 
That's a great point. You know, and one of the things I like to do is have the three main things I need to work on because uh, those, if I have a list of 20 things, it's just not going to sink in. So I, I usually ask somebody, hey, what are the th- three main things you can see I'm doing doing wrong or, or that I can improve? Not so much wrong, but what can I improve? What are the top three things? And they'll say, okay, you need to do this, this, and this. And uh, and then the other 25,000 things, you know, you should probably look at later. But the top three are this. Uh, and what's really cool about aviation, by the way, is there's always three things. You know, there's something you could always do better. Having a perfect flight is incredibly difficult. I think in uh, past 20 years, I don't think I've had one perfect simulator ride, except maybe one I did. And the instructor said that was just perfect. I don't have any comments. Let's go. Uh, but that's very, 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 very rare. You can always learn something. That's that's for sure. Um, but uh, anyway, good good uh, addition there. Thanks. But Russ, what uh, I'm trying to figure out, what were the other questions? So we make sure we get all his questions answered. Well, I think the next topic we need to go into is how does safety pilot time get entered into the safety pilot's logbook and does it get entered and under what conditions? And that is a big issue. <laughs> it, yeah, it, it's huge because I mean, as the person who is, you know, as the pilot who needs the safety pilot, why am I having that safety pilot? Well, because I need instrument currency, right? Generally that's the reason, but why is that safety pilot doing it? Well, one of the most common reasons is because that safety pilot can log the time. So, you know, everybody wants to build time, man, especially now everybody's you know hurrying to get the time so they can get the jobs. Right. So, but it's always been this way that, you know, a lot of people will, you know, they'll go fly to lunch and one will be safety pilot for the other and vice versa. So that, you know, they either cut the cost in half or, you know, log more time, that kind of thing. Um, and you can do that. Uh, but there are some very, uh, certain particulars here that, that need to be followed. Okay. Because what we're really talking about here is, is logging piloting command time. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's, there's a very basic, uh, misunderstanding that a lot of pilots have. And that's, there's a difference between acting as PIC and logging PIC time. And I mean, you can search acting versus logging PIC on Google and you'll find a million discussions about this, but it's still not that well understood. In order to act as piloting command, you need to meet a bunch of requirements that are all everywhere through the uh, through the FARs, right? I mean, you know, endorsements and currency and all this stuff. Um, but that's to act as PSE, to be the piloting command. However, to log piloting command time really is a much lower standard. And everything about logging PIC is in 61.51. And all that requires is that you're at the controls of an aircraft for which you are rated rated meaning what's on your pilot certificate category and class nothing about endorsements uh currency nothing like that so this this is where things get a little bit complicated because we said that you can be a safety pilot right yes you can be a safety pilot with just category and class ratings have a current medical and be at least a private pilot we already talked about that but in order to act as pic you have to um, let me back up just one minute. If you want to log PIC by being a safety pilot, you have to be acting as the PIC. In order to act as the PIC, you don't not only have to have category and class ratings, you have to have the appropriate endorsements, high performance, uh, tailwheel, uh, high altitude, you know, complex, etc. You have to be current in all regards, you know, landings and such, uh, flight review, whatever. 
and you have to meet these requirements in order to act as the pilot in command. Um, now, when you are serving as a safety pilot, if you agree to act as the pilot in command, you are a required crew member. You can log the time as PIC. That's that's what uh, that what that's what gets people sometimes. Okay. But in order to act as PIC, of course, you really have to have this conversation ahead of time because if you're acting as PIC of this airplane, that means if you have an airspace uh, you know, violation, you're the PIC. <laughs> you know? right. If there's some mishap, you're the PIC sitting there in the right seat as a safety pilot. So it isn't quite as, as easy as just you know, jumping in the airplane and going. You need to really think about this. <laughs> you know, is the person that you're being a safety pilot for, are they reasonably competent? You know, or, <laughs> or are they going to get you in trouble? Um, if you don't meet the, uh, all the currency requirements, the endorsements, you know, high performance complex, et cetera, th- those things, then you can still be the safety pilot, but you can't act as pilot in command, which means you can't log pilot in command time. You can, however, log second in command time if you wish. Okay. Now second in a command time in a Cessna 172, you know, it's total time, so I guess that helps. But it's certainly, you know, SIC in the 172 is, is, you know, maybe not that as impressive as some, some other categories. But, but it is a way to accumulate that time as, as uh, without meeting the currency and uh, endorsement requirements. Remember, to be a safety pilot, as we talked about before, you only have to have a category and class rating. So you can be a safety pilot when all you've flown is Cessna 172s, you can be a safety pilot in, in your friend's Bonanza. 300 horsepower tractable gear Bonanza. You can be a safety pilot. You can't act as pilot in command. You cannot therefore log pilot in command time, but you could log second in command time if you wished. Okay. The other so that, side of that. Go ahead. Sorry. I was going to say, so, so that would go towards what we were talking about, being able to complete this flight safely. That was part of that conversation. I mean, if you're flying with someone who hasn't flown that thing in so long, maybe, maybe they should go up with an instructor instead of you, right? I mean, that would probably be a suggestion yeah, if they haven't yeah, flown a sure. complex. Yeah, go definitely. Ahead. I'm yeah, sorry. Absolutely. Yeah, you bet. Um, now, what can the – so now we get in their scenario. So now I'm the pilot flying, right? And I've got the safety pilot over. We said, yeah, you can act as pilot in command. That way you can log the, the time as pilot in command when you're safety pilot, when I have the hood on. What can I as the pilot log? Well, this is what gets people. Because it doesn't seem like I should be able to log pilot in command time if we're both doing it, right? Well, you can. Because the requirement for logging pilot in command time is in 61.51 again. And all it needs is that you are the sole manipulator of the controls of the airplane for which you're rated. If you're the one flying the airplane you can log it as pilot in command. So that's where we get the two people logging the pilot in command time. Understand, of course, it has to be done properly, and the person in the safety pilot seat has to be able to act as pilot in command if you want both to log pilot in command. Is that confusing enough? Actually, it, no, I, I, that was good, actually. That's a great explanation. <clears throat> Is this why most people uh, that want to build time, they become flight instructors? Well, that, that does certainly help. But, you know, I, you know, honestly, you know, there's, you know, all kinds of people all day long that, you know, just two buddies jump in the airplane. They both put them down to pilot command time in their logbook and, you know, with no thought to any of this, you know, acting versus logging kind of thing. But like I said, if, if something does happen, that could pose a, a pretty significant problem. So therefore, you shouldn't have three people in the cockpit uh, in the airplane logging pilot command. 
Well, that, <laughs> that that's that's something that we've heard about happening at some of the larger uh, flight schools, certainly. But I, I think that's beyond the scope of this discussion, Carl. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, and and it's, I bring that up because this this would be a you know we're not going to go that down that hole as far as logging time, et cetera. By the way, you can log whatever you want in a logbook. I think we've talked about this. Uh, you know how many hours you have. Uh, you know with the, the the dog can log. You know time in the aircraft is whatever you want to do. But uh, it's you can put in there how many times you brought whomever up, et cetera. It's uh, but as far as the requirements in for using it for a rating, et cetera, uh, that's where it becomes very important and also for currency. So they have to be careful there. Um, but uh, anyway, so the logging time is something that uh, we should have just a whole episode on just logging time because uh, and it also, of course, will be uh, pretty controversial and it keeps coming back uh, and rearing its head every, every so often. Um, you know, Russ, one of the things... Um, you pointed out as far as logging, you know, what, when can you be a safety pilot in the log? But that was a really good discussion there. Um, I'm trying to determine, you know, how about other pilots? Uh, we talked about the, the, uh, we, did we talk about sport pilot, but how about, uh, with this new, uh, what do you call it? The new basic med I'm trying to say, how about that? I and mean, what, what's the situation there? All right. Basic med. Yeah. <laughs> the, Is this, that if, opening if you were confused enough by the last couple minutes, <laughs> uh, yeah, the, yeah, the, this might do it. So, um, basic med's a weird thing, okay? Because the way the law was written, uh, and the law was written by Congress, basically, and and the FAA, uh, you know, to save having to send it out for public review and comment and such, they basically implemented exactly the way the uh, the, the Congress wrote it, which was that basic med under basic med you're allowed to act as pilot in command. Okay, that's very important, and we just talked about acting versus logging, right? So under basic med, you it, that only applies if you're acting as pilot in command. All right. In order to act as pilot in command as a safety pilot, you have to meet all the currency requirements and endorsements and such that we talked about a few minutes ago. Okay. So if you um, if you are operating under basic med and you are able to act as a pilot in command as a safety pilot, meeting all the currency requirements, et cetera, and you agree to take responsibility for the flight then you're okay. If you're operating under basic med and you don't meet the currency requirements or you don't meet the endorsement requirements, you can't act as pilot in command. Therefore, you can't serve as a safety pilot because a safety pilot is a required crew member and basic med only applies to acting as pilot in command, not to other crew members. This seems really convoluted and kind of circular a bit. Uh, There is a great short article on the AOP website. We'll have linked. Um, that kind of spells this out because it is confusing. How about an example? Like if uh, you're operating under basic med and you've only flown a 172, now can you go in your friend's Bonanza and be in safety pilot? How about that? No. Okay. <laughs> um, and and no, that's you because... And because... because you don't meet the currency requirements and endorsement requirements to act as pilot in command. Therefore, you are merely another required crew member, and basic med does not apply to other crew members. Gotcha. Okay, yeah. perfect. Yeah. <laughs> so so how about other issues? Uh, we talked about, and, and that's actually a pretty good 
explanation on the on the basic med. I like that, and we're gonna have a, definitely have a link to the article there. Um, how about other things uh, with your safety pilot friend? Uh, say you're acting as safety pilot, and you say, okay, <clears throat> when you're safety pilot, uh, you can share the expenses only during the time you're doing safety pilot or whatever, you know, depending on whatever agreement you have. So how about that? How about um, sharing the time and the money for the flight? How can well, we do that? <laughs> yeah. Um, so the money thing. All right. If it's two friends that are flying to to lunch and they want to split safety pilot duties and whatever, then uh, you know splitting the cost is, is is you know fine. They're you know pro rata share uh, just as normal uh, private pilots can do, right? Um, but I've also sometimes read the question, you know, as to you know, here I am an instrument pilot, and I need a safety pilot, and and the safety pilot is going to be logging at time. So should I expect money from him? <laughs> should I charge him to be a safety pilot? And then the other question: Should I pay him to be the safety pilot? Well, that you know that that's less really less of a uh, FAA regulation issue, but more to me more of a uh, interpersonal issue. You know, if I'm needing the safety pilot, you know, I'm gonna. I'm not only not going to expect them to cough up any money for gas, I'm probably going to buy them lunch when we get there. You know, I mean, I'm the one who needs his services such as it is. So, so the other questions, you know, along that, that line of thinking to me seem kind of silly in a way. Mm -hmm. I don't know what the other, what the other hosts think here. Yeah, that's fine. I was just thinking you're getting compensated for that flight, right? And uh, so, do you need a commercial license to be compensated? If you're uh, being compensated for the whole thing, yeah, you might be. Uh, it might be kind of interesting a situation there. Uh, but uh, you know, what is the pro rata share of it too? I mean, how do you determine that? Um, so I don't know. I, it, Larry, I know you do a lot of uh, flying, and, and you mentioned the safety pile thing. How do you actually split up your time and and pay for that flight? So any any time I've either been a safety pilot or had a safety pilot come along. Um, the person who was, um, uh, I'll say in the left seat, you know, not the safety pilot, uh, the one who needed the safety pilot, if you will, um, always picks up all the expenses for the flight. And if it's an out and back and you trade around and I'm your safety pilot and then you're mine, you know, we just look at the Hobbs, write it down. You pick up the leg that you flew. I pick up the leg that I flew and we don't mix it up. And that's just you know, one of many ways you can do it. There's nothing right or wrong about it. Um, but, uh, you know, that way, you know, this is your flight. It's your takeoff. It's your landing. It's your approach. It's your screw-up and have to do a uh, uh, missed approach. Um, or it's mine, you know, either way. And um, you pay for yours. I pay for mine. I come along for you. You come along for me. And, you know, I don't know, maybe, maybe uh, one of us buys lunch or, or something like that, but. Uh, try to try to just keep it simple. I, you know, Larry, that's a good idea. I mean, that's uh, that's what we do with the airlines, right? I mean, it's your leg or my leg. We never change in between. It's very rare. Actually, there is a instance I know. There's probably airline pilots listening. Yes, that there are certain landings that only the captain can do. So you do have to switch who's pilot and commander or who's actually flying. But in general, you always are doing. You know, you say, okay, this is your leg. And this is your takeoff, this is your landing. And I love that because then you record the Hobbs time, say you don't have to shut off the engine, record the Hobbs time. Okay, it's your plane, now you go fly. Sometimes you get out, you have lunch, and now it's your turn. So keep it simple. I like that, Larry. Great, great advice there. 
Um, but uh, anyway, gosh, this is a lot of information here, um, and and a lot of really complex information, a lot of opinions that were sh- uh, for sure online, and, lo- and lots of good articles out there. Um, but we've kind of touched the you know basics of this person's question, but. Uh, I want to know, is there anything else that people want to add? I know uh, this was, a, a, by the way, great questions, and thank you so much for writing in. Uh, you can go to stuckmygavcast.com, click on contact, and uh, we'd love to hear your feedback on this. But I was wondering, is there anything else from from our co-hosts that we'd like to add to this? I mean, this, uh, as far as being a safety pie, we went over the basics. It's uh, And sounds to me that the conversation before the flight has really become uh, one of the most important things. You know, are we, first of all, are we legal to do this? And how are we going to be safe? And what is our expectations? And all that happening prior to the flight, like Larry said, keep it simple. Let's just go ahead and do one leg. Uh, I'll do this leg. You do that leg. Uh, I think that's that's really, really cool. And uh, so it's really one of those things that, I find is easy if you grab a flight instructor. It gets more difficult when you grab a safety pilot because of the fact that uh, you know they're not in that scenario very often. Uh, some are. I, I, I won't say no on that one because there are uh, guys that go out, and I see it in a lot of times in flying clubs where they do a lot of safety pilot work, and that's terrific. Love to see that, and I love to see more people share the flight time and get some advice from some really experienced pilots. Going back to what I said before, there's some incredibly experienced private pilots out there that you can learn a lot from. Uh, So just remember that you might want to grab one and, and have them take you up. Uh, and fly you around and hey i i do it you know on there's a lot of airplanes i you know have a few thousand hours more than some of the folks i go up with but hey i don't have experience in that airplane i was like hey can you show me how to fly this and uh can you give me a little bit of knowledge on say this one type of approach i haven't shot this type of approach in a long time uh let's just go over it and do the lpv approach because i haven't seen this in a while and that's and you take them along as a safety pod say hey listen can you you know act Go. Uh, I'm going to be under the hood, uh, so let's let's uh, fly this procedure. Or another thing too, and I I kind of wish I mentioned this earlier is one other thing uh, with the safety pot. You don't have to be under the hood. Uh, you really should if you want to just fly the procedure or say to the person, listen, I'm not going to put my hood on. I'm just going to do this. Uh, and be focused inside the cockpit, but you still are acting as my safety pilot. You make sure that you look for traffic. Even though I don't have the hood on, I just want to may have all the situational awareness. The next approach I'm going to do, then I'll throw the hood on, that type of thing. And it's going to be obvious that I'm not looking outside. Again, it comes back to that communication saying that, yes, I am looking inside the aircraft. I'm not looking outside, even though I don't have the foggles on. But uh, anyway, I think this has been a great discussion, guys. And, uh, you know, it really is something that, I think is important for people to to do is grab a safety pilot and go fly if you want to get current, if you want to go over certain things in your aircraft, but you want to do it in the air. There's certain, uh, you know, anything, any mechanism, any type of uh, device that you have in your aircraft that you want to try. Grab a safety pilot. It's the first time using, say, an iPad. Grab a safety pilot so that you can actually focus on that and not focus on something else and keep yourself safe. So that's that's really the most important. Victoria, welcome back to the show. How you been? Thank you. I've been great. I don't think we've uh, chatted. I've chatted with you guys since Sun and Fun. I know. So this is awesome. And having withdrawal. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's great to have you on. It's actually going to be the two of us because we have a lot of interviews to get to. And uh, but we'll talk about that in a second. I think you also had an announcement. It has to do, I think, with scholarships. Is that correct? 
Yeah, also scholarship related. Um, my company tries to give back as much as we can each year. And um, we do that through the Get Into the Air Aviation Scholarship. So the deadline's in June and it'll be announced at Oshkosh, the winner. So uh, make sure you get onto that just to go to air pros. Dot com and there's a slider on the page you'll have a link there and then also it's under res- the resources tab so you can download the application packet it's for $500 but there's no limits to who can apply if you're 80 if you're 12 you know and you can use it for anything aviation related that's really cool i mean you can just do like an ipc say is that what can it yeah, be yeah it's for? great if you if you're not current and just want to get your flight review and get refreshed if you want to put it towards um perhaps uh, a knowledge test you know those can be expensive you can put it towards that or a check ride awesome you know that's interesting a lot of people think that scholarships are just for for young people and i know there's a lot of them most of them are for those people but it's really for anybody and i think this is great that you folks do this and that's air-pros.com and just click on the scholarships and i think it's under resources i think under scholarships but uh we'll have a link to it and it's also going to be in the scholarships guide i know it was at one point somehow it got taken out i think and we're going to have it back in there within (laughs) the next week or two we update it anyway so uh the new updated i should say scholarship will be out there that's a more positive way to say that <laughs> well, it's a good resource so i can understand how there's so many scholarships i can understand how one might mm, get lost yes it, it's easy you. to get lost thank you i appreciate that um but uh anyway one of the things that we we did we're doing something different with this show and you know we talk about aviation learning to fly them and fly loving to fly and part of flying is not just in the you know here in the atmosphere but it's outside the atmosphere and it's space uh this will be one of the first episodes we're really do uh, strictly related to space uh, and I really want to hear your feedback. Uh, StuckMikeAvCast at gmail.com. Let us know what you think about uh, this episode if you want to hear more from NASA. We all have some interconnection with NASA and uh, if you want us to bring more of these because it is so aviation related and it's very it's fascinating topics, uh, we will bring you more from the NASA front and also the fact that we all live uh, not as uh, far as we think from a launch pad and we're I'm going to actually, I discovered something new, and, and uh, Victoria's going to tell us a little bit about that. With that said, Victoria, you had a very unique experience, and uh, it, it was just phenomenal what happened. And what is it that we, we just said from the air and from the ground from a NASA rocket launch? So tell us a little bit of the backstory as to how did you get to actually watch this NASA rocket, rocket launch? So apparently there's something called NASA Socials, and it's where they get a bunch of, you know, big uh, space geeks together um, from a wide variety of background and experiences. And we all come um, and have this unique experience where you get to watch a rocket launch and get some behind-the-scenes tours. So once upon a time, a friend put this link on my page to apply to the launch, and I thought I was just applying to get like close media passes to a launch, maybe hear a briefing or two, like show up and leave. No, it was a whole weekend long event. Uh, We toured uh, a sounding rocket facility, um, a space balloon facility, um, met astronaut Kay Heyer. And the people that were there were from all walks of life. And I am a social person, so this was perfect for me. So it was more than just me showing up to a rocket launch and leaving and 
I came back exhausted, <laughs> but so buzzed. It's kind of like after a week of Oshkosh or Sun and Fun, you know, you see all your friends, you share all this passion, and then you like come back and you're just like dead. Um, that was me. <laughs> you know, that sounds like a lot of fun, and you can learn so much at these socials. And just, uh, it's like a big, it, it seemed like to me, I was following you on Facebook, it seemed like a one big party. Uh, it was, <laughs> but like with um, education, I, I learned so much. I was one of the few people um, with an aviation background. There was one student pilot there, and she was also studying to become an ANP. But everyone else really like did their research, and they they knew what was going up in this rocket. It was um, a, a resupply mission to the International Space Station, so Orbital ATK um, OA9 was the mission. And uh, they had all kinds of food, supplies, um, experiments going up to the space station. And a lot of these people had um, scientific backgrounds or um, taught things about space. And, uh, you know, I hung out all day with these people that have worked on the International Space Station and have worked with all the astronauts. So um, it was really humbling, too. And I just absorbed everything that I could while I was there. And these social events, by the way, remember I, I alluded to the fact that you can get involved no matter where you are. I mean, they have them in many different centers out in California, in Cleveland, Ohio, uh, Maryland, of course, uh, Cal uh, Pasadena, Houston, Texas, Johnson Space Center, uh, mm -hmm. Hampton Roads, and Alabama even, Huntsville, and uh, just all over. And of course, the one that you went to was at Wallops Flight Facility in, in Wallops Island in Virginia. So that isn't that far from you, was it? No, it's about well, on the way there because of the <laughs> rain. <laughs> it was a five-hour drive, but the way back was like three and a half hours. So um, definitely very close, easier than Florida. Um, people came all the way from L.A., so and some really? people drove from I think we had a gal drive from Tennessee, wow. another from Missouri. So um, people were dedicated, and they also have these things called NASA ambassadors. There's actually people that are dubbed as ambassadors for NASA and like can host, you know, space themed events around the country. So it doesn't always have to be at you know, for example, like a launch facility like this one was. So this is more like people into space, but uh, there were, like you said, yourself and maybe one other person in the aviation world. And uh, so that's that's cool to see that. I mean, obviously, they're very interconnected. And, and NASA, obviously, is the National Aeronautics and Space Administration. Uh, and they've done so much to promote aviation and space. It's just phenomenal over the past decades. And uh, reaching it, it's people dreaming and doing. It's phenomenal just to talk to some of these people. You actually get up close and personal with these folks and it's it's neat to kind of stretch the boundaries that's kind of what we're doing here on this show and uh just realizing that you know other people have have passions for flight and uh some of them have to do with space space flight and uh, you were surrounded by those folks what was you know i'm curious is did you feel a little bit nervous like because of the fact that it really was more space and than aviation I was very nervous. First of all, I didn't know anyone. I knew one person there, actually, I lied. I knew one person, but he was with the media. So um, they were. we were social media, and then there was a section for media. And, um, you know, and I just heard these backgrounds and the introductions about, I was like, how smart are all these people? <laughs> um, you know, I, I'm a very humble person, so I was just like, I'm a pilot. I, I'm on a podcast, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, in the end, you know, I, I taught – 
you know, I kind of bestowed my wisdom upon the student pilot <laughs> that was there. And I shared stuff with some people while they taught me other things. And so, you know, even though um, I didn't as much know as much about the space stuff, everyone there was so excited. They were happy to teach me and they weren't like, oh, you lowly ground pilot, you know. <laughs> <laughs> They were very helpful. Yeah, it is humbling to meet all these astronauts and uh, having, you know, been around a lot of them and worked with them down in Houston. It's uh, there are some really smart people out there uh, Mm -hmm. that get selected for this. And it's an incredible process. And uh, just it's so exciting to see something like this and to see this country put forth uh, all these missions towards space and and Mars, etc. What's interesting about this mission is the fact that when they were resupplying it and by the way, there's tons of YouTube videos out there, and we have some links at the bottom of the podcast. As a matter of fact, you might want to check out the show notes on this one, 179, because I have links to everything she talked about. She talked about the social, uh, links to that, how you can get involved with some of this. But also, there's a link to all the, the different views that NASA has on this this launch, and it goes into the docking and all that. I spent like an hour just watching this. Like, wow, this is totally cool. Uh, so if you're into that, you really need to check it out. But but what's really interesting about this mission is they have all these. It's an experiments, right, in DNA and, and microgravity and, and how it affects DNA and that type of thing. But one thing that I thought was like totally cool, and I know that you can relate to this, is the fact that they're going up there and they're testing a sextant navigation, a sextant, physical sextant navigation for emergency navigation on missions uh, to see if they can use that to travel through space. And I know, Victoria, you have it's kind of a, a you have a special connection to that with the sextant navigation and seeing it go back into space again. Yeah, I definitely do. Um, so basically, for those that don't know, a sextant was used in the nautical days, um, judging the angle between some stars, and you do some math, and you get to figure out where you are in comparison to those stars. And during my introductions uh, at the NASA social, we're supposed to, you know, say our name and say a fun fact about ourselves, what we do, and all that stuff. So my fun fact was that my grandfather actually designed the sextant that the Apollo astronauts used to navigate themselves to the moon. Think, back then we didn't have GPS. There's no GPS up there that can get us to the moon or to Mars or wherever. You need some other way to navigate, and uh, that's what the Apollo uh, astronauts used, and that's what my grandfather designed. And it looks a lot different than the one going up in the... uh, to the space station. However, so I said this as my fun fact, I shared that my grandpa did this and my grandpa's why I love space and part of the reason why I became a pilot. And no more than five minutes do I sit down, you know, after this introduction and this woman like charges at me. And I was like, oh my God, why, why is she coming <laughs> what did to I do? me? Like, did I get an emergency <laughs> phone call? Like, am I getting kicked out? Was I not supposed to be here? You know? Um, and she's like, did you know there is a sextant going up in the launch? And I was like, what? I had no idea. And so I got to, you know, talk with um, the people that were uh, responsible for educating others about all the different science um stuff going up into the space station and learn all about that. So it really felt meant to be that here was this launch that I first had no idea about, never heard of NASA socials and show up and they have kind of like a piece of 
my history wow. going up into space. And so I was just I was just blown away. I was like, ah, this is meant to be. <laughs> <laughs> what an incredible connection that is. And it really was an amazing event. And Victoria, if you could just kind of tell us before, I know we have a couple interviews that you did, but but that whole experience, I know it was so cool walking around with all these people and learning so much, but but how would the, the launch itself? Oh, my goodness. Uh, so I saw the last two shuttle launches, which, you know, that type of stuff kind of brings you to tears, especially the last one, because I knew it was the last. I was on the causeway, which is just a few miles away. And it's just remarkable, the raw power. I have never been to a night launch. And I had crawled out of bed at 1 a.m. to drive to the meeting spot to hop on a bus at 2 a.m. for a police escort to our launch site. So they create this whole ring where people are not allowed to go just in case something happens. And I sat there in the dark, you know, until just before 5 a.m. when it went off. And it became daylight. The second those engines ignited, the whole sky. You know, I took a cell phone video and I was worried it was going to... Sh- be all grainy and gross. No, you can see it clear as day because it is clear as day once that thing launches. And we were so close. We were 1.8 miles away, I believe. You could feel it. It like reverberated in your body. And uh, I just sat there in awe and I wanted to make sure I enjoyed the experience. So I actually got lucky that my cell phone picked it up because I wasn't watching my screen. I just kind of held it so I can enjoy the experience with my eyes and kind of just move the screen as it went up without even looking at the camera. So I'm lucky my my cell phone video turned out pretty well. Yeah, it did a great job on it. And uh, I'm sure you're sitting there in amazement and all. Now, when this went up, did you actually, I know it went through some clouds, but how, how long were you able to see the, the launch and did you see the separation from the stage? Um, it was so bright that we saw it even through the clouds. And I think that almost made it cooler because it lit up the clouds. And we had mission control fed through some loudspeakers on the bleachers that I was at. So I got to hear when it hit 20,000 feet. And I could still see it. It was just a little dot um, when it hit uh, like 100,000 feet. And then when they did do like the separation or I think it was like the booster, Mm -hmm. we got to see a, a flash again just up there in the sky. Uh, so it was great. And then you just hear the rumbling the, you know, the sound is what gets everyone excited about aviation and space. I think, you know, you go to an air show and you hear those big engines rumbling or F-16 fly by real fast. I think the sound gets you more excited sometimes <laughs> than seeing it. And I think that's what the rocket launch was like for me. Yeah, it got me excited, too. And and to add to that launch, amazingly enough, and this was phenomenal how this worked out. I was actually over the Atlantic Ocean at 36,000 feet, just to the south and a little bit to the west of Bermuda while this was going off. And I, as I'm flying, I told the captain, I said, listen, let's dim the lights a little bit and look outside because I don't want to miss this. And I'm watching and I see this little satellite and uh, we thought that might be the launch and we're like kind of embarrassed because it wasn't. And then maybe a few minutes later, we're like, 
oh my god there it is and you could see this little white light turn into this bright white light with this huge plume from the exhaust from that large engine going through the sky and what was interesting is remember i'm over the ocean so there's no vhf communication it's all you know hf communication and uh, vhf we talk air to air with other airplanes and remember this is like four in the morning so there's not many airplanes out there over the atlantic but we all monitor one two three four five one two three point four five and also one twenty one point five and also so suddenly someone comes up on the frequency says hey is anybody on frequency on lima 455 and that's an airway that's over the ocean and I'm like, yeah, why? What's going on? He says, well, do you see that in the air? It's kind of like he's hesitant. And I was like, oh, yeah, that's the launch uh, for the resupply for the International Space Station. He goes, oh, my God. Thank God. I thought the, the talks broke down with Korea. I was like, and everybody's like <laughs> laughing. I was like, oh, no, no, no. It's just a it – just, but anyway, the launch was phenomenal. I'm sitting there watching this, and, I, and the captain's like looking at him like, oh, my gosh. I said – no kidding there's somebody on the ground that's actually recording this and we're going to report about this later and here we are for the and i think this is probably a podcast first we're actually reporting from the air and on the ground uh watching this go through the sky and what was the most amazing thing you talked about when you saw the separation the separation of that stage was right out our right window and it was amazing this plume but it stopped like the there was this fire but the fire stopped and then it started up again and I, I watched some video later and realized that that was actually a coasting phase and then it starts up again with the next stage the thing that really got me and scared the heck out of us was when that stage comes back into the atmosphere when they say it burns up it really burns up we're watching this, and all of a sudden, this huge orange fireball just right outside our right window. We felt like we could touch it. Obviously, it was hundreds of miles away, but it really, it was just, we were awestruck when we first saw it. And then both of us looked at each other and said, boy, I hope there's nothing else falling out of the sky, <laughs> and I hope it doesn't hit us. And obviously, there isn't, but you start getting that sense like, oh, my gosh, what else is up there that might fall on us? Uh, but just a, a phenomenal sight, and then it just kind of coasted away and away and away and away and uh, finally was gone. And we're, we're just – I as the sun and this is right as the sun is starting to come over the horizon and you know up that high you can actually see it come over the horizon and you can see the smoke trail from when it re-entered the atmosphere and just absolutely beautiful the ribbons of uh and it made this little cloud formation just just phenomenal so this was really cool victoria that you and i got to actually see this launch from two very different perspectives I know. I, I I think it has to. We can't say for sure it's a first, but I think I think it's a I yeah. Think it's a first. It, we'll, we'll say it probably we're just that is a cool. first. Yeah, we're just that cool. <laughs> and, and we we planned this. We didn't plan it, but we did know it was going to happen. And I, it was just just phenomenal the the luck uh, that may have it. Um, but uh, but it was for me. It was it was a very personal experience because uh, what I was doing. I was flying from San Juan, Puerto Rico, up to Newark, New Jersey, and I was going actually going to take my dad for lunch. That's one of the things we. We do on, on overnights in Newark because that's where my family is. Uh, but unfortunately, um, when I landed, 
And about the time that the rocket was actually flying overhead is uh, the time that uh, my dad passed away. And uh, I found that out right after I got on the ground. And uh, so my week has been a very difficult and struggling week. But at least I can maybe say that my dad went out with a bang. And that was this kind of send off was sending this rocket over the ocean to for me to watch. And uh, so that was absolutely incredible. So as a matter of fact, I did a little tribute to my dad. And I can put that at the bottom just, uh, you know, a little bit of personal stuff uh and uh you know i can attribute a lot of my success in life to uh, to my father to to what he did and uh the fact that i was uh interestingly enough at at the wake uh one of the gentlemen that was there he actually worked on the rockets that um move he was a scientist that worked on designing the rockets that actually maneuvered uh the um, the module, the LEM, uh, and lunar module, excursion module. So uh, it was it was interesting to talk to him actually at the the wake there, and and uh, the amazing people that he was able to touch. And uh, but anyway, that's uh, so you can watch that video. A lot of uh, people don't realize my dad was an immigrant. He came to this country and kind of led the lived the American dream. You know, learned learned the language and went on and and uh, became a, a physician even, uh, and just you know taught me to to enjoy life and and follow your passion which this is aviation is my passion and uh and this is just just an amazing thing to bring to people so anyway not to bring things down too much but uh it was a, it was a wonderful experience to see that launch and it was a fitting end to my my father's long and productive life so uh anyway and i appreciate by the way everything all the uh, things that people have said and the condolences that have been forwarded to me now with all that said let's get on to the interviews uh victoria you have a couple of interviews here, so why don't you introduce them before we actually roll those interviews? There's two people I think you interview. Is that correct? Yeah, there's two people. I mean, I really wanted to interview astronaut Kay Heyer, but I didn't want to take up too much of her time because she had a huge line of people. But I do have to say she gave me some advice, so I felt very special when we got to talk gal to gal about flying and aviation, and she gave me some tips. So, um yeah, we were we were so busy, and I will forewarn you that there is um, a little bit of background noise in these interviews because uh, it's it was hard to find free space, and we, our days were so jam-packed with activities, and it was hard to find an area that was quiet without so many people around. So I do apologize for that. Um, the first interview, though, uh, was is a lovely lady, and she's a great storyteller, uh, Jean Wright. And she currently works for uh, volunteers at the Kennedy Space Center, but she is what's called aerospace composite tech soft goods for all the shuttle missions. And I was like, what on earth is that? She is a seamstress. And little did I know that NASA hired seamstresses um, for various type of materials and things that needed to be sewn on board. And it's not just, you know, blankets for astronauts. Some very important, very um, uh, important pieces of the shuttle are actually seamed together by these seamstresses. And there were some some fun facts I learned about different materials and uh, composites that they use. So that's Jean Wright. And the second interview is with my buddy Keelan. I hung out with him uh, quite a bit. Keelan Hamilton, he was the science ambassador for NASA Social and actually gave us a presentation um, for all the science uh, experiments and items that were going up into the space station. So he's the one who got to do the talk on the sextant. And we'll talk about that a little bit in the interview as well. He works for Berrios Tech and is kind of 
out and about to teach everyone about all that's involved with the space station and uh, going up in it. So he's he's a great. Um, well, he was the science ambassador for our event. That's what you can kind of t- call his job as well as to bring to the public um, exactly all the great things the space station is doing. Well, cool. Let's uh, tell you what. Let's roll those interviews, and uh, we'll talk a little bit about them afterwards. So, so let's go ahead, Mr. Producer. Go ahead and uh, roll the interviews. So we're here at the Wallops Flight Center right now, and I am here with Gene Wright from the Kennedy Space Center. Welcome, Gene. Welcome. So you, I can tell by looking at you right now, I'm going to just describe this lovely lady in front of me. She has a pin that says Space Hipsters and all her IDs from uh, previous missions and pins from also uh, many other missions. So you are a space geek. Yes, I am. <laughs> but, but I also did something very fascinating. I don't know if you've been told, but I was a seamstress on the space shuttle. And when I tell people how much hand sewing we did on them, they're, they're absolutely, totally surprised that something is as basic as hand sewing could be used on something so technological as shuttle was. You kind of have to start somewhere. I was telling uh, people earlier, my grandpa worked um, for the Apollo missions, and I was shocked when I realized they did not have calculators back then. So it makes sense that you would kind of need a seamstress to do this type of stuff. Um, Can you tell me where your love of space started and how you got into this industry? Oh, see, I love talking about this. I have a twin sister named Joan, and we've been interested in the space program, I would say probably since the time we were like 10. I'm in my early 60s now. Um, But we used to take crayons and draw patch designs, mission patches, and send them to Houston. And, of course, most of the time, astronauts themselves designed it or had someone design it. But we would get a lot of thanks but no thanks letters. But they would send us autographed pictures and, and, and anything, pictures of the flight. So it's been an interest of what my sister and I, from the time we were little girls, uh, never always hoping, but never really honestly thinking I had a chance. But um, but in my later in my years, I, I got my wish come true, and I started working out there. Amazing. So um, when did you start working out there, and what was your position? I started in there just the end of 2004, right after we lost. It was about a year after we lost um, uh, Columbia kind of a late start. I, in fact, I have the distinction of being the last seamstress they hired in the whole space program to work on shuttle, uh, which is an honor. Um, so I started then. So I was only there about seven years, wonderful seven years. Started on Valentine's Day, which I always said I knew a job I would always love. I thought it was kind of cool that it would be on starting on Valentine's Day. So um, seamstress, how many of you were there um, in there, and what did you guys all do? What did you put together? What was your main responsibility? Well, actually, if you're talking East and West Coast, uh, our technically our jobs are called, it's a long one, aerospace composite tech soft goods. Soft goods meaning anything to do with fabrics. So we had about a team of 40 ladies that worked in California. Uh, we used to take measurements for blankets and tile in California as the shuttles were arriving to KSC. Realized that was a lot of turnaround time, so in 1988, they closed the facilities in California and moved the blankets and the tile making to Kennedy Space Center. So, on our team, we had 18 ladies on our team. They had 20 in California, only 18 of us in, at KSC. Did you need some sort of um, background with material that can go into space, or well, did you no, start out as like seamstress? We were, we were, we, I've been sewing since I was seven, yeah. so I've been sewing a long time. The two key things that we needed to know was uh, number one, if you could read a basic blueprint, 
Mm -hmm. uh, the other one was how to draft a pattern. And when I say draft a pattern, literally meaning taking a piece of paper and drawing one if you had to. Only for shuttle, what we did is we would look at the blueprint, and from there, we had a roll of mylar that we would tear off, and then we would hand draw our pattern by looking at the blueprint, and then quality would stamp and buy it or approve it. Uh, and then I would stamp next to it, and then uh, and then it would be approved enough that we could uh, actually build the part itself. What type of material did you usually work with? Oh, a lot of itchy ones, which is why <laughs> we had a lot of nicknames for our group. Our favorite one is called the Sew Sisters, and we had a special patch that was designed for us. Uh, but our favorite one is kind of naughty. It's called the Itch, Stitch, and Bitch Club. <laughs> uh, that was our favorite because the stuff that we work with, we work with fiberglass. Uh, we work with glass fabrics in general. We work with um, quartz, which most of our were ceramic or stone-based. Oh. In fact, the majority of our fabric we used was quartz. Um, Nextel, those are basically ceramic-based fabrics, but the blankets that we made on the outside of the shuttle skin, that was a quartz fabric. And even the thread was quartz, the batting was quartz, the backing fabric was fiberglass, and those would be directly glued right onto the surface of the shuttle skin. And surprisingly, uh, we replaced uh, 7,000 white tile with the blankets, and you'll notice they look like they're an inch-by-inch inch grid on top. Mm -hmm. uh, they do the same uh, temperature that the tiles could do, uh, which is anywhere from 600 to 1,300 degrees, only it saved us almost 7,000 pounds. And wow. progression-wise, uh, I tell anybody who's interested in studying science uh, or want to be an engineer, uh, material sciences is where it's at because we have about seven distinctive fabrics on shuttle, and that alone by converting from different material, uh, hard materials, I should say, like tiles, two fabrics we saved close to 8,500 pounds just on Atlantis alone and it costs about mm, roughly $10,000 a pound to send something into space so the lighter you make your vehicle the less fuel and the more money you save but they're, yeah they're, just by switching to fabrics alone we save a lot of weight I, I never knew. When you talk about quartz, I think of a rock with shiny little parts, but that is actually made into a fabric. Can you tell us more about this? No, see, it's, yeah. funny, you should ask. it's funny you should ask because I think anybody who works for space fabrics for the first time, I'm very inquisitive. I ask a lot of questions. Um, they, they, my engineers explained it to me as if you've ever watched cotton candy being made and how they take sugar and put it in the center, superheat it up, and then it spins around and shoots out. The, the actual cotton candy. Well, they tell me it's a process very similar to that. And what they do is, and our thread is done the same way. Um, they take quartz and finally ground it into like a sugar, and then they put it into a machine and melt it. Literally, they melt it to a liquid, and then as they spin it around, it shoots out fiber that they're able to twist and turn into a thread or consequently weave into a fabric. Wow. So things you've made and you have sewn are actually on a shuttle yes. going into space. How does that yes. feel? You know what? I can't even tell you how thrilling it is. Um, my husband's had a very unique career on submarines, and, and, and I always wanted something really unique in my life. I'm a mom of three kids, and that's important to me, and I will never downplay that. Yeah. But there's always something. You want something that you know to be unique for, and it was something I wanted to do since the time I was little. So, yes, it's thrilling to me. Um, it leaves me a little bit of a legacy. Um, I tell my granddaughters that we sewed with love. The astronauts used to come to our building and hug us when the missions were over with and would tell us, if you ladies weren't here, we would not have made it home. And they recognized how important we were. But the thing I love telling my granddaughters, because I'm teaching both of them how to sew, is you know what? 
grandma has stitches inside the Smithsonian, and how many grandmas can say that? Um, I was just at the Varghese Center recently checking out the shuttle. So if I were to walk around the shuttle or go in it, um, what could we find that you have uh, possibly sewn? So many things, and it surprises some in areas you can't even see. The outside blankets, those are on the ohms and down the side walls of the shuttle. We actually have a felt called frizzy on the wings and on the top of the payload bay door. That's a Nomex felt with a silicone coating. Uh, we didn't cut that. They, they would cut that across the street at the bay, but we made thermal barriers that line each of the wheel wells. Uh, but the thread we use for that is very unique because in the elevons, which are the wing flaps inside the uh, leading edge of the wing inside the nose and the thermal barriers because those are super high temperature areas we had a special thread called AB440 it's a bright neon pink thread uh, phrase like the Dickens even though it was made with a sewing machine we hand sewed all of our parts for all those hot areas because that thread melts at 3,250 degrees wow really yeah. a high temp in fact in our world if a fabric or thread is dyed blue pink or green that tells us it's a high temp fabric or thread vice, a regular fabric or thread would be. Um, so um, the blankets on the outside, thermal barriers in the wheel wells, blankets inside the wings, huge blankets inside the nose, because a lot of people think it's the black tile or it's the bottom of the shuttle that gets the hottest. That's absolutely wrong. We have a very unique fabric on shuttle on the leading edge and also on the nose. It's called reinforced carbon-carbon. Hard as a rock when you hit it, um, it goes up to 3,100 degrees in its protection. Vice the tiles, 2,300 at the most is what the tile could do. So the leading edge of the wing, where the wing indents in, is the second hottest on reentry. And right underneath her nose, there's a special curved panel called the chin panel. And the nose is built out of five inches of this fabric. It starts off as graphite rayon, which is how it's considered a fabric. And through a lot of steps, at least seven, it turns it literally from a piece of regular graphite rayon to literally it's hard as a rock. So it's really underneath the nose, it's the hottest, and um, the highest we've ever measured was 2880 there, but it seems to just inside the nose, we hand sew a bowl-shaped blanket, and we have 19 inches of cavity to fill behind that blanket, so we hand sew these little blankets called puzzle blankets, and those are also hand sewed. They're called that because they fit together like puzzle pieces to fill that whole space inside the nose, and that's done with the high temperature thread too. Uh, the blankets behind the engines, that's probably the coolest blanket, bad pen, bad pen. <laughs> but we actually had three antique sewing machines upstairs. Their first jobs were to sew an inch thick of leather making saddles. So we actually brought them upstairs into our building. They were small machines, maybe about two feet across. Their first jobs were sewing saddles or an inch thick of leather, and they were Singer 9710s. We electrified all of them, took a section of their arm off, and extended them out to be five feet long. And we've kept a NASA tradition by naming all of our sewing machines. And Lurch is the one. He was built in 1914, and he's the machine that we have back that we quilt the blankets. There's actually four blankets on each engine. There's two little ones that are shaped like a keystone. Those are called splice pillow blankets because they splice the two big dome heat shield blankets. Well, the splice pillows only take us about eight hours to do. The dome heat shield blankets are the big ones. They're eight and a half feet across. They're built back there for sound suppression around the engines. Um, those take us at least four and a half days a piece to do. But we actually are standing on alert just for quilting that. And so horizontally, we have 12 rows. But what radiate out, we have 124 rows of stitching. And so if you're looking at anything above a, a flat surface, the heat is naturally drawn towards that. So we have to not 
the beginning and end of our stitch line and bury it into the part. Um, and that takes about 400, well, about 248 times, just on one blanket, to bury the knife. And then we hand sew a four-inch size. It's like a bias tape. It's a ceramic one out of stone that we hand sew to finish off the inner and outer edge of the blanket. And then when we get done with the blanket, this is the most unique hand sewing on her, is we hand sew those blankets on the back of the shuttle with a wire thread called Inconel 625, and the blankets are actually hand sewn onto the back of the shuttle for flight. So that's the most unique hand sewing that we did. So, wow. Um, I don't know what to ask next because I have a lot of questions going through my mind because I'm imagining we have 16 women sewing something at once or do you all have your individual projects? You said the engine took quite a while. What we did is um, each orbiter had a different, what we called a traveler. Mm -hmm. What basically was, it was a colored folder. So depending on what color of folder it was, we knew what orbiter we were working on. Um, So we had um, the latter part of the program, it was uh, blue, green, and orange. And uh, orange was Endeavor, blue was uh, Discovery, and Atlantis was um, green. Yeah, green. We had a few other ones too, but those are the main ones. So we had a rack. So what we did is, what we we just, which some of us, of course, you have specialty things that you like to work on. Um, so we, the, the folder would have, we just pull a folder and we would look at our print and see what part we were doing. We weren't assigned parts. We just got to pick what we got to do. And of course, if the schedule got tight, you can't pick and choose. You know, everything had to be done. So, um, yeah, so that's what we did. We got to pick whatever we got to do, but, or, you know, rarely assigned, but yeah. So you were potentially working on several shuttles at once, yeah, it we sounds were. like. We were. So we were good assembly line going. But one thing I love to do is whenever I'm giving tours of Atlantis, I had this most, my, my, my co-worker said it was a most annoying habit, but you've got to understand when you're so excited and, and the odds of you getting there, I asked so many questions that I would even ask the other ladies, what part are you building today and where's it going to go? I literally used to keep a logbook and write down V070, which means that's a flight hardware part, write down all the part number, what order it was going to and where it was going to be installed. And wow. I used to think that was so nuts, but, but that was my thing. That was my thing that's to do that. amazing. Yes, that was my thing. <laughs> um, so you worked on several missions. Did you ever, do you get to go in the shuttle when you're doing, you're sewing inside the shuttle too. You're not just in. No, it's sometimes inside. Not a lot inside, but sometimes um, we would build the parts. But notice I don't say sew or make. It's always in NASA talk. It's your building a part. So it's building. (laughs) So we would build our parts over at the – I worked at the TPSF, which stands for um, Thermal Protection Systems Facility. Tiles are made downstairs. All the sewing is done upstairs. We would build the parts over there. Rarely, if the schedule got behind and they needed us to install, we would be asked to go across the street and install. That didn't happen very often. But um, most of the time, if they needed thermal barriers and the wheel wells installed, they would ask me to do it. Because I'm a quilter, and I have nice even stitches. And so um, we'd have three, three thermal barriers on each wall. So there's 12 on each door. Those are rated basically for three flights but it takes two of us about 17 hours to install them in or stitch them in but each part is four feet long each thermal barrier is four feet and it takes us four days just to sew one and so we multiply that times 12 and then it's 17 hours to put all 12 in so it's, it's a lot of time to put that stuff in it it's amazing to think of how many individuals are employed to, you know, create one shuttle or to make one mission happen, you know, you never think of seamstress for NASA, you know. Um, what, where has your career brought you since now that the, um, the shuttles are no longer launching? 
Oh, gosh. You know, once it gets in your blood, you can't stop. So I'm what they call a docent, which is Latin for teacher. Um, I'm working in the education department down at KSC, um, Kennedy Space Center. Um, and I also work part-time for Delaware North, and I do special tours of Atlantis. And I talk about, uh, we have specialty docents that each of us specialize in a certain system on shuttle. So what we do is I represent thermal protection on shuttle. And um, so if there's any thermal questions I get asked, um, but um, they say we're experts. I, I don't know if I'd say that. I, I try and know everything I can. But, uh, yeah, that, I, I volunteer as a docent. I also do launch support. I do NASA socials if we need volunteers to do that. So I've got to meet Bill Nye, the science guy, Elon Musk. So a lot of people will say, well, you don't get paid now. And I go, well, I have my own business. This is just part-time that I do my volunteer work. But the neatest stuff, we, we get to go on top of the roof of the VAB. There's a yeah. lot of neat things that I tell people, you just can't put a price tag on. You know, it's 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 priceless and so yeah i don't get paid i volunteer i volunteer, I volunteer, I volunteer a lot and, and i get to i get to see and do a lot of things that most people would only dream about so you mentioned your business you have right now which i got to see an example of earlier can you tell me about what you're doing well our nickname uh, was called the so sisters and so i named my business so sisters space creations i make custom shirts and a bit of everything i make lanyards you name it I, I actually had the chance to purchase three payload bay liners from columbia endeavor and discovery and so what i do is people ask for fabric outright that i can sell to them or what i do is and the guys really like this especially the guys i actually take about an inch and a quarter piece by an inch and a quarter and stitch it in the pocket uh, on their on their on their pocket, so they can have a, a conversation piece. So the shirts have been very popular, and it's kind of thrilling whenever I'm watching Facebook or or a NASA social, and I go, "Oh, I made that!" <laughs> so and the guys have been very very nice. Sometimes if we have a big NASA function, they know that I'll be watching, and they'll deliberately wear the shirts, oh, and everybody okay. will ask, "Oh, where'd you get that shirt at?" So it's kind of. It's self, it's self exploding. I, I, it's it's gone gone very very well. So where should we get these shirt ads? Can you tell us where you are online or well, um, social media or anything? Uh, well, I should be on social media. <laughs> <laughs> um, I just have everybody if they're interested go to my Facebook page and uh, just personal mess me that message me if they want one. And all I ask for the shirts is a chest and a waist measurement, and uh, and I'm good to go. Perfect. I'm good to go. So she's Jean Wright, just like the Wright brothers, Jean, J-E-A-N. Uh, what's your profile picture? There might be a lot of Jean Wrights out there, just so we oh, know. Oh, you can't miss it. I have the really cool picture that my friend, who's a professional photographer, Ken Kramer, in fact, he's right over there. Um, I have a picture, and I'm actually um, uh, in front of Atlantis, and I've got my arms crossed in front of me with the pose of, yes, indeed, I do own this place. <laughs> so um, I'm, 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 my picture's right in front of Atlantis, and Perfect. so you can't miss me. You can't miss we'll me. We'll know how to find you, now. you will. You will. <laughs> Is there anything else you want to talk to and say um, to our listeners that I might have missed? Well, you know, the one thing that when I do talks around the country, um, it's been fairly recent that we've gone from STEM to STEAM career, yes. and I think because I'm a seamstress, when I, I primarily get invited to huge quilt shows around the country or universities that maybe have uh, material engineering, and I always tell them as an artist because um, I, I, I'm, I'm very creative. I, I not only do quilting and sewing for subtle stuff, but... but um, I paint and I do a, a bit of everything. I always tell everybody who always thinks you have to be a math or scientist to be for NASA. 
that I've actually had women come up to me, and, and kids too. I never thought there was a space for me there, but you tell me if I'm creative-minded, uh, I have a chance. As basic as or as humble as sewing is, people can actually relate to that, and I think that's my door opening to yes. people. Uh, I stress in all my talks how important it is for art or being creative. It's as I explain to people, if you have an idea, you have to have someone who can visualize that and draw it or even write the plans for that. So it takes a lot of creativity to even do something as technical as a spaceship. So I think as simple as what I did, though it was kind of technical in some ways, yeah. um, I think the fact that it is so relatable that people think, you know what, I really do have a chance. And, and really, NASA does need people with all sorts of creativity or talents. It's just not math and science. They're important. But we need creative people, too. It's the importance of keeping art in our schools. Exactly. Because a lot of art classes, that's being cut around the country exactly. to save money. And it shows, you know, art is has a home at NASA. Mm-hmm. That's amazing. Thank you very Thank much you. for talking Thank with you. us today. Again, this is Victoria Newville with the Stuck Mike Avcast. And I was here with Jean Wright, seamstress for NASA. This is Victoria Newville with the Stuck Mike Avcast, and we're currently at the Wallops Flight Facility um, with NASA Social. You can check out all our pictures at hashtag NASA Social and check out um, my Instagram, social media, as well as Stuck Mike Avcasts. I am here with Keelan Hamilton, and he is the Space Station ISS Program Science, and uh, he's with Barrios Tech. And that was a lot of words I just rambled off. So um, welcome, Keelan. And tell me a little bit about what you do and what that title means. Okay. I'm an International Space Station Program Scientist. And basically what that means is I work with the people doing the investigations, all the experiments with the space station. I work with them to uh, help uh, so they can explain their science to the general public what they're doing. Basically, I call myself jokingly the nerd whisperer. So I help help to help to break it down for everyone lift and the products we, we feed all the media products even things like briefings to like our members of congress and the president and all the cabinet whatever so we do our um translation of information makes it uh throughout the throughout the whole world mm-hmm. i also work get to work with all the international partners so I work with the european space agency uh japan canada and sometimes with, with russia to help talk about their experiments and again help to simplify their explain what they're doing wow you, you get around <laughs> i do finally <laughs> so um let's start with this every person wants to be an astronaut when they grew up do you still have that dream is that how you got into all of this yes it, it, yes, uh, my first term, I've always been always been, been a science person, always enjoyed science. My parents were uh, Trekkies, so, and yep. when I was Mine little, too. <laughs> exactly, and you know how that is, and, and little when I was little, Star Wars came out, so I was all about that, but then I was always a science-oriented person. And then the day came, April 12, 1981, the first space shuttle launch. Mm-hmm. And I was like, when I was in schools, like, I'm seven years old, going to eight in school. And uh, I could not get my schoolwork done because this is like the coolest thing ever because first time in my life I've actually seen American spaceflight. And it's like, you know, it's about that time I determined, you know, I'm going, that's what I want to be. I want to be an astronaut. That's what I want to do. So I started out in, in trying to do electrical engineering. Okay. It didn't work out. So I ended up going into chemistry and 
it's been a blast ever since. Oh, good. So your science background ultimately led you to the ISS. What type of trajectory does someone take to be able to work with NASA, you know, with the International Space Station and all that? It's a long journey. Some some people get, I, I'd say, lucky and then they'll, uh, from college, they'll, like, go to the, the co-op program or with NASA itself or through one of the contractors, wherever the center's at, and they'll get in that way. I didn't have that that easy of a, of a path, but in a way it was good because I learned other things to help me prepare for NASA. Uh, for instance, uh, after didn't go up, I worked, spent some time working at environmental testing companies, chemistry, so the chemistry of, of the environment, so I worked with that, testing oil and well, air and water and soil samples. Mm-hmm. Uh, from then on, I to grad school, tried again to a new my networking, knew a lot of people that were working co-oping at Johnson Space Center. Uh, my even my main professor uh, advisor at the time too is working with a NASA uh, person on advanced life support system okay. research. So yeah. I was going, yes, like this has been like this is up my alley. What I want to do. Yeah. Ultimately, wasn't able to make it there, but get other stuff. So my first job out of graduate school is working in the Human Genome Project. Oh, okay. So, so I got a crash course into molecular biology wow. and learned about genetic sequencing and all the other stuff. It's stuff that I was a chemist. We've known about this a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, and just being professional and learned a lot about that. But also, in addition, my main job was to make uh, oligonucleotides, uh, small DNA primers, so they could complete the sequencing part. Mm-hmm. So it, my job turned out not only being that, but ended up being a uh, process control engineer because I had to know how to make everything. At the same time, I had to develop the process to get to get to go from chemicals to having everything on the matrix to getting it off the matrix and getting ready, ready to use for all the other scientists there. So, and that ultimately led you to here. Ultimately, yeah. yeah. In, in the roundabout story, because again, I. Glad a lot of experience mm-hmm. doing all the, all the stuff. Again, stuff that was like interesting, not my cup of tea, but yeah. at the same time, you have to be a professional and, and do your job. And so finally, when that job play, played out, I was actually hired at Johnson Space Center. And it was my first uh, tour. NASA was working in the uh, Crew and Thermal Systems Division. Mm-hmm. And that's a long way of saying is it was the team that uh, that tests everything that the astronauts use in space. Okay. Um, uh, my job, first job, was uh, testing the lithium hydroxide. It was the air scrubber. You've seen Apollo 13. That was the air scrubber. Yes. That, uh, and in <laughs> fact, actually, even still at that time, it was like mid-2005, uh, return flight shuttle and some of the people working there were, were people that had worked on Apollo 13 oh, wow. still so it's like so uh, I've got my academic knowing what should happen in this environment that I'm working with people that have been doing this for 20 30 years have actually seen what actually happens and stuff that's going on so it's like hmm, as much as I knew it's like you know I can still learn a lot from, the, from the, these guys these techs that have been doing this so it was a lot of fun that's good you're that. aware of that um, mm-hmm. my love from space comes from my uh, grandfather who actually worked on all the Apollo missions as well so I know all about that scrub system um, how, how did you test everything like what was there a certain um, you know routine you had to follow certain parameters you had to meet yes actually yeah, yeah. yes 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 we had I had a uh, we had a, a flow bench a gas flow bench and we would flow through uh, um, high, highly pure carbon dioxide carbon dioxide uh, that would re- replicate what the uh, would be in, in the shuttle cabin and we'd turn up the airflow to what the what the cabin flow would be in the shuttle which was uh, like 4.7 liters per minute of, of air so they're woofing air real through real quick and we have a little test little test and we load in a um, certain amount of lithium hydroxide I think it's 15 grams and like that load in there and then we flow through there for about um, like, like 
80 minutes, you know, 80, 90 minutes would flow through there, and then we'd get a, get a, get a graph, and we'd uh, test to make sure that uh, it met certain um, qualities that, okay, if it made the spec, okay, it's good, right? We had to use, use like five, five different dew points of like from, from 20 degrees Fahrenheit up to like 80 degrees Fahrenheit and test the how it would absorb uh, carbon dioxide in each of those temperatures. I'm going to stop you right there for a second because mm-hmm. dew point, you hit a word. So mm-hmm. um, pilots are listening to our podcast today and we uh-huh. always look at the temperature dew point spread. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about the dew point in space? Okay, so, yes, the dew point is usually... Um, Inside inside the, the spacecraft, they want to keep every they try to keep everything like sea level temperatures. They're in the shuttle using the same atmospheric conditions basins we have on, on Earth. Unlike Apollo, where it was just 100 percent oxygen atmosphere, so we would uh, test at uh, different uh, dew points so that to, to kind of replicate well different temperatures in the, in the shuttle. People might like cold, warmer, colder. But also in addition to the same lithium hydroxide would also be used in the EMU spacesuits. Okay. And so uh, they were working at, at 4.3 PSI. And so uh, certain astronauts like to, like their work, they'll keep their suit at a certain temp- temperature or whatever. So to make sure that it would all, so that the lithium hydroxide would absorb carbon dioxide at the higher temperatures as well as, as lower temperatures. Because there would be a, a, diff- a difference. Since the suits are, ra- are rated for EVA for about seven hours, seven, seven and a half hours, mm-hmm. need to make sure that the, you wouldn't reach the uh, 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 saturation point in the, uh, in the suit. And if there's lo- uh, low moisture that's around whatever, you're going to break through uh, your lithium hydroxide faster, so you'll, you'll start now having CO2 build up, and then you have to terminate your space and things like that. So we tested the different, the drier and then the wetter to make sure that in case you have a trouble with your environmental control system, that it would still actually work. You may have to, may have to, have to like, uh, trade your lithium hydroxide canisters more often, but making sure that it would fall within those ranges. So what's you the, um, like, the perfect spread that you're looking for up there? Mm, so like a... Yeah, it's really um, just... Really can't, can't can't remember so so much, but yeah. it was a basically more so. It's like it would uh, each canister is like if a canister, uh, I want to say about maybe a foot and a half and about maybe a foot in diameter that would be full of lithium hydroxide, and two of those would be in in the in the uh, air skirmishes at the same time, and basically those just basically had to be able to handle a crew of seven people for about twelve hours. Okay, so there, there's, there's there, amount of yeah, so so, so it's a really again. Since we have the air is moving off, circulating air pretty quickly, it's like just make sure you don't have have a buildup so much so mm-hmm. of the wrong. Good. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so today uh, and yesterday in the briefing, you were there with me. We got to learn a lot about the experiments that are actually going up um, on this uh, resupply mission. And uh, can you tell us a little bit more about all these experiments and um, what how you guys are involved? Sure. Um, there's a lot of experiments we saw. Step back. My job is to uh, again working working with the uh, investigators to kind of explain in layman's terms what, they, what they're doing. So we so we spend a lot of time going uh, nego- negotiating, kind of write we write our get our sum we have these summaries that have all this information. We re- we look at the summaries, we edit it so to kind of make it interesting for people. Send it back to the to the investigators. They look it over, uh, make sure that it's accurate information, and so then we'll we'll agree to agree that this is what they want. Then we'll go and post that. So. Walter was saying that is now that we've been we've helped to do uh, help do that now some of these uh, 
some of the PIs were in the, in the briefings that were able to go see actually see the stuff. So the things like the cold atom lab, where they're going to like uh, make extremely cold temperatures and do science with that, is that was the first time I'd ever seen that hardware. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's like, oh, finally, this is what we're you're constantly at. learning mm-hmm. on the job. Exactly, and said if you're not learning, you're going extinct. <laughs> so <Yeah. laughs> we have to so to learn so yeah, that. So and with the uh, cement mixing experiment, that's like nice rudimentary getting the basic science down so that I'm interested in seeing how that mix how the mixing goes with the solid liquid so that now thinks they can they can go and scale up to the next part and try to see what more they can do with that and even maybe someday do an exposure to vacuum and see what happens and see if that's can you tell us a little bit more about the uh, the cement mixing experiment because cement acts mm. differently in space due to the hydration correct it, it can it's yeah. actually it's one of the reasons we're going we're to find it out yeah. um, since this experiment will be done in the cabin so it'll be done under pressurized conditions so we'll be able to just get see how is the like water mixture going, going to do what's it is it going to uh, is there anything fundamentally that's going to change uh, how, how it mixes so this will just be this is like this is the first call there's like pathfinder see okay so does it mix right so let's see so then probably is according to the investigators the next step will probably be okay to try to do something a little bit more um, like what's done on earth when they're making the concrete so okay we've got a mix now and see like that now they'll probably do like the stirring see if they can do that and try to uh mold it and see if it, it'll cure like that i'm sure i'm not i can't speak for what they're gonna do but i estimate they'll probably try to do a curing while they're inside the cabin see if it works like that way and then probably later on they'll have to go and try it in the vacuum space to like see what's going to, what's going to happen with that because we know water will will vapor vaporize evaporate or so mate, whatever the case may be, whatever. So we'll take that away from the matrix, from the matrix. So we'll see. Well, how's that going to affect the structure and the hardening, things like that? So there's, it'll be there's an interesting like continuation of that. But I'm and the ultimate goal is to see, you know, how if we were to go to Mars or something, how to make concrete in space. You know, how right. to do it under different, um, you know, conditions. Mm-hmm. And so there's going to be um, equal experiments back down here on Earth. Mm-hmm. Comparable and done to the same times and the same exactly. amount of mixing as they are up exactly. in space. Mm-hmm. Um, and also interesting to note too what they find out in, in microgravity, since it's a perfect like physics type thing to explain mm-hmm. it. It may also too turn out that they may find better ways in order to mix concrete here on Earth that might make it more durable. Perfect. So, <laughs> it's good. Um, any other notable um, experiments that like you you mm-hmm. take to mm-hmm. heart that you really like? Yeah, there's, there's one interesting that you might be interested in too. There's one called uh, sextant navigation. Mm-hmm. And so when we start sending the Orion spacecraft about to back to interstellar space, space, whatever, they're going to need uh, have a backup navigation system, and so they're going to go back and use uh, take on from the old Apollo days. They're going to use a sextant to do the navigation with. I'm going to interrupt you and let the, everyone know my grandfather actually designed the space sextant that took the astronauts to the moon during the Apollo missions. And um, we had to do an introduction at our briefing yesterday, and we had to say a fun fact, and that was my fun fact. And then three of you guys came over to me later and said, there's one going. There is a sextant going up into space on this mission. So this is one I'm really excited to hear about because, you know, we take things for granted down on Earth. We can use a GPS to get everywhere, but there's no GPS that's going to get us to Mars. Can you uh, tell us a bit about 
you know, more about the sextant mm -hmm. mission. Sextant, yeah, it'll, it'll probably, it's going to work the same way as, as the old Apollo sextant was, like, uh, during your, on your course to wherever you're going to, you're going to, the sky is going to look, look a certain, certain way. And so in order to navigate your path, you basically you take a, uh, you measure angles, angles between the stars, and certain stars, and then from that you can do your, do your math and triangulate your, your position, and, and note, find out which way you're, know which way you're pointed, which way you're traveling, and what you need to do to, to correct your course, so. So, and that is going up. So, do you know when um, when this stuff goes up? Do you know which astronauts going to be working on this? How are they going to use the sextant up there? And yeah. I think it's going to gonna be it. something that'll be used. Uh, each crew member mm -hmm. is going to. There's a there's a good there's a good picture I'll show you later of uh, one of the European astronauts that's uh, uh, using it in, in training. So it's uh, cool. yeah, it'll be something that each astronaut will, will get a chance to use, and it may end up being one of those like even astronauts have like their favorite experiments. Mm -hmm. so this could be one that they actually work with a lot because I think a lot of them are are. Um, interested and intrigued like now we're doing what the old Apollo guys did and who knows maybe some of these guys may be the ones using it and navigating back to the moon or so. so. That's amazing. Mm. There's just something from so long ago is still so relevant today. Um, what, so what's your favorite part about your job besides talking about space all the time? Is there mm. something that really has stood out mm. to you over your career? Mm. One thing I love doing, we do a lot of, lot of, lot of um, uh, public outreach. So public outreach is, is a lot of fun because you know uh, even from the days I'm coming from back in the lab and doing all these things, people ask me what I'm doing. So it's like I have to know know what I'm doing because if I can't explain it like explain it like the rest of the space, if we can't explain it to the regular person, no one's going to care. You're going to bore everyone to death, and yeah. we'll never layman's we'll, terms. Layman's terms, and no one will ever think. So I like doing that because it helps me to like, oh, I need to remember to understand how to get out of my tech world, talk to everyone, and at the same time, it's like always oh, always good to interact with the, with the public and let them know that. Um, uh, that you know we're we're just like everybody else. We're passionate about our job, and and also we're also passionate about what you do and tell you how what we do in space impacts you on Earth. I love it. Mm -hmm. I love it. In fact, of one little uh, uh, anecdote, there's a friend uh, friend met uh, her parents, and her dad was a construction worker, and was he he wasn't anti space flight whatever so much, but he just really didn't see what the point the point was. So I so I asked him what was how what his construction love what he was doing so, and I told him about how we were building the International Space Station, how we were using a lot of construction techniques to get to get everything done. Yeah. Uh, and it was like he's like, wow, really? Said, yeah, that's some of those some of that stuff that y'all did, and even they even brought some of the construction traditions while they were doing space and construction. And uh, one of the interesting ones, as I thought was interesting, was uh, the Canadian Space Agency developed what they called the Space Space Vision System. Mm -hmm. And what that was was in a piece of hardware. So there's dead zone, there's blind zones where you can't see when you're trying to use the robot arm to start stacking things. So what they would do is they put little like uh, like reflectors or lights on there, and so right there. And so you could, so what ended up happening is you could tell how it how it was oriented by looking at a plot, and a plot would give you a three D plot of oh this is where the how this is oriented where you need to move it. So you could basically without being able to see where you're trying to put something at, if you can see a wire diagram of where it is relative everything, you can use that as a way to get yourself aligned to actually place your modules where they need to go. Love it. So it was like, wow. So, and it's, I can imagine probably it's something that could be, probably, I'm sure they're working on some construction places of having that kind of system, so having train operators in a blind area being able to accurately put things where they need to go. Was it um, Velcro, I believe, that was developed by NASA? That is something that everyone uses now, too. So That's you can one, think one, about mm -hmm. all the technology that, mm -hmm. you know, it's not just for up there. It's right. If, if everything we do up there is for the benefit of us down here and on Earth. So. Yeah.
That's um, cool things. So tomorrow is a rocket launch at 4.30 in the morning. Uh, hopefully it goes off. Um, what? Uh, how many launches have you been to? Let's see. I've got, let's see, this will be my, this is my sixth, sixth launch. Sixth. Sixth launch. And only one, only one of them that I go to did I not get, get to see launch because I had to, had to travel back. So I'm batting five for six so far. So. Well, that was pretty good. And they're all orbital ATK or were they uh, No, other? I've had uh, one space shuttle launch, okay. uh, STS-93, uh, two SpaceX's, one of which I didn't get to see, and three orbitals, including two, this will be my second Antares, but I also got to saw an orbital that launched on the Atlas V rocket. So. Yes, was, you don't have fun at all in your job. No fun no. at all. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you very much for taking the time to talk with Stuck Mike Avcast. Again, this is Victoria, and I am with Keelan Hamilton, and I appreciate your time, and I look forward to talking about more Space Geek stuff with you on the rest of our trip here. All right, I will be up for that. <laughs> Well, Victoria, that was some cool interviews. I tell you, you could tell. I, I know what you, you said about the noise in the background. It must have been all the excitement, I'm sure, uh, is why there was so much noise in the background. But uh, And it just was, it was really cool to hear that uh, from the people that you interviewed, but also the people in the background. Yeah, I mean, there was... <laughs> Every time we went to a new spot, there were people jumping off the bus in excitement or going, wow, or, you know, cameras going everywhere, people, you know, hugging each other, you know, just all kinds of excitement throughout the whole event. So a lot of that was going on when I was trying to do the interviews and I didn't want to be like, shut up. So um, <laughs> we tried to find a quiet corner in like the media area the best we could. But um, as you could hear, Jean, Jean loved to talk about what she did and we talked for um, a good half hour after I interviewed uh, her and she actually came to tears a few times talking about all her wonderful experiences um, at the uh, shuttle um, in the shuttle missions. And she did share with me, too, um, since she's obviously a, a seamstress for life and really into doing this, she got to the name is escaping my mind, but she got to visit and uh, view the uh, sewing machine that was used to sew the fabric on the Wright Brothers aircraft. Oh, wow. And she, she was brought to tears just because it moved her so much because that's, you know, someone uh, that did that. And then she later was the one creating the fabric for the space shuttle mission. So I thought that was really sweet. That is. That's incredible. You know, one thing I didn't realize is the, the in, at Wallops is the different missions they have. It's uh, not just space exploration. Uh, there's there's also many, you know, Department of Defense missions, et cetera, that launch out of there. They're, it's a very active environment, and there's people just like Gene that are incredibly uh, passionate about what they do and have given their life to these different programs. It's, there's commercial space, there's Department of Defense, there's NASA, there's all sorts of things that are coming together there. And honestly, uh, I hate to say it, I never heard of the Wallops uh, Center, but I, for now on, will be following it. And I really think that be getting part of that or becoming part of the NASA social program is going to be really cool. Uh, and I think this has been really cool. And Virginia, this has been awesome. I mean, you're bringing this to us. I thought that was great that you, you went ahead and uh, <laughs> uh, I guess a little bit of luck. Someone told you about it. And I, yeah. think, I think we're, <laughs> we're going to do some more of these because, uh, as you can tell, there's just so many passionate people about aviation and also space that are there and and i think that's something we really need to promote 
I'd love well, to hear I'm definitely from... uh, hooked. The orbital ATK-10 uh, mission, the resupply mission, uh, is going up again in November. And so um, you'll be with there? any luck again, uh, I can record twice, and you'll just have to make sure you're on an airliner <laughs> around <laughs> that, the same time. <laughs> wow, that's going to be... Uh, if we could pull that two times in a row, watching it from the air and the ground, that would be really right? cool. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, this has been... I mean, it's been phenomenal just being part of that and, and actually... Just when you watch something like that, there's something inside that that really changes. You just sit there and say, wow, I mean, it's amazing what humanity can do and what we can do when we come together as a people. And we can actually bring people from the Earth into the sky through to the moon, stay on the moon and go even to Mars and even further and live in space. And I think that's absolutely incredible. And that's what we do. I mean, we all are into aviation and aerospace because of the fact that we love to live those dreams and be part of that mission and part of that goal and part of putting those dreams forth uh, throughout the world and through the country. So hats off to you, Victoria, for actually doing this. And I I can't wait to hear more of those interviews in the future. Uh, This has been awesome bringing this uh, to you and to to the folks here. And uh, Victoria, is there anything else that they should know? Maybe they can go to a website, I think, as far as if they want to show up at one of these events. We're going to put that link. I think it's called nasa.gov and uh, slash social. Uh, yeah, you're pretty close. Um, I think that's it. They'll have a list of the events that are coming up and then ones you can apply to. Um, there's nothing up yet for the November one I mentioned, at least last time I stalked the page. But yeah, it's nasa.gov slash social. And I think there's a hashtag, hashtag NASA social. Hashtag NASA social. That's what we used on all of our um, posts and fun stuff like that. So um, check out my Instagram. I put a lot of pictures up there. Um, I was posting throughout the day, every day. So um, you might have to scroll down a roll or two. But I've got my video from the launch, um, my behind-the-scenes tour of the control center. Got to actually sit in a chair there and look all cool. Um, and my view of the rocket, how close I could get to see it before um, it launched. So uh, there was some really neat stuff that I got to experience. I'm really thankful for the opportunity. Awesome. We'll have a link to that as far as your Instagram account and uh, those pictures. Really cool stuff that you did there in videos. And uh, for those of you that, that are listening or just in aviation, I really, uh, you know, I, I'd say, hey, stretch a little bit, try out, go to NASA, just like uh, Victoria did. Yeah, it's a it's a little scary. There's a lot of smart people there in the room, but you will learn something. And it also will be incredibly inspirational, that's for sure. You've been listening to the Stuck Mike Abcast. Members of the Stuck Mike Abcast may receive compensation for products or services mentioned during the podcast. Compensation may be received in the form of, but not limited to, referral commissions, free products, or service trials. Our opinions and views are never influenced by any compensation, and you should always perform your own due diligence before purchasing any products or services mentioned during the show. The Stuck Mike Avcast is an aviation podcast and a Valeri Aviation Corporation production.